As reason tells us, all are born thus naturally equal, that is, with an equal right to their persons, so also with an equal right to their preservation. And every man having a property in his own person, the labor of his body and the work of his hands are properly his own, to which no one has right but himself. It will therefore follow that when he removes anything out of the state that nature has provided and left it in, he has mixed his labor with it, and joined something to it that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. Thus every man having a natural right to, or being proprietor of, his own person and his own actions and labor, which we call property, it certainly follows that no man can have a right to the person or property of another. And if every man has a right to his person and property, he has also a right to defend them, and so has a right of punishing all insults upon his person and property. Reverend Elisha Williams, 1744 Introduction by Hans Hermann Hoppe in an age of intellectual hyperspecialization, Murray N. Rothbard was a grand system builder. An economist by profession, Rothbard was the creator of a system of social and political philosophy based on economics and ethics as its cornerstones. For centuries, economics and ethics, political philosophy, had diverged from their common origin into seemingly unrelated intellectual enterprises. Economics was a value-free, positive science, and ethics, if it was a science at all, was a normative science. As a result of this separation, the concept of property had increasingly disappeared from both disciplines. For economists, property sounded too normative, and for political philosophers, property smacked of mundane economics. Rothbard's unique contribution is the rediscovery of property and property rights as the common foundation of both economics and political philosophy, and the systematic reconstruction and conceptual integration of modern marginalist economics and natural law political philosophy into a unified moral science, libertarianism. Following his revered teacher and mentor Ludwig von Mises, Mises' teachers, Eugen von Böhm-Bawerk and Karl Menger, and an intellectual tradition reaching back to the Spanish late scholastics and beyond, Rothbardian economics sets out from a simple and undeniable fact and experience, a single indisputable axiom, that man acts, that is, that humans always and invariably pursue their most highly valued ends, goals, with scarce means goods. Combined with a few empirical assumptions, such as that labor implies disutility, all of economic theory can be deduced from this incontestable starting point, thereby elevating its propositions to the status of apodictic, exact, or a priori true empirical laws, and establishing economics as a logic of action, praxeology. Rothbard modeled his first magnum opus, Man, Economy, and State, on Mises' monumental Human Action. In it, Rothbard developed the entire body of economic theory, from utility theory and the law of marginal utility, to monetary theory and the theory of the business cycle, along praxeological lines. 
subjecting all variants of quantitative, empirical, and mathematical economics to critique and logical refutation, and repairing the few remaining inconsistencies in the Misesian system, such as his theory of monopoly prices and of government and governmental security production. Rothbard was the first to present the complete case for a pure market economy or private property anarchism as always and necessarily optimizing social utility. In the sequel, Power and Market, Rothbard further developed a typology and analyzed the economic effects of every conceivable form of government interference in markets. In the meantime, Man, Economy, and State, including Power and Market as its third volume, has become a modern classic and ranks with Mises' human action as one of the towering achievements of the Austrian school of economics. Ethics, or more specifically political philosophy, is the second pillar of the Rothbardian system, strictly separated from economics, but equally grounded in the acting nature of man, and complementing it to form a unified system of rationalist social philosophy. The Ethics of Liberty, originally published in 1982, is Rothbard's second magnum opus. In it, he explains the integration of economics and ethics via the joint concept of property, and based on the concept of property, and in conjunction with a few general empirical, biological, and physical observations or assumptions, Rothbard deduces the corpus of libertarian law, from the law of appropriation to that of contracts and punishment. Even in the finest works of economics, including Mises' human action, the concept of property had attracted little attention before Rothbard burst onto the intellectual scene with man, economy, and state. Yet, as Rothbard pointed out, such common economic terms as direct and indirect exchange, markets and market prices, as well as aggression, invasion, crime, and fraud, cannot be defined or understood without a prior theory of property. Nor is it possible to establish the familiar economic theorems relating to these phenomena without an implied notion of property and property rights. A definition and theory of property must precede the definition and establishment of all other economic terms and theorems. At the time when Rothbard had restored the concept of property to its central position within economics, other economists, most notably Ronald Coase, Harold Demsetz, and Armin Alkian, also began to redirect professional attention to the subject of property and property rights. However, the response and the lessons drawn from the simultaneous rediscovery of the centrality of the idea of property by Rothbard on the one hand, and Coase, Demsatz, and Alkian on the other, were categorically different. The latter, as well as other members of the influential Chicago School of Law and Economics, were generally uninterested and unfamiliar with philosophy in general, and political philosophy in particular. They unswervingly accepted the reigning positivistic dogma that no such thing as rational ethics is possible. Ethics was not and could not be a science, and economics was and could be a science only if and in so far as it was positive economics. 
Accordingly, the rediscovery of the indispensable role of the idea of property for economic analysis could mean only that the term property had to be stripped of all normative connotations attached to it in everyday non-scientific discourse. As long as scarcity, and hence potential interpersonal conflict, exists, every society requires a well-defined set of property rights assignments. But no absolute, universally and eternally correct and proper or false and improper way of defining or designing a set of property rights exists, and there exists no such thing as absolute rights or absolute crimes but only alternative systems of property rights assignments describing different activities as right and wrong. Lacking any absolute ethical standards, the choice between alternative systems of property rights assignments will be made, and in cases of interpersonal conflicts, should be made by government judges, based on utilitarian considerations and calculations. That is, property rights will be so assigned or reassigned that the monetary value of the output produced is thereby maximized, and in all cases of conflicting claims, government judges should so assign them. Profoundly interested in and familiar with philosophy and the history of ideas, Rothbard recognized this response from the outset as just another variant of age-old, self-contradictory ethical relativism. For in claiming ethical questions to be outside the realm of science, and then predicting that property rights will be assigned in accordance with utilitarian cost-benefit considerations, or should be so assigned by government judges, one is likewise proposing an ethic. It is the ethic of statism, in one or both of two forms. Either it amounts to a defense of the status quo, whatever it is, on the grounds that lastingly existing rules, norms, laws, institutions, etc., must be efficient, as otherwise they would already have been abandoned, or it amounts to the proposal that conflicts be resolved and property rights be assigned by state judges according to such utilitarian calculations. Rothbard did not dispute the fact that property rights are, and historically have been, assigned in various ways, of course, or that the different ways in which they are assigned and reassigned have distinctly different economic consequences. In fact, his power and market is probably the most comprehensive economic analysis of alternative property rights arrangements to be found. Nor did he dispute the possibility or importance of monetary calculation and of evaluating alternative property rights arrangements in terms of money. Indeed, as an outspoken critic of socialism and as a monetary theorist, how could he? What Rothbard objected to was the argumentatively unsubstantiated acceptance, on the part of Coase and the Chicago law and economics tradition, of the positivistic dogma concerning the impossibility of a rational ethic, and, by implication, their statism, and their unwillingness to even consider the possibility that the concept of property might in fact be an ineradicably normative concept, which could provide the conceptual basis for a systematic reintegration of value-free economics and normative ethics. 
There was little to be found in modern contemporary political philosophy that Rothbard could lean on in support of such a contention. Owing to the dominance of the positivistic creed, ethics and political philosophy had long disappeared as a science, or else degenerated into an analysis of the semantics of normative concepts and discourse. And when political philosophy finally made a comeback in the early 1970s, in the wake of John Rawls and his theory of justice, the recognition of scarcity as a fundamental human condition, and of private property and private property rights as a device for coordinating the actions of individuals constrained by scarcity, was conspicuously absent. Neither property nor scarcity appeared in Rawls' elaborate index, for instance, while equality had several dozen entries. In fact, Rawls, to whom the philosophy profession has in the meantime accorded the rank of the premier ethicist of our age, was the prime example of someone completely uninterested in what a human ethic must accomplish. That is, to answer the question of what I am permitted to do right now and here, given that I cannot not act as long as I am alive and awake, and the means or goods which I must employ in order to do so are always scarce, such that there may be interpersonal conflicts regarding their use. Instead of answering this question, Rawls addressed an altogether different one. What rules would be agreed upon as just or fair by parties situated behind a veil of ignorance? Obviously, the answer to this question depends crucially on the description of the original position of parties behind a veil of ignorance. How, then, was this situation defined? According to Rawls, behind the veil of ignorance, no one knows his place in society, his class position, or social status nor does he know his fortune in the distribution of natural assets and abilities, his intelligence and strength, and the like. It is taken for granted, however, that they know the general facts about human society. They understand political affairs and the principles of economic theory. They know the basis of social organization and the laws of human psychology. While one would think that scarcity ranks among the general facts of society and economic theory, Rawls' parties, who supposedly knew about scarcity, were themselves strangely unaffected by this condition. In Rawls' construction of the original position, there was no recognition of the fact that scarcity must be assumed to exist even here. Even in deliberating behind a veil of ignorance, one must still make use of scarce means, at least one's physical body and its standing room, that is, labor and land. Even before beginning any ethical deliberation, then, in order to make them possible, private or exclusive property in bodies, and a principle regarding the private or exclusive appropriation of standing room, must already be presupposed. In distinct contrast to this general fact of human nature, Rawls' moral parties were unconstrained by scarcities of any kind, and hence did not qualify as actual humans, but as free-floating wraiths or disembodied somnambulists. Such beings, Rawls concluded, cannot but acknowledge as the first principle of justice one requiring an equal distribution of all resources. 
Indeed, this principle is so obvious that we would expect it to occur to anyone immediately. True, for if it is assumed that moral parties are not human actors, but disembodied entities, the notion of private property must indeed appear strange. As Rawls admitted with captivating frankness, he had simply defined the original position so that we get the desired result. Rawls' imaginary parties had no resemblance whatsoever with human beings, but were epistemological somnambulists. Accordingly, his socialist-egalitarian theory of justice does not qualify as a human ethic, but something else entirely. If anything useful could be found in Rawls in particular, and contemporary political philosophy in general, it was only the continued recognition of the age-old universalization principle contained in the so-called Golden Rule, as well as in the Kantian Categorical Imperative, that all rules aspiring to the rank of just rules must be general rules, applicable and valid for everyone without exception. Rothbard sought and found support for his contention regarding the possibility of a rational ethic and the reintegration of ethics and economics, based on the notion of private property, in the works of the late scholastics and, in their footsteps, such modern natural rights theorists as Grotius, Pufendorf, and Locke. Building upon their work, in The Ethics of Liberty, Rothbard gives the following answer to the question of what I am justified doing here and now. Every person owns his own physical body, as well as all nature-given goods which he puts to use with the help of his body before anyone else does. This ownership implies his right to employ these resources as one sees fit so long as one does not thereby uninvitedly change the physical integrity of another's property, or delimit another's control over it without his consent. In particular, once a good has been first appropriated or homesteaded by mixing one's labor with it, Locke's phrase, then ownership of it can only be acquired by means of a voluntary contractual transfer of its property title from a previous to a later owner. These rights are absolute. Any infringement on them is subject to lawful prosecution by the victim of this infringement, or his agent, and is actionable in accordance with the principles of strict liability and the proportionality of punishment. Taking his cues from the very same sources, Rothbard then offered this ultimate proof for these rules as just rules. If a person, A, were not the owner of his physical body, and all goods originally appropriated, produced, or voluntarily acquired by him, there would only exist two alternatives. Either another person, B, must then be regarded as the owner of A, and the goods appropriated, produced, or contractually acquired by A, or both parties, a and B must be regarded as equal co-owners of both bodies and goods. In the first case, A would be B's slave and subject to exploitation. B would own A and the goods originally appropriated, produced, or acquired by A, but A would not own B and the goods homesteaded, produced, or acquired by B. With this rule, two distinct classes of people would be created. Exploiters, B, 
and exploited, A, to whom different law would apply. Hence this rule fails the universalization test, and is from the outset disqualified as even a potential human ethic. For in order to be able to claim a rule to be a law, just, it is necessary that such a rule be universally, equally, valid for everyone. In the second case of universal co-ownership, the requirement of equal rights for everyone is obviously fulfilled. Yet this alternative suffers from another fatal flaw, for each activity of a person requires the employment of scarce goods, at least his body and its standing room. Yet if all goods were the collective property of everyone, then no one at any time and in any place could ever do anything with anything unless he had every other co-owner's prior permission to do what he wanted to do. And how can one give such a permission if one is not even the sole owner of one's very own body and vocal cords? If one were to follow the rule of total collective ownership, mankind would die out instantly. Whatever this is, it is not a human ethic either. Thus one is left with the initial principles of self-ownership and first-use, first-own, that is, original appropriation, homesteading. They pass the universalization test, they hold for everyone equally, and they can at the same time assure the survival of mankind. They and only they are therefore non-hypothetically or absolutely true ethical rules and human rights. Rothbard did not claim that these fundamental principles of just conduct or proper action were new or his own discovery, of course. Equipped with near-encyclopedic knowledge ranging over the entire field of the sciences of man, he knew that at least as far as the social sciences are concerned, there is little new under the sun. In the fields of ethics and economics in particular, which form the cornerstones of the Rothbardian system, and which are concerned with non-hypothetical truths, it must be expected that most of our knowledge consists of old, long-ago discovered insights. Newly discovered non-hypothetical truths, even if not impossible, should be expected to be rare intellectual events, and the newer they are, the more suspect they are. It must be expected that most non-hypothetical truths already have been discovered and learned long ago, and merely need to be rediscovered and relearned by every successive generation. And it also should be expected that scientific progress in ethics and economics, as in other disciplines concerned with non-hypothetical propositions and relations, such as philosophy, logic, and mathematics, will usually be extremely slow and painstaking. The danger is not that a new generation of intellectuals cannot add anything new or better to the stock of knowledge inherited from the past, but rather that it will not or only incompletely relearn whatever knowledge already exists, and will fall into old errors instead. Accordingly, Rothbard saw himself in the role of a political philosopher as well as an economist, essentially as a preserver and defender of old inherited truths, and his claim to originality, like that of Mises, was one of utmost modesty. 
Like Mises, his achievement was to hold on to and restate long-ago established insights, and repair a few errors within a fundamentally complete intellectual edifice. Yet this, as Rothbard knew well, was in fact the rarest and highest possible intellectual achievement. For, as Mises once remarked about economics, which holds equally true for ethics, there never lived at the same time more than a score of men whose work contributed anything essential to economics. Rothbard was one of those rare individuals who did contribute to ethics as well as economics. This is illustrated in The Ethics of Liberty. All elements and principles, every concept, analytical tool, and logical procedure of Rothbard's private property ethic are admittedly old and familiar. Even primitives and children intuitively understand the moral validity of the principle of self-ownership and original appropriation. And indeed, the list of Rothbard's acknowledged intellectual predecessors goes back to antiquity. Yet it is difficult to find anyone who has stated a theory with greater ease and clarity than Rothbard. More importantly, due to the sharpened methodological awareness derived from his intimate familiarity with the praxeological, axiomatic, deductive method, Rothbard was able to provide more rigorous proof of the moral intuitions of self-ownership and original appropriation as ultimate ethical principles or axioms, and develop a more systematic, comprehensive, and consistent ethical doctrine or law code than anyone before him. Hence, the ethics of liberty represents a close realization of the age-old desideratum of rationalist philosophy, of providing mankind with an ethic which, as Hugo Grotius demanded more than three hundred years ago, even the will of an omnipotent being cannot change or abrogate, and which would maintain its objective validity even if we should assume, per impossibile, that there is no God, or that he does not care for human affairs. When the Ethics of Liberty appeared in 1982, it initially attracted only a little attention in academia. Two factors were responsible for this neglect. First, there were the anarchistic implications of Rothbard's theory, and his argument that the institution of government, the state, is incompatible with the fundamental principles of justice. As defined by Rothbard, a state is an organization which possesses either or both, in actual fact almost always both, of the following characteristics. A. It acquires its revenue by physical coercion, taxation, and B. It achieves a compulsory monopoly of force and of ultimate decision-making power over a given territorial area. Both of these essential activities of the state necessarily constitute criminal aggression and depredation of the just rights of private property of its subjects, including self-ownership. For the first constitutes and establishes theft on a grand scale, while the second prohibits the free competition of defense and decision-making agencies within a given territorial area prohibiting the voluntary purchase and sale of defense and judicial services. Without justice, Rothbard concluded, as St. Augustine had before him, the state was nothing but a band of robbers. 
Rothbard's anarchism was not the sort of anarchism that his teacher and mentor Mises had rejected as hopelessly naive, of course. The anarchists, Mises had written, contend that a social order in which nobody enjoys privileges at the expense of his fellow citizens could exist without any compulsion and coercion for the prevention of action detrimental to society. The anarchists overlook the undeniable fact that some people are either too narrow-minded or too weak to adjust themselves spontaneously to the conditions of social life. An anarchistic society would be exposed to the mercy of every individual. Society cannot exist if the majority is not ready to hinder, by the application or threat of violent action, minorities from destroying the social order. Indeed, Rothbard wholeheartedly agreed with Mises that without resort to compulsion, the existence of society would be endangered and that behind the rules of conduct whose observance is necessary to assure peaceful human cooperation must stand the threat of force, if the whole edifice of society is not to be continually at the mercy of any one of its members. One must be in a position to compel a person who will not respect the lives, health, personal freedom, or private property of others to acquiesce in the rules of life in society. Inspired in particular by the 19th-century American anarchist political theorists Lysander Spooner and Benjamin Tucker, and the Belgian economist Gustave de Molinari, from the outset Rothbard's anarchism took it for granted that there will always be murderers, thieves, thugs, con artists, etc., and that life in society would be impossible if they were not punished by physical force. As a reflection of this fundamental realism, anti-utopianism, of his private property anarchism, Rothbard, unlike most contemporary political philosophers, accorded central importance to the subject of punishment. For him, private property and the right to physical defense were inseparable. No one can be said to be the owner of something if he is not permitted to defend his property by physical violence against possible invaders and invasions. Would, Rothbard asked, somebody be allowed to take the law into his own hands? Would the victim or a friend of the victim be allowed to exact justice personally on the criminal? And he answered, of course, yes, since all rights of punishment derive from the victim's right of self-defense. Hence the question is not whether or not evil and aggression exist, but how to deal with its existence justly and efficiently, and it is only in the answer to this question that Rothbard reaches conclusions which qualify him as an anarchist. The classical liberal answer from the American Declaration of Independence to Mises was to assign the indispensable task of protecting life, liberty, and property to government as its sole function. Rothbard rejected this conclusion as a non-sequitur, if government was defined by its power to tax and ultimate decision-making, territorial monopoly of jurisdiction. Private property ownership, as the result of acts of original appropriation, production, or exchange from prior to later owner, implies the owner's right to exclusive jurisdiction regarding his property 
In fact, it is the very purpose of private property to establish physically separate domains of exclusive jurisdiction, so as to avoid possible conflicts concerning the use of scarce resources. No private property owner can possibly surrender his right to ultimate jurisdiction over and physical defense of his property to someone else, unless he sold or otherwise transferred his property, in which case someone else would have exclusive jurisdiction over it. That is, so long as something has not been abandoned, its owner must be presumed to retain these rights. As far as his relations to others are concerned, every property owner may further partake of the advantages of the division of labor and seek better and improved protection of his unalterable rights through cooperation with other owners and their property. Every property owner may buy from, sell to, or otherwise contract with anyone else concerning supplemental property protection and security products and services. Yet every property owner may also at any time unilaterally discontinue any such cooperation with others or change his respective affiliations. Hence, in order to satisfy the demand for protection and security among private property owners, it is permissible and possible that there will be specialized firms or agencies providing protection, insurance, and arbitration services for a fee to voluntarily buying or not buying clients. It is impermissible, however, for any such firm or agency to compel anyone to come exclusively to it for protection or to bar any other agency from likewise offering protection services. That is, no protection agency may be funded by taxes or exempted from competition. Free entry. In distinct contrast, a territorial monopoly of protection and jurisdiction, a state, rests from the outset on an impermissible act of expropriation, and it provides the monopolist and his agents with a license to further expropriation, taxation. It implies that every property owner is prohibited from discontinuing his cooperation with his supposed protector, and that no one except the monopolist may exercise ultimate jurisdiction over his own property. Rather, everyone except the monopolist has lost his right to physical protection and defense against possible invasion by the state and is thus rendered defenseless vis-à-vis -vis the actions of his own alleged protector. Consequently, the price of justice and protection will continually rise, and the quality of justice and protection will continually fall. A tax-funded protection agency is a contradiction in terms, an invasive protector, and will, if permitted, lead to increasingly more taxes and ever less protection. Likewise, the existence of a judicial monopoly will lead to a steady deterioration of justice. For if no one can appeal for justice except to the state and its courts and judges, justice will be constantly perverted in favor of the state, until the idea of immutable laws of human conduct ultimately disappears, and is replaced with the idea of law as positive state-made legislation. Based on this analysis, Rothbard considered the classical liberal solution to the fundamental human problem of protection, 
of a minimal or night watchman state, or an otherwise constitutionally limited government, as a hopelessly confused and naive idea. Every minimal state has the inherent tendency to become a maximal state, for once an agency is permitted to collect any taxes, however small and for whatever purpose, it will naturally tend to employ its current tax revenue for the collection of ever more future taxes, for the same and or other purposes. Similarly, once an agency possesses any judiciary monopoly, it will naturally tend to employ this privileged position for the further expansion of its range of jurisdiction. Constitutions, after all, are state constitutions, and whatever limitations they may contain, what is or is not constitutional, is determined by state courts and judges. Hence there is no other possible way of limiting state power except by eliminating the state altogether, and, in accordance with justice and economics, establishing a free market in protection and security services. Naturally, Rothbard's anarchism appeared threatening to all statists, and his right-wing, that is, private property anarchism in particular, could not but offend socialists of all stripes. However, his anarchistic conclusions were not sufficient to explain the neglect of the ethics of liberty by academia. Rothbard's first handicap was compounded by an even weightier one. Not only had he come to unorthodox conclusions, worse, he had reached them by pre-modern intellectual means. Instead of suggesting, hypothesizing, pondering, or puzzling, Rothbard had offered axiomatic deductive arguments and proofs. In the age of democratic egalitarianism and ethical relativism, this constituted the ultimate academic sin, intellectual absolutism, extremism, and intolerance. The importance of this second methodological factor can be illustrated by contrasting the reception accorded to Rothbard's The Ethics of Liberty on the one hand, and Robert Nozick's Anarchy, State, and Utopia on the other. Nozick's book appeared in 1974, three years after the publication of Rawls' A Theory of Justice. Almost overnight, Nozick was internationally famous, and to this day, in the field of political philosophy, anarchy, state, and utopia ranks probably second only to Rawls' book in terms of academic recognition. Yet, while Rawls was a socialist, Nozick was a libertarian. In fact, Nozick was heavily influenced by Rothbard. He had read Rothbard's earlier Man, Economy, and State, Power and Market, and For a New Liberty, and in the acknowledgments to his book, he noted that it was a long conversation about six years ago with Murray Rothbard that stimulated my interest in individualist anarchist theory. To be sure, the conclusions arrived at by Nozick were less radical than those proposed by Rothbard. Rather than reaching anarchistic conclusions, Nozick's main conclusions about the state are that the minimal state, limited to the narrow functions of protection against force, theft, fraud, enforcement of contracts, and so on, is justified, that any more extensive state will violate persons' rights not to be forced to do certain things, and is unjustified, and that the minimal state is inspiring as well as right. 
Nonetheless, in claiming that the state may not use its coercive apparatus for the purpose of getting some citizens to aid others, or in order to prohibit activities to people for their own good or protection, even Nozick's conclusions placed him far outside the political-philosophical mainstream. Why, then, in distinct contrast to the long-lasting neglect of Rothbard's libertarian The Ethics of Liberty, the stupendous academic success of Nozick's libertarian Anarchy, State, and Utopia? The answer is method and style. Rothbard was above all a systematic thinker. He set out from the most elementary human situation and problem, Crusoe ethics, and then proceeded painstakingly justifying and proving each step and argument along the way to increasingly more complex and complicated situations and problems. Moreover, his prose was characterized by unrivaled clarity. In distinct contrast, Nozick was a modern, unsystematic, associationist or even impressionistic thinker, and his prose was difficult and unclear. Nozick was explicit about his own method. His writing, he stated, was in the mode of much contemporary philosophical work in epistemology and metaphysics. There are elaborate arguments, claims rebutted by unlikely counterexamples, surprising theses, puzzles, abstract structural conditions, challenges to find another theory which fits a specified range of cases, startling conclusions, and so on. One view about how to write a philosophy book holds that an author should think through all of the details of the view he presents and its problems, polishing and refining his view to present to the world a finished, complete, and elegant whole. This is not my view. At any rate, I believe that there also is a place and a function in our ongoing intellectual life for a less complete work containing unfinished presentations, conjectures, open questions and problems, leads, side connections, as well as a main line of argument. There is room for words on subjects other than last words. Methodologically, then, Nozick and Rothbard were poles apart. But why would Nozick's unsystematic ethical explorations find so much more resonance in academia than Rothbard's systematic ethical treatise, especially when their conclusions appeared to be largely congruent? Nozick touched upon the answer when he expressed the hope that his method makes for intellectual interest and excitement. But this was, at best, half of the answer. For Rothbard's The Ethics of Liberty, too, was an eminently interesting and exciting book, full of examples, cases, and scenarios from the full range of everyday experiences to extreme lifeboat situations, spiced with many surprising conclusions, and above all, solutions, instead of merely suggestions to problems and puzzles. Nozick's method rather made for interest and excitement of a particular kind. Rothbard's The Ethics of Liberty consisted essentially of one successively and systematically drawn-out and elaborated argument, and thus required the long, sustained attention of its reader. However, a reader of Rothbard's book could possibly get so excited that he would not want to put it down until he had finished it. The excitement caused by anarchy, state, and utopia was of a very different kind. 
The book was a series of dozens of disparate or loosely jointed arguments, conjectures, puzzles, counterexamples, experiments, paradoxes, surprising turns, startling twists, intellectual flashes, and philosophical razzle-dazzle, and thus required only short and intermittent attention of its reader. At the same time, few, if any, readers of Nozick's book likely will have felt the urge to read it straight through. Instead, reading Nozick was characteristically done unsystematically and intermittently, in bits and pieces. The excitement stirred by Nozick was intense, short, and fleeting, and the success of anarchy, state, and utopia was due to the fact that at all times, and especially under democratic conditions, there are far more high-time-preference intellectuals, intellectual thrill-seekers, than patient and disciplined thinkers. In his subsequent book, Philosophical Explanations, Nozick further confirmed this judgment. There he wrote, I too seek an unreadable book, urgent thoughts to grapple with in agitation and excitement, revelations to be transformed by or to transform, a book incapable of being read straight through, a book even to bring reading to stop. I have not found that book or attempted it. Still, I wrote and thought in awareness of it, in the hope that this book would bask in its light. At no point is the reader forced to accept anything. He moves along gently, exploring his own and the author's thoughts. He explores together with the author, moving only where he is ready to. Then he stops. Perhaps at a later time, mulling it over, or in a second reading, he will move further. I place no extreme obligation of attentiveness on my readers. I hope instead for those who read as I do, seeking what they can learn from, make use of, transform for their own purposes. This book puts forward its explanations in a very tentative spirit. Not only do I not ask you to believe they are correct, I do not think it important for me to believe them correct, either. Still, I do believe and hope you will find it so that these proposed explanations are illuminating and worth considering, that they are worth surpassing, also that the process of seeking and elaborating explanations, being open to new possibilities, the new wanderings and wanderings, the free exploration, is itself a delight. Can any pleasure compare to that of a new idea, a new question? There is sexual experience, of course, not dissimilar, with its own playfulness and possibilities, its focused freedom, its depth, its sharp pleasures, and its gentle ones, its ecstasies. What is the mind's excitement and sensuality? What is orgasm? Whatever, it unfortunately will frighten and offend the Puritans of the mind. Do the two Puritanisms share a common root? Even as it expands others and brings them joy. Despite his politically incorrect conclusions, Nozick's libertarianism was deemed respectable by the academic masses and elicited countless comments and replies because it was methodologically non-committal. That is, Nozick did not claim that his libertarian conclusions proved anything. Even though one would think that ethics is and must be an eminently practical intellectual subject, Nozick did not claim that his ethical explorations had any practical implications. 
They were meant to be nothing more than fascinating, entertaining, or suggestive intellectual play. As such, libertarianism posed no threat to the predominantly social-democratic intellectual class. On account of his unsystematic method, his philosophical pluralism, Nozick was tolerant vis-à-vis the intellectual establishment, his anti-establishment conclusions notwithstanding. He did not insist that his libertarian conclusions were correct, and, for instance, socialist conclusions were false, and accordingly demand their instant practical implementation, that is, the immediate abolition of the social democratic welfare state, including all of public tax-funded education and research. Rather, Nozick's libertarianism was, and claimed to be, no more than just an interesting thought. He did not mean to do any real harm to the ideas of his socialist opponents. He only wanted to throw an interesting idea into the democratic, open-ended intellectual debate, while everything real, tangible, and physical could remain unchanged, and everyone could go on with his life and thoughts as before. Following the publication of Anarchy, State, and Utopia, Nozick took even further steps to establish his reputation as tolerant. He never replied to the countless comments and criticisms of his book, including Rothbard's, which forms chapter 29 of this book. This confirmed that he took his non-committal method seriously, for why, indeed, should anyone reply to his critics if he were not committed to the correctness of his own views in the first place? Moreover, in his subsequent book, Philosophical Explanations, Nozick removed all remaining doubts as to his supposed non-extremist tolerance. He went further than merely restating his commitment to the methodological non-committal. So don't look here for a knockdown argument that there is something wrong with knockdown arguments, for the knockdown argument to end all knockdown arguing. It will not do to argue you into the conclusion, even in order to reduce the total amount of presentation of argument. Nor may I hint that I possess the knockdown argument, yet will not present it. Further, in a truly startling twist, Nozick went on to say that the use of knockdown arguments even constituted coercion, and was hence morally offensive. The terminology of philosophical art is coercive. Arguments are powerful, and best when they are knocked down. Arguments force you to a conclusion. If you believe the premises, you have to or must believe the conclusion. Some arguments do not carry much punch, and so forth. A philosophical argument is an attempt to get someone to believe something, whether he wants to believe it or not. A successful philosophical argument, a strong argument, forces someone to a belief. Why are philosophers intent on forcing others to believe things? Is that a nice way to behave toward someone? I think we cannot improve people that way. Philosophical argument, trying to get someone to believe something whether he wants to believe it or not, is not, I have held, a nice way to behave toward someone. Also, it does not fit the original motivation for studying or entering philosophy. That motivation is puzzlement, curiosity, a desire to understand, not a desire to produce uniformity of belief. Most people do not want to become thought police. 
the philosophical goal of explanation rather than proof, not only is morally better, it is more in accord with one's philosophical motivation. Also, it changes how one proceeds philosophically. At the macro level, it leads away from constructing the philosophical tower. At the micro level, it alters which philosophical moves are legitimate at various points. With this surprising redefinition of systematic axiomatic deductive reasoning as coercion, Nozick had pulled the last tooth from his libertarianism. If even the attempt of proving or demonstrating the ethical impermissibility and injustice of democratic socialism constituted bad behavior, libertarianism had been essentially disarmed and the existing order and its academic bodyguards rendered intellectually invincible. How could one not be nice to someone as nice as Nozick? It is no wonder that the anti-libertarian intellectual establishment took kindly to a libertarianism as gentle and kind as his, and elevated Nozick to the rank of the premier philosopher of libertarianism. In accordance with this non-methodical mindset, Nozick's philosophical interests continued to drift from one subject to another. Already in his philosophical explanations he had confessed, I have found, and not only in sequence, many different philosophies alluring and appealing, cogent and impressive, tempting and wonderful. Libertarianism, ethics, carried no particular or even unique weight within Nozick's philosophy. It was one exciting subject among innumerous others, to be taken up for exploration or dropped as one's curiosity demanded. It was not entirely surprising, then, when, only a few years after the publication of the very book that had made him famous, it became increasingly obvious that Nozick had all but abandoned even his kind and gentle libertarianism. And when he at last acknowledged openly in The Examined Life, a book of neo-Buddhist musings on the meaning of life, that he was no longer a libertarian and had converted to communitarian social democracy, he still felt under no obligation to give reasons for his change of mind and explain why his previous ethical views had been false. Interestingly, this development seems to have had little effect on the status of anarchy, state, and utopia as prime libertarian philosophizing. The interest stimulated and the influence exerted by Rothbard's libertarianism and the ethics of liberty was significantly different. Slow, intensively growing and lasting, and reaching and affecting academia from outside, rather than being picked up by it and from the ivory tower communicated down to the non-academic public. Rothbard, as every reader of the following treatise will quickly recognize, was the prototype of a coercive philosopher in the startling Nozickian definition of coercion. He demanded and presented proofs and exact and complete answers, rather than tentative explanations, conjectures, and open questions. Regarding anarchy, state, and utopia, Nozick had written that some may feel that the truth about ethics and political philosophy is too serious and important to be obtained by such flashy tools. This was certainly Rothbard's conviction. Because man cannot not act as long as he is alive, and he must use scarce means to do so, 
he must also permanently choose between right and wrong conduct. The fundamental question of ethics, what am I here and now rightfully allowed to do and what not, is thus the most permanent, important, and pressing intellectual concern confronting man. Whenever and wherever one acts, an actor must be able to determine and distinguish unambiguously and instantly right from wrong. Thus any ethic worth its salt must, praxeologically, be a coercive one, because only proofs and knock-down arguments can provide such definite answers as are necessary. Man cannot temporarily suspend acting. Hence, tentative conjectures and open questions simply are not up to the task of a human ethic. Rothbard's coercive philosophizing, his insistence that ethics must be an axiomatic deductive system, an ethic more geometrico, was nothing new or unusual, of course. As already noted, Rothbard shared this view concerning the nature of ethics with the entire tradition of rationalist philosophy. His had been the dominant view of Christian rationalism and of the Enlightenment. Nor did Rothbard claim infallibility regarding his ethics. In accordance with the tradition of rationalist philosophy, he merely insisted that axiomatic deductive arguments can be attacked, and possibly refuted, exclusively by other arguments of the same logical status, just as one would insist, without thereby claiming infallibility for logicians and mathematicians, that logical or mathematical proofs can be attacked only by other logical or mathematical arguments. In the age of democratic socialism, however, such old-fashioned claims, certainly if made in conjunction with ethics, and especially if this ethic turned out to be a libertarian one, were generally rejected and dismissed out of hand by academia. Unlike the modern Nozick, Rothbard was convinced that he had proved libertarianism, private property anarchism, to be morally justified and correct, and that all statists and socialists were plain wrong. Accordingly, he advocated immediate and ongoing action. Libertarianism, wrote Rothbard, is a philosophy seeking a policy. The libertarian must be possessed of a passion for justice, an emotion derived from and channeled by his rational insight into what natural justice requires. Justice, not the weak reed of mere utility, must be the motivating force if liberty is to be attained. And this means that the libertarian must be an abolitionist, that is, he must wish to achieve the goal of liberty as rapidly as possible. He should be an abolitionist who would, if he could, abolish instantaneously all invasions of liberty. To the tax-subsidized intellectual class, and especially the academic establishment, Rothbard could not but appear to be an extremist, best to be ignored and excluded from mainstream academic discourse. An interesting parallel exists between the treatment of Rothbard versus Nozick by the philosophy establishment and that of Mises versus Hayek by the economics establishment. Even if Mises' conclusions were significantly more radical than Hayek's, both came to largely similar, politically incorrect free market conclusions. 
Based on the similarity of their conclusions, both Mises and Hayek were considered Austrian school economists. Yet the method by which they derived their conclusions fundamentally differed. Mises was a philosophical rationalist, systematic, rigorous, proving and demonstrating, and lucid as a writer. In comparison, Hayek was a philosophical skeptic, unsystematic, methodologically eclectic, tentative, and probing, and a less than lucid writer. Consequently, Hayek's treatment by academia was significantly more friendly than that accorded to Mises. But also, it was the pre-modern extremist Austrian Mises, not the modern moderate Austrian Hayek, whose influence proved more intense and enduring, and whose work led to the formation of an ideological movement. Rothbard's unkind and intolerant libertarianism took first hold among the non-academic public, among professionals, businessmen, and educated laymen of all backgrounds. Whereas Nozick's gentle libertarianism never penetrated outside academia, Rothbard and his extremist libertarianism became the fountainhead and theoretical hard core of an ideological movement. Rothbard became the creator of modern American libertarianism, the radical offspring of classical liberalism, which in the course of some three decades has grown from a handful of proponents into a genuine political and intellectual movement. Naturally, in the course of this development and transformation, Rothbard and his libertarianism did not remain unchallenged or undisputed, and there were ups and downs in Rothbard's institutional career, of institutional alignments and realignments. Yet until his death, Rothbard remained without doubt the single most important and respected moral authority within the entire libertarian movement and his rationalist, axiomatic, deductive, praxeological, or Austrian libertarianism provides to this day the intellectual benchmark in reference to which everyone and everything else in libertarianism is defined and positioned. What proved to be unacceptable to academia, Rothbard's pre-modern method of axiomatic, deductive reasoning and system building, still found resonance among many people, even if modern academics, freed of the obligation of having to provide a practical justification for their activities, can engage in unsystematic and open-ended conversation, real men, and especially successful men, have to act and think systematically and methodically, and such planning and future-oriented low-time-preference people also will not likely be satisfied with anything but systematic and methodical answers, to their own practical moral concerns. Nor did Rothbard's explicit political radicalism constitute a serious acceptance problem among such successful and independently-minded men. Even if increasingly marginalized, significant remnants of the original American tradition of radical libertarianism still existed among the educated public. In fact, the American Revolution had been largely inspired by libertarian, radical Lockean ideas, and the Declaration of Independence, and in particular its author, Thomas Jefferson, reflected and expressed the same rationalist spirit of the Enlightenment, and the even older natural law tradition that also characterized Rothbard and his political philosophy. We hold these truths to be self-evident 
that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that to secure these rights governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed, that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it, and to institute new government, laying its foundation on such principles and organizing its powers in such form as to them shall seem most likely to effect their safety and happiness. Prudence, indeed, will dictate that governments long established should not be changed for light and transient causes, and accordingly all experience has shown that mankind are more disposed to suffer, while evils are sufferable, than to right themselves by abolishing the forms to which they are accustomed. But when a long train of abuses and usurpations, pursuing invariably the same object, evinces a design to reduce them under absolute despotism, it is their right, it is their duty, to throw off such government, and to provide new guards for their future security. Rothbard, apart from his theoretical work as an economist and a political philosopher, was also an eminent historian. In his four-volume History of Colonial America, Conceived in Liberty, he gives a detailed narrative account of the predominance of libertarian thought in early America, and in many essays on critical episodes in U.S. history, he notes again and again the continuing importance of the original libertarian American spirit. To be sure, the original radical libertarian impetus, which had led to the American Revolution and the Declaration of Independence, had subsequently suffered one setback after another with the victory of the Federalists over the Anti-Federalists, and the transition from the original Confederacy to the Union, with the de facto abolition of the Union Constitution by Abraham Lincoln in the course and as the result of the destruction of the secessionist Southern Confederacy, with the onset of progressivism, with Franklin D. Roosevelt's New Deal, with Lyndon B. Johnson's Great Society, and so on, with Presidents Nixon, Carter, Reagan, Bush, and Clinton. Even if again and again defeated, however, the tradition of radical individualist libertarianism could not be eradicated from the American public consciousness. In harking back explicitly to Jefferson and the Jeffersonian tradition, Rothbard tapped into a still widespread, if dormant, pool of activists and lay intellectuals, and owing to the clarity, the logical rigor, the systematic and comprehensive character, and the passion of his writings, he succeeded almost single-handedly in reinvigorating, radicalizing, and channeling their sentiments into a unified political-philosophical movement. It was only in light of external events, the emergence and advancement of a libertarian movement, and the central role played by Rothbard in this movement, and with a considerable delay, that Rothbard and the ethics of liberty no longer could be overlooked by academia. Not surprisingly, even then, the general reaction was cool. To be sure, there were also a fair and steadily growing number of highly respectful and appreciative academic treatments of Rothbard's political philosophy and around the Journal of Libertarian Studies, an interdisciplinary scholarly review Rothbard had founded in 1977, 
and for which he had served until his death as editor, he had assembled a formidable number of disciples. But in general, the academic reaction to Rothbard and his libertarianism was one of non- or miscomprehension, indignant rejection, or even downright hostility. In part, this was certainly due to Rothbard's unapologetic use of the language of natural rights. This had been the language of the Declaration of Independence. The same natural rights language had been preserved to the present within the Christian, and in particular the Catholic Church, and it also had been adopted by a handful of contemporary philosophers. However, to most contemporary academics, talk of natural rights was, in Jeremy Bentham's words, no more than nonsense on stilts. In fact, and more to the point, natural rights were incompatible with absolute state power, and they did not sit well with either democracy or socialism. Hence, in the course of the transformation of the Western world from an aristocratic or monarchical system to a modern mass democracy within the last one hundred years, natural rights teachings had been successively removed from the officially approved philosophical curriculum and replaced with modern positivistic doctrines. Confronted with a largely unfamiliar language, even many well-intentioned philosophers were simply befuddled or irritated by Rothbard's work. Moreover, Rothbard may even have overstated his own agreement with classical natural rights theory, and not sufficiently emphasized his own distinct contribution of importing and applying the Misesian method of praxeology to ethics and thus unintentionally have aggravated an already existing problem. Typical, and at the same time instructive, were reactions like those of Peter D. McClelland, for instance, in a chapter in a book on economic justice titled The Market Defended, Confusions of the Right. Murray Rothbard, McClelland noted, is one of the acknowledged intellectual leaders among contemporary libertarians a group which, by American standards, is located on the far right. His views are interesting for purposes of this discussion for two reasons. First, he provides a carefully reasoned defense of the income distribution generated by the market that makes no reference to the merits of recipients. Secondly, that defense proceeds from a handful of premises to a conclusion presumed to be universally applicable in any situation where the justice of the economic system is at stake. As such, it provides a classic example of how not to reason about economic justice. To put the second point a second way, Rothbard's approach flies in the face of key points made in earlier chapters that to problems of economic justice we bring a multitude of values to be honored. These values can and do conflict. When conflicts arise, trade-offs among competing values must be made. General rules for making such trade-offs are difficult to formulate, and thus judgments about economic justice are difficult to make independent of the context of the situation in which such judgments must be made. Or, more simply put, in reaching decisions about economic justice in a concrete situation, we do not generally rely upon universal rules to determine the right or just choice. In all, McClellan finds that Rothbard's arguments are somewhat strange, Aquinas' viewpoint minus the theology, and he then summarily dismisses them on the ground that, 
For most Americans, many of Rothbard's points are extreme or simplistic or both, and the argument in its entirety is more curious than compelling. The best evidence of that is the negligible importance of the Libertarian Party in American politics. Rothbard's reduction of moral dilemmas to one or few basic principles is itself objectionable, precisely because it is achieved by ignoring much that is important, or at least much that is important to the vast majority of Americans. Several objections and questions arise immediately upon reading this not least of which is the truly strange fact that our author apparently believes that empirical facts, such as that not many people believe P, have any bearing on the question whether or not P is true, valid, or justified. Would he also object to mathematical or logical proofs on the ground that most people are incapable of grasping them? Moreover, granting that when conflicts arise, trade-offs among competing values must be made, the decisive question is, who is to decide what these trade-offs should be? Conflicting values invariably involve incompatible, mutually exclusive views of at least two actors concerning the use of some scarce resources. Obviously, then, not both of these parties can decide what these trade-offs should be. After all, their respective values are incompatible, but only one or the other. But how can one party be selected and not the other, unless one possesses a theory of property? And if one cannot rely upon universal rules to determine the right or just choice, and everything depends on the context of the situation, how then does our critic think it possible for anyone to ever know ex ante, before taking it, whether or not some action qualifies as just? Or does he believe that justice is to be determined only ex post? How can such a theory of justice qualify as a human ethic? All of these concerns may be left aside, however because the ultimate error in McClellan's criticism, and by contrast the unique Rothbardian contribution to ethics, occurs at a logically prior stage, when McClelland claims that Rothbard's reductionist, that is, axiomatic deductive method, flies in the face of the existence of a multitude of values to be honored. McClelland does not explain why this should be so, nor could he have succeeded even if he had tried. First off, surely Rothbard could not have been unaware of the fact of a multitude of conflicting values. Indeed, it is difficult to imagine anyone unaware of this fact. Yet this observation is no more than the starting point of ethics and moral reasoning. If no conflicting values existed, then by definition, all actions would be in perfect harmony with each other. Everyone would always act in such a way as everyone else thought he should act. In this case of a pre-stabilized harmony of all interests, there is no need for an ethic, and none would ever come into existence. The existence of conflicting values thus poses no problem whatsoever for Rothbard's ethic, or any other ethic for that matter. Rather, it is from the outset taken for granted, and ethics is the very response to this universal and eternal human dilemma. Furthermore, if conflicts exist, and if these can be resolved at all, 
then such a solution cannot possibly be found except by means of a reductionist method, that is, the subsumption of specific cases or conflict situations under general and abstract rules or principles. Rothbard's view in this regard is not essentially different from that of most other political and moral philosophers. Ethics, if it is possible at all, must and can never be anything else but reductionist. Assuming for the sake of argument that no disagreement exists up to this point, McClellan's charge can only mean this. Even if one were to follow such a reductionist strategy, it will not yield a single principle or a single set of internally consistent principles covering and resolving all cases of conflict. In other words, even if some disagreements may be resolved by reference to increasingly more general and abstract rules and principles, many other disagreements will remain unresolvable, because, as a matter of empirical fact, even on the level of abstract rules and principles, disagreement persists and inescapably results in inconsistencies and incompatibilities, and leads to moral skepticism of some sort. This line of reasoning is indeed characteristic of a wide-ranging group of political philosophers, including Rawls, who, while they may disagree among themselves on how much conflict can or cannot be resolved in this way, all conceive of ethical principles as the result, outcome, of agreement or contract. It is here that the fundamental error lies, and Rothbard's unique contribution to ethics comes into play. Ethics, the validity of the principle of self-ownership and original appropriation, is demonstrably not dependent and contingent upon agreement or contract, and the universality claim connected with Rothbard's libertarianism is not affected in the slightest by the circumstance that moral discussants may or may not always come to an agreement or contract. Ethics is the logical, praxeological presupposition, in Kantian terminology, die Bedingung der Möglichkeit, rather than the result of agreement or contract. The principles of self-ownership and original appropriation make agreement and contract, including that of not agreeing and contracting, possible. Set in motion and stimulated by the universal experience of conflict, moral discussion and argument can discover, reconstruct, explicate, and formulate the principles of self-ownership and original appropriation. But their validity in no way depends on whether or not this is the case, and if so, whether or not these formulations then find universal assent. Rothbard's distinct contribution to the natural rights tradition is his reconstruction of the principles of self-ownership and original appropriation as the praxeological precondition, Bedingung der Möglichkeit, of argumentation, and his recognition that whatever must be presupposed as valid in order to make argumentation possible in the first place cannot in turn be argumentatively disputed without thereby falling into a practical self-contradiction. As Rothbard explains in an unfortunately brief but centrally important passage of The Ethics of Liberty, 
A proposition rises to the status of an axiom when he who denies it may be shown to be using it in the very course of the supposed refutation. Now any person participating in any sort of discussion, including one on values, is by virtue of so participating alive and affirming life. For if he were really opposed to life, he would have no business in such a discussion. Indeed, he would have no business continuing to be alive. Hence, the supposed opponent of life is really affirming it in the very process of his discussion, and hence the preservation and furtherance of one's life takes on the stature of an incontestable axiom. As an immediate implication of this insight into the status of the principles of self-ownership and original appropriation as ethical axioms, Rothbard rejected as nonsense all notions of animal rights. Animals are incapable of engaging in propositional exchange with humans. Indeed, it is this inability which defines them as non-rational and distinguishes them categorically from men as rational animals. Unable to communicate and without rationality, animals are, by their very nature, incapable of recognizing or possessing any rights. Rothbard noted, There is rough justice in the common quip that we will recognize the rights of animals whenever they petition for them. The fact that animals can obviously not petition for their rights is part of their nature and part of the reason why they are clearly not equivalent to and do not possess the rights of human beings. Rather than rightful moral agents, animals are objects of possible human control and appropriation. Thus Rothbard confirmed the biblical pronouncement that man had been given dominion over every living thing in the sea, on earth, and in the sky. As academia had little to do with Rothbard's success in creating and shaping a political-philosophical mass movement in the first place, its belated, mostly negative reactions did little to change Rothbard's growing status as a public philosopher. To the contrary, the course of historical events, the spectacular collapse of the great socialist experiment in the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe from 1989 to 1991, and the increasingly obvious crisis of the Western welfare states, provided ever more support for fundamental libertarian insights. No one but his teacher, Mises, had given a more accurate account of the economic inefficiencies of socialism and social democracy than Rothbard, and no one had explained more clearly the moral hazards and perversions created by socialism and social democracy. Whereas the events in Eastern Europe and the economic and moral crisis of the Western states, of stagnating or falling real incomes, staggering public debt, imminently bankrupt social security systems, family and social disintegration, rising uncivility, moral degeneration, and crime, were an obvious embarrassment and intellectual debacle for the social democratic academic establishment, they provided dramatic empirical confirmation for Rothbard and his theoretical work. In this situation, libertarianism and Rothbard's influence in particular could only grow and gain prominence. By the mid-1990s, Rothbard's role as the spiritus rector of a steadily growing and increasingly threatening revolutionary libertarian movement 
was even acknowledged by the mainstream media. Thus, following the right-wing Republican revolution during the 1994 congressional elections, the Washington Post identified Rothbard as the central intellectual figure behind this event. In what is probably his last publication, Rothbard took this opportunity to denounce the newly elected Republican House Speaker, Newt Gingrich, as an anti-libertarian, welfare-statist sellout. Nor did the academic rejection make any noticeable impression on Rothbard or the further development of libertarian theory. The Ethics of Liberty had been published at a low point in Rothbard's career. Though one of the founders of the Cato Institute, Rothbard had been forced out by the chief financial backer as too extreme and intransigent. Despite such unfavorable external circumstances, and without any institutional promotion, the book established itself quickly as the single most authoritative and comprehensive work in libertarian theory. Long after the book had gone out of print in the United States, it was being translated into French, Spanish, Italian, and German, further securing its status as an enduring classic of political philosophy. Ironically, 1982 was also the year of the founding of the Ludwig von Mises Institute, of which he served as academic head until his death. Together with a new academic position at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, these would prove to be the years of Rothbard's greatest professional success. After the original publication of The Ethics of Liberty, and until his death in 1995, Rothbard was working on a comprehensive and encompassing history of economic and political thought. Two massive volumes of the unfinished three-volume project were published posthumously in 1995, under the titles Economic Thought Before Adam Smith and Classical Economics. Based on his prior theoretical work, with Austrian free-market economics and libertarian political philosophy providing the conceptual framework, Rothbard in these volumes gave a sweeping narrative account of the history of economic and political-philosophical ideas, from the ancient Greeks to near the end of the 19th century, and the interplay of ideas and economic and political reality. Pure and abstract Austrian and libertarian theory was illustrated with historical examples and illustrations, and at the same time intellectual and political history was presented as a systematically comprehensible subject, methodically and thematically unified and integrated. Rothbard here opened a panoramic view of the entire history of Western civilization, with new vistas and many surprising or even startling reinterpretations and reevaluations. History was unfolded as a permanent struggle between truth and falsehood, and good, justice, and evil, of intellectual and political heroes great and small, and of economic and political breakthroughs and progress, as well as of blunderers and villains, and of errors, perversions, and decline and the civilizational ups and downs of human history were explained as the results of true and false ideas, and the distribution and strength of ideologies in public consciousness. By complementing economic and political theory with history, Rothbard provided the Austro-Libertarian movement with a grand historical perspective, sociological understanding, and strategic vision and thus deepened and broadened libertarianism's popular anchoring and sociological base. 
Besides his main work on the history of economic and political thought, however, Rothbard also returned repeatedly to political theory. In reaction to a growing environmentalist movement and its transformation into an anti-human and pro-animal movement, Rothbard wrote Law, Property Rights, and Air Pollution, further elucidating the concepts of physical invasion, tort, causation, risk, burden of proof, and liability. In response to the rise of nationalism and separatism in the wake of the collapse of the Soviet Empire and U.S. multiculturalism and compulsory non-discrimination, a decade later in an article on Nations by Consent, Decomposing the Nation-State, he further elaborated on the libertarian answers to the questions of nations, borders, immigration, separation, and secession. In the preface to the French edition of The Ethics of Liberty, he summarily reviewed several current contributions to libertarian theory, apart from Nozick's utilitarian and contractarian libertarianisms and natural rights minarchisms, and rejected all of them as ultimately confused or inconsistent. In the monthly Free Market, published by the Mises Institute, he provided political and economic analysis of current events, beginning in 1982 and continuing until 1995. In addition, in 1989 he founded the monthly Rothbard-Rockwell Report, which served as the main outlet of Rothbard's political, sociological, cultural, and religious commentary. He contributed dozens of articles in which he applied libertarian principles to the full range of human events and experiences, from war and criminal punishment to the appropriation of airspace and waves, blackmail, affirmative action, and adoption, etc., and thus constantly illustrated and reiterated the universal applicability and versatility of libertarian theory. None of these later writings, however, brought any systematic changes as compared to the ethics of liberty, whether on principles or remote conclusions. Different and new problem aspects were analyzed and emphasized, but the essentials were already contained in his earlier treatise. In distinct contrast to Nozick, Rothbard did not change his mind on essential questions. Indeed, looking back over his entire career, it can be said that from the late 1950s, when he had first arrived at what would later become the Rothbardian system, until the end of his life, Rothbard did not waver on fundamental matters of economic or political theory. Yet, owing to his long and intensive work in the history of economic and political thought, a different thematic emphasis became apparent in his later writings most noticeably in the several hundred articles contributed during the last years of his life. Apart from economic and political concerns, Rothbard increasingly focused his attention on and stressed the importance of culture as a sociological prerequisite of libertarianism. Libertarianism as developed in the ethics of liberty was no more and no less than a political philosophy. It provided an answer to the question of which actions are lawful, and hence may not be legitimately threatened with physical violence, and which actions are unlawful, and may be so punished. It did not say anything with respect to the further question whether or not all lawful actions should be equally tolerated, or possibly punished by means other than, and below the threshold of, a threat of physical violence 
such as public disapprobation, ostracism, exclusion, and expulsion. Even given its explicitly limited scope, the ethics of liberty had a distinctly old-fashioned flavor, and revealed libertarianism as a fundamentally conservative doctrine. The most obvious indicator of this was the already noted emphasis placed on punishment as the necessary complement to property. More specifically, Rothbard presented a rigorous modern defense of the traditional proportionality principle of punishment, as contained in the Lex Talionis, of an eye for an eye, or rather, as he would correctively explain, two eyes for an eye. He rejected the deterrence and rehabilitation theories of punishment as incompatible with private property rights, and championed instead the idea of victims' rights and of restitution, compensation, and or retribution as essential to justice. He argued in favor of such old-fashioned institutions as compulsory labor and indentured servitude for convicted criminals and for debtors' prisons and his analyses of causation and liability, burden of proof, and proper assumption of risk invariably displayed a basic and staunch moral conservatism of strict individual responsibility and accountability. This and Rothbard's own lifelong cultural conservatism notwithstanding, however, from its beginnings in the late 1960s and the founding of a libertarian party in 1971, the libertarian movement had great appeal to many of the countercultural left that had then grown up in the United States in opposition to the war in Vietnam. Did not the illegitimacy of the state and the non-aggression axiom imply that everyone was at liberty to choose his very own non-aggressive lifestyle, no matter what it was? Much of Rothbard's later writings, with their increased emphasis on cultural matters, were designed to correct this development, and to explain the error in the idea of a leftist, multi-counter-cultural libertarianism, of libertarianism as a variant of libertinism. It was false, empirically as well as normatively, that libertarianism could or should be combined with egalitarian multiculturalism. Both were in fact sociologically incompatible, and libertarianism could and should be combined exclusively with traditional Western bourgeois culture, that is, the old-fashioned ideal of a family-based and hierarchically structured society of voluntarily acknowledged rank orders of social authority. Empirically, Rothbard did not tire to explain, the left libertarians failed to recognize that the restoration of private property rights and laissez-faire economics implied a sharp and drastic increase in social discrimination. Private property means the right to exclude. The modern social democratic welfare state has increasingly stripped private property owners of their right to exclude. In distinct contrast, a libertarian society where the right to exclude was fully restored to owners of private property would be profoundly unegalitarian. To be sure, private property also implies the owner's right to include and to open and facilitate access to one's property, and every private property owner also faces an economic incentive of including rather than excluding so long as he expects this to increase the value of his property. 
The Ethics of Liberty's chapter most difficult to accept for conservatives, on children and rights, comes thus to appear in a different light. In this chapter, Rothbard argued in favor of a mother's absolute right to her own body, and therefore to perform an abortion. He rejected the right-to-life argument not on the ground that a fetus was not life. In fact, from the moment of conception, he agreed with the Catholic position, it was human life. But rather on the fundamental ground that no such thing as a universal right-to-life, but exclusively a universal right-to-live-an-independent-and-separate life, can properly and possibly exist and that a fetus, while certainly human life, is just as certainly up to the moment of birth not an independent, but biologically speaking a parasitic life, and thus has no rightful claim against the mother. Further, upon childbirth, a mother, and with her consent parents jointly, would have the trustee ownership of her children an ownership limited only by the illegality of aggressing against their persons and by their absolute right to run away or to leave home at any time. Parents would be able to sell their trustee rights in children to anyone who wished to buy them at any mutually agreed price. So long as children have not left home, a parent does not have the right to aggress against his children but also the parent should not have a legal obligation to feed, clothe, or educate his children, since such obligations would entail positive acts coerced upon the parent and depriving the parent of his rights. The parent therefore may not murder or mutilate his child, but the parent should have the legal right not to feed his child, that is, to allow it to die. So as to avoid any misunderstanding, in the next sentence Rothbard reminded his reader of the strictly delineated scope of his treatise on political philosophy, and noted that, whether or not a parent has a moral rather than a legally enforceable obligation to keep his child alive is a completely separate question. However, this explicit qualification, and the general thrust of the ethics of liberty notwithstanding, These pronouncements were used in conservative circles in the attempt to prevent a libertarian infiltration and radicalization of contemporary American conservatism. Of course, conservative political theory was a contradiction in terms. Conservatism essentially meant not to have and even reject any abstract theory and rigorous logical argument. Not surprisingly, Rothbard was singularly unimpressed by conservative critics such as Russell Kirk, whose theoretical work he considered devoid of analytical and argumentative rigor. Consequently, Rothbard did not see any reason to abandon his original conclusions. Until the end of his life, he would not budge on the problem of abortion and child neglect, and insisted on a mother's absolute legal, lawful right to an abortion, and of letting her children die. In fact, if women did not have such rights, and had committed instead a punishable crime, it would seem that their crime then must be equivalent to murder. Should abortion accordingly be threatened with capital punishment, and convicted abortionist mothers be executed? But who, except its mother, can possibly claim a right to her fetus and child, and thus be considered as the rightful victim of her actions? 
Who could bring a wrongful death suit against her? Surely not the state. For a conservative in particular, any state interference in the autonomy of families should be anathema. But who else, if indeed anyone? Yet, while Rothbard unchangingly held to his conclusions concerning the rights of children and parents, his later writings, with an increased emphasis on moral cultural matters and the exclusionary aspect of private property rights, place these conclusions in a wider and characteristically conservative social context. Thus, while in favor of a woman's right to have an abortion, Rothbard was nonetheless strictly opposed to the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in Roe v. Wade, which recognized such a right. This was not because he believed the court's finding concerning the legality of abortion wrong, but on the more fundamental ground that the U.S. Supreme Court had no jurisdiction in the matter, and that by assuming it, the court had engendered a systematic centralization of state power. The right to have an abortion does not imply that one may have an abortion anywhere. In fact, there is nothing impermissible about private owners and associations discriminating against and punishing abortionists by every means other than physical punishment. Every household and property owner is free to prohibit an abortion on his own territory, and may enter into a restrictive covenant with other owners for the same purpose. Moreover, every owner and every association of owners is free to fire or not to hire, and to refuse to engage in any transaction whatsoever with an abortionist. It may indeed be the case that no civilized place can be found anywhere, and that one must retire to the infamous back alley to have an abortion. Not only would there be nothing wrong with such a situation, it would be positively moral in raising the cost of irresponsible sexual conduct and helping to reduce the number of abortions. In distinct contrast, the Supreme Court's decision was not only unlawful by expanding its, that is, the central state's jurisdiction at the expense of state and local governments, but ultimately of every private property owner's rightful jurisdiction regarding his own property. It was also positively immoral in facilitating the availability and accessibility of abortion. Libertarians, Rothbard stressed in this connection, must be opposed as are traditional conservatives. But unlike social democrats, neoconservatives, and left libertarians, on principled grounds to any and all centralization of state power, even and especially if such centralization involves a correct judgment, such as that abortion should be legal, or that taxes should be abolished. It would be anti-libertarian, for instance, to appeal to the United Nations to order the breakup of a taxi monopoly in Houston or to the U.S. government to order Utah to abolish its state certification requirement for teachers, because in doing so, one would have illegitimately granted these state agencies jurisdiction over property that they plainly do not own, but others do. Not only Houston or Utah, but every city in the world and every state in the United States. And while every state, small or large, violates the rights of private property owners and must be feared and combated, large central states violate more people's rights and must be feared even more. They do not come into existence ab ovo. 
but are the outgrowth of a process of eliminative competition among originally numerous independent small local states. Central states, and ultimately a single world state, represent the successful expansion and concentration of state power, that is, of evil, and must accordingly be regarded as especially dangerous. Hence a libertarian, as his second-best solution, must always discriminate in favor of local and against central government, and he must always try to correct injustices at the level and location where they occur, rather than empowering some higher, more centralized level of government to rectify a local injustice. In fact, as a result of his increasing emphasis on cultural conservatism as a sociological presupposition of libertarianism, Rothbard succeeded in bringing about a fundamental reorientation of the libertarian movement during the last decade of his life. Symbolic of this change in direction was Rothbard's dissociation in 1989 from the Libertarian Party. Rothbard's action did not, as some prominent left libertarians vainly proclaimed at the time, mark the end of his association with libertarianism, or his role as the libertarian movement's guiding star. Rather, it marked the beginning of a systematic ideological realignment to open libertarian access to the American heartland and foment there a rapidly growing and increasingly radicalized populist movement among middle Americans disgusted with the welfare-warfare statism and social disintegration produced and promoted by federal policies. The anti-central state shift in American politics at the decisive end of the Cold War was the first unmistakable sign of the burgeoning strength of the conservative libertarian grassroots movement envisioned and shaped by Rothbard. The historical moment for Rothbardian scholarly tradition may at last have arrived, and his political movement is surely not too far in the distance. Rothbard had always been an optimist, grounded in the fact of human rationality and further strengthened by the Misesian Rothbardian insight that one cannot violate moral and economic laws without having to pay a price and that one violation will, according to the logic of state action, lead to more violations, until the price that must be paid becomes intolerable. Thus the ethical and economic depredations of socialism finally ended in a spectacular collapse. Likewise, in the United States and the Western world, after nearly 100 years of social democratic welfare statism, the moral and economic reserve fund inherited from the past has become visibly exhausted, and has led to a manifest economic and moral crisis of stagnating or falling standards of living and societal breakdown, as well as a widespread loss of faith and trust in the central state as the organizing agent of society. In this situation of the obvious moral and economic bankruptcy of socialism and social democracy, and an ever more strongly felt need for an explanation and a principal alternative, it can be safely predicted that Rothbard's ethics of liberty not only will endure as a classic, but steadily gain in prominence. At the academic level, Rothbard's lifelong work for the scholarship of liberty has at long last come to serve as the foundational theoretical edifice for the modern successors of the old classical liberal movement 
the movement that originally influenced the development of the basic libertarian position. Today, this movement is truly international in scope, and includes thousands of lay intellectuals and professional scholars the world over, many of whom view Rothbard's voluminous writings over the entire course of his lifetime as the model and ideal of principled political and economic thinking. After his death, his reputation as leader in libertarian political theory and Austrian school economics is increasingly obvious, even undeniable, to enthusiasts and critics alike. For his seminal Ethics of Liberty to be available once again should further solidify this status. University of Nevada, Las Vegas, January 1998 Preface All of my work has revolved around the central question of human liberty, for it has been my conviction that while each discipline has its own autonomy and integrity, in the final analysis all sciences and disciplines of human action are interrelated and can be integrated into a science or discipline of individual liberty. In particular, my Man, Economy, and State, two volumes, 1962, set forth a comprehensive analysis of the free market economy, while the analysis was praxeologic and value-free, and no political conclusions were directly upheld. The great virtues of the free market, and the evils of coercive intervention into that market, were evident to the discerning reader. The sequel to that work, Power and Market, 1970, carried the analysis of man, economy, and state further in several ways a. A systematic analysis of the types of government intervention in the economy clearly shows the myriad of unfortunate consequences of such intervention. b. For the first time in modern political economic literature, a model was outlined of the way in which a totally stateless and therefore purely free or anarchistic market economy could function successfully and c. A praxeological, and therefore still value-free, critique was conducted of the lack of meaningfulness and consistency of various types of ethical attacks on the free market. The latter section moved from pure economics to ethical criticism, but it remained within the bounds of value-freedom, and thus did not attempt a positive ethical theory of individual liberty. Yet I was conscious that the latter task needed almost desperately to be done. For, as will be seen further in this work, I at no time believed that value-free analysis or economics or utilitarianism, the standard social philosophy of economists, can ever suffice to establish the case for liberty. Economics can help supply much of the data for a libertarian position but it cannot establish that political philosophy itself. Political judgments are necessarily value judgments. Political philosophy is therefore necessarily ethical, and hence a positive ethical system must be set forth to establish the case for individual liberty. It was furthermore clear to me that no one was engaged in trying to fill this crying need, for one thing, until very recently in this century, there have been virtually no libertarian political philosophers. And even in the far more libertarian nineteenth century, only Herbert Spencer's great Social Statics, 1851, set forth a thorough and systematic theory of liberty. 
In For a New Liberty, 1973, I was able for the first time to put forward at least the brief outlines of my theory of liberty, and also to expound and defend the anarcho-capitalist political creed far more substantially than in power and market. But For a New Liberty was more popular than scholarly, and it concentrated mainly on the application of the libertarian creed to the important social and economic problem areas in American society. The great need for a systematic theory of liberty still remained. The present work attempts to fill this gap, to set forth a systematic ethical theory of liberty. It is not, however, a work in ethics per se, but only in that subset of ethics devoted to political philosophy. Hence it does not try to prove or establish the ethics or ontology of natural law, which provide the groundwork for the political theory set forth in this book. Natural law has been ably expounded and defended elsewhere by ethical philosophers, and so Part 1 simply explains the outlines of natural law which animates this work, without attempting a full-scale defense of that theory. Part 2 is the substance of the work itself, setting forth my theory of liberty. It begins, as the best economic treatises have done, with a Crusoe world, except that the condition and actions of Crusoe are here analyzed not in order to establish economic concepts, but rather those of natural rights morality, in particular of the natural sphere of property and ownership, the foundation of liberty. The Crusoe model enables one to analyze the action of man vis-à-vis -vis the external world around him before the complications of interpersonal relations are considered. The key to the theory of liberty is the establishment of the rights of private property. For each individual's justified sphere of free action can only be set forth if his rights of property are analyzed and established. Crime can then be defined and properly analyzed as a violent invasion or aggression against the just property of another individual, including his property in his own person. The positive theory of liberty then becomes an analysis of what can be considered property rights, and therefore what can be considered crimes. Various difficult but vitally important problems can then be dissected, including the rights of children, the proper theory of contracts as transfers of property titles, the thorny questions of enforcement and punishment, and many others. Since questions of property and crime are essentially legal questions, our theory of liberty necessarily sets forth an ethical theory of what law concretely should be. In short, as a natural law theory should properly do, it sets forth a normative theory of law, in our case a theory of libertarian law. While the book establishes the general outlines of a system of libertarian law, however, it is only an outline, a prolegomenon to what I hope will be a fully developed libertarian law code of the future. Hopefully, libertarian jurists and legal theorists will arise to hammer out the system of libertarian law in detail, for such a law code will be necessary to the truly successful functioning of what we may hope will be the libertarian society of the future. The focus of this work is on the positive ethical theory of liberty and of the outlines of libertarian law. 
For such a discussion, there is no need for a detailed analysis or critique of the state. Part 3 briefly sets forth my view of the state as the inherent enemy of liberty, and indeed of genuine law. Part 4 deals with the most important modern theories which attempt to establish a political philosophy of liberty, in particular those of Mises, Hayek, Berlin, and Nozick. I do not attempt to review their works in detail, but rather to concentrate on why I think their theories fail at the task of establishing an ideology of liberty. Finally, Part 5 attempts the virtually pioneering task of beginning to set forth a theory of strategy of how to move from the present system to a world of liberty, and also my reasons for being highly optimistic about the long-run and even short-run prospects for the achievement of the noble ideal of a libertarian society, particularly in America. Part 1 Introduction. Natural Law. Chapter 1. Natural Law and Reason. Among intellectuals who consider themselves scientific, the phrase, the nature of man, is apt to have the effect of a red flag on a bull. Man has no nature, is the modern rallying cry and typical of the sentiment of political philosophers today was the assertion of a distinguished political theorist some years ago, before a meeting of the American Political Science Association, that man's nature is a purely theological concept that must be dismissed from any scientific discussion. In the controversy over man's nature, and over the broader and more controversial concept of natural law, both sides have repeatedly proclaimed that natural law and theology are inextricably intertwined. As a result, many champions of natural law, in scientific or philosophic circles, have gravely weakened their case by implying that rational philosophical methods alone cannot establish such a law, that theological faith is necessary to maintain the concept. On the other hand, the opponents of natural law have gleefully agreed, since faith in the supernatural is deemed necessary to believe in natural law, the latter concept must be tossed out of scientific secular discourse, and be consigned to the arcane sphere of the divine studies. In consequence, the idea of a natural law founded on reason and rational inquiry has been virtually lost. The believer in a rationally established natural law must then face the hostility of both camps, the one group sensing in this position an antagonism toward religion, and the other group suspecting that God and mysticism are being slipped in by the back door. To the first group it must be said that they are reflecting an extreme Augustinian position, which held that faith rather than reason was the only legitimate tool for investigating man's nature and man's proper ends. In short, in this fideist tradition, theology had completely displaced philosophy. The Thomist tradition, on the contrary, was precisely the opposite, vindicating the independence of philosophy from theology and proclaiming the ability of man's reason to understand and arrive at the laws physical and ethical, of the natural order. If belief in a systematic order of natural laws open to discovery by man's reason is, per se, anti-religious, 
Then anti-religious also were St. Thomas and the later scholastics, as well as the devout Protestant jurist Hugo Grotius. The statement that there is an order of natural law, in short, leaves open the problem of whether or not God has created that order, and the assertion of the viability of man's reason to discover the natural order leaves open the question of whether or not that reason was given to man by God. The assertion of an order of natural laws discoverable by reason is by itself neither pro- nor anti-religious. Because this position is startling to most people today, let us investigate this Thomistic position a little further. The statement of absolute independence of natural law from the question of the existence of God was implicit rather than flatly asserted in St. Thomas himself. But like so many implications of Thomism, it was brought forth by Suarez and the other brilliant Spanish scholastics of the late 16th century. The Jesuit Suarez pointed out that many scholastics had taken the position that the natural law of ethics, the law of what is good and bad for man, does not depend upon God's will. Indeed, some of the scholastics had gone so far as to say that, even though God did not exist, or did not make use of his reason, or did not judge rightly of things, if there is in man such a dictate of right reason to guide him, it would have had the same nature of law as it now has. Or, as a modern Thomist philosopher declares, if the word natural means anything at all, it refers to the nature of a man, and when used with law, natural must refer to an ordering that is manifested in the inclinations of a man's nature, and to nothing else. Hence, taken in itself, there is nothing religious or theological in the natural law of Aquinas. Dutch Protestant jurist Hugo Grotius declared, in his De Iuri Belli Acpacis, 1625, What we have been saying would have a degree of validity even if we should concede that which cannot be conceded without the utmost wickedness, that there is no God. And again, measureless as is the power of God, nevertheless it can be said that there are certain things over which that power does not extend, just as even God cannot cause that two times two should not make four, so he cannot cause that which is intrinsically evil be not evil. Dontrev concludes that Grotius' definition of natural law has nothing revolutionary when he maintains that natural law is that body of rules which man is able to discover by the use of his reason, he does nothing but restate the scholastic notion of a rational foundation of ethics. Indeed, his aim is rather to restore that notion which had been shaken by the extreme Augustinianism of certain Protestant currents of thought. When he declares that these rules are valid in themselves, independently of the fact that God willed them, he repeats an assertion which had already been made by some of the schoolmen. Grotius' aim, Dontrev adds, was to construct a system of laws which would carry conviction in an age in which theological controversy was gradually losing the power to do so. Grotius and his juristic successors, Pufendorf, Burlamaqui, and Fattel, 
proceeded to elaborate this independent body of natural laws in a purely secular context, in accordance with their own particular interests, which were not, in contrast to the schoolmen, primarily theological. Indeed, even the eighteenth-century rationalists, in many ways dedicated enemies of the scholastics, were profoundly influenced in their very rationalism by the scholastic tradition. Thus, let there be no mistake. In the Thomistic tradition, natural law is ethical as well as physical law, and the instrument by which man apprehends such law is his reason, not faith or intuition or grace, revelation or anything else. In the contemporary atmosphere of sharp dichotomy between natural law and reason, and especially amid the irrationalist sentiments of conservative thought, this cannot be underscored too often. Hence St. Thomas Aquinas, in the words of the eminent historian of philosopher Father Copleston, emphasized the place and function of reason in moral conduct. He, Aquinas, shared with Aristotle the view that it is the possession of reason which distinguished man from the animals, and which enables him to act deliberately in view of the consciously apprehended end, and raises him above the level of purely instinctive behavior. Aquinas, then, realized that men always act purposively, but also went beyond this to argue that ends can also be apprehended by reason as either objectively good or bad for man. For Aquinas, then, in the words of Copleston, there is therefore room for the concept of right reason, reason directing man's acts to the attainment of the objective good for man. Moral conduct is therefore conduct in accord with right reason. If it is said that moral conduct is rational conduct, what is meant is that it is conduct in accordance with right reason, reason apprehending the objective good for man and dictating the means to its attainment. In natural law philosophy, then, reason is not bound, as it is in modern posthumian philosophy, to be a mere slave to the passions, confined to cranking out the discovery of the means to arbitrarily chosen ends. For the ends themselves are selected by the use of reason, and right reason dictates to man his proper ends as well as the means for their attainment. For the Thomist or natural law theorist, the general law of morality for man is a special case of the system of natural law governing all entities of the world each with its own nature and its own ends. For him, the moral law is a special case of the general principles that all finite things move toward their ends by the development of their potentialities. And here we come to a vital difference between inanimate or even non-human living creatures and man himself, for the former are compelled to proceed in accordance with the ends dictated by their natures, whereas man, the rational animal, possesses reason to discover such ends, and the free will to choose. Which doctrine, natural law or those of its critics, is to be considered truly rational, was answered incisively by the late Leo Strauss in the course of a penetrating critique of the value-relativism in political theory of Professor Arnold Brecht, 
For in contrast to natural law, positivistic social science is characterized by the abandonment of reason or the flight from reason. According to the positivistic interpretation of relativism, which prevails in present-day social science, reason can tell us which means are conducive to which ends. It cannot tell us which attainable ends are to be preferred to other attainable ends. Reason cannot tell us that we ought to choose attainable ends. If someone loves him who desires the impossible, reason may tell him that he acts irrationally, but it cannot tell him that he ought to act rationally, or that acting irrationally is acting badly or basely. If rational conduct consists in choosing the right means for the right end, relativism teaches, in effect, that rational conduct is impossible. Finally, the unique place of reason in natural law philosophy has been affirmed by the modern Thomistic philosopher, the late Father John Tuey. Tuey defined sound philosophy as follows. Philosophy, in the sense in which the word is used when scholasticism is contrasted with other philosophies, is an attempt on the part of man's unaided reason to give a fundamental explanation of the nature of things. Chapter 2. Natural Law as Science It is indeed puzzling that so many modern philosophers should sniff at the very term nature as an injection of mysticism and the supernatural. An apple, let fall, will drop to the ground. This we all observe and acknowledge to be in the nature of the apple, as well as the world in general. Two atoms of hydrogen combined with one of oxygen will yield one molecule of water, behavior that is uniquely in the nature of hydrogen, oxygen, and water. There is nothing arcane or mystical about such observations. Why then cavil at the concept of nature? The world, in fact, consists of a myriad number of observable things or entities. This is surely an observable fact. Since the world does not consist of one homogeneous thing or entity alone, it follows that each one of these different things possesses differing attributes, otherwise they would all be the same thing. But if A, B, C, etc. have different attributes, it follows immediately that they have different natures. It also follows that when these various things meet and interact, a specifically delimitable and definable result will occur. In short, specific delimitable causes will have specific delimitable effects. The observable behavior of each of these entities is the law of their natures, and this law includes what happens as a result of the interactions. The complex that we may build up of these laws may be termed the structure of natural law. What is mystical about that? In the field of purely physical laws, this concept will usually differ from modern positivistic terminology only on high philosophical levels. Applied to man, however, the concept is far more controversial. And yet, if apples and stones and roses each have their specific natures, is man the only entity, the only being that cannot have one? And if man does have a nature, why cannot it, too, be open to rational observation and reflection? 
If all things have natures, then surely man's nature is open to inspection. The current brusque rejection of the concept of the nature of man is therefore arbitrary and a priori. One common flip criticism by opponents of natural law is, who is to establish the alleged truths about man? The answer is not who, but what? Man's reason. Man's reason is objective, that is, it can be employed by all men to yield truths about the world. To ask what is man's nature is to invite the answer, go thou and study and find out. It is as if one man were to assert that the nature of copper were open to rational investigation, and a critic were to challenge him to prove this immediately by setting forth on the spot all the laws that have been discovered about copper. Another common charge is that natural law theorists differ among themselves, and that therefore all natural law theories must be discarded. This charge comes with peculiar ill grace when it comes, as it often does, from utilitarian economists. For economics has been a notoriously contentious science, and yet few people advocate tossing all economics, therefore, into the discard. Furthermore, difference of opinion is no excuse for discarding all sides to a dispute. The responsible person is the one who uses his reason to examine the various contentions and make up his own mind. He does not simply say, a priori, a plague on all your houses. The fact of man's reason does not mean that error is impossible. Even such hard sciences as physics and chemistry have had their errors and their fervent disputes. No man is omniscient or infallible a law, by the way, of man's nature. The natural law ethic decrees that for all living things, goodness is the fulfillment of what is best for that type of creature. Goodness is therefore relative to the nature of the creature concerned. Thus Professor Cropsey writes, The classical natural law doctrine is that each thing is excellent in the degree to which it can do the things for which its species is naturally equipped. Why is the natural good? Because there is neither a way nor a reason to prevent ourselves from distinguishing between useless and serviceable beasts, for example and the most empirical and rational standard of the serviceable, or the limit of the thing's activity, is set by its nature. We do not judge elephants to be good because they are natural, or because nature is morally good, whatever that would mean. We judge a particular elephant to be good by the light of what elephant nature makes it possible for elephants to do, and to be. In the case of man, the natural law ethic states that goodness or badness can be determined by what fulfills or thwarts what is best for man's nature. The natural law, then, elucidates what is best for man, what ends man should pursue that are most harmonious with, and best tend to fulfill, his nature. In a significant sense, then, natural law provides man with a science of happiness, with the paths which will lead to his real happiness. In contrast, praxeology, or economics, as well as the utilitarian philosophy with which this science has been closely allied, 
treat happiness in the purely formal sense as the fulfillment of those ends which people happen, for whatever reason, to place high on their scales of value. Satisfaction of those ends yields to man his utility, or satisfaction, or happiness. Value in the sense of valuation, or utility, is purely subjective, and decided by each individual. This procedure is perfectly proper for the formal science of praxeology, or economic theory, but not necessarily elsewhere. For in natural law ethics, ends are demonstrated to be good or bad for man in varying degrees. Value here is objective, determined by the natural law of man's being. And here, happiness for man is considered in the commonsensical, contentual sense. As Father Keneally put it, this philosophy maintains that there is in fact an objective moral order within the range of human intelligence, to which human societies are bound in conscience to conform, and upon which the peace and happiness of personal, national, and international life depend. And the eminent English jurist Sir William Blackstone summed up the natural law and its relation to human happiness as follows. This is the foundation of what we call ethics, or natural law, demonstrating that this or that action tends to man's real happiness, and therefore very justly concluding that the performance of it is a part of the law of nature, or, on the other hand, that this or that action is destruction of man's real happiness, and therefore that the law of nature forbids it. Without using the terminology of natural law, psychologist Leonard Carmichael has indicated how an objective, absolute ethic can be established for man on scientific methods, based upon biological and psychological inquiry. Because man has an unchanging and an age-old genetically determined anatomical, physiological, and psychological makeup, there is reason to believe that at least some of the values that he recognized as good or bad have been discovered or have emerged as human individuals have lived together for thousands of years in many societies. Is there any reason to suggest that these values, once identified and tested, may not be thought of as essentially fixed and unchanging? For example, the wanton murder of one adult by another for the purely personal amusement of the person committing the murder, once it is recognized as a general wrong, is likely always to be so recognized. Such a murder has disadvantageous individual and social effects. Or, to take a milder example from aesthetics, man is always likely to recognize in a special way the balance of two complementary colors, because he is born with specially constituted human eyes. One common philosophic objection to natural law ethics is that it confuses or identifies the realism of fact and value. For purposes of our brief discussion, John Wilde's reply will suffice. In answer, we may point out that their natural law view identifies value not with existence, but rather with the fulfillment of tendencies determined by the structure of the existent entity. 
Furthermore, it identifies evil not with non-existence, but rather with a mode of existence in which natural tendencies are thwarted and deprived of realization. The young plant whose leaves are withering for lack of light is not non-existent. It exists, but in an unhealthy or privative mode. The lame man is not non-existent. He exists, but with a natural power partially unrealized. This metaphysical objection is based upon the common assumption that existence is fully finished or complete. But what is good is the fulfillment of being. After stating that ethics, for man as for any other entity, are determined by investigating verifiable existing tendencies of that entity, Wilde asks a question crucial to all non-theological ethics. Why are such principles felt to be binding on me? How do such universal tendencies of human nature become incorporated into a person's subjective value scale? Because the factual needs which underlie the whole procedure are common to man. The values founded on them are universal. Hence, if I made no mistake in my tendential analysis of human nature, and if I understand myself, I must exemplify the tendency, and must feel it subjectively as an imperative urge to action. David Hume is the philosopher supposed by modern philosophers to have effectively demolished the theory of natural law. Hume's demolition was two-pronged. The raising of the alleged fact-value dichotomy, thus debarring the inference of value from fact, and his view that reason is and can only be a slave to the passions. In short, in contrast to the natural law view that man's reason can discover the proper ends for man to follow, Hume held that only the emotions can ultimately set man's ends and that reason's place is as the technician and handmaiden to the emotions. Here Hume has been followed by modern social scientists since Max Weber. According to this view, people's emotions are assumed to be primary and unanalyzable givens. Professor Hesselberg has shown, however, that Hume, in the course of his own discussions, was compelled to reintroduce a natural law conception into his social philosophy, and particularly into his theory of justice, thus illustrating the jibe of Etienne Gilson, the natural law always buries its undertakers. For Hume, in Hesselberg's words, recognized and accepted that the social order is an indispensable prerequisite to man's well-being and happiness, and that this is a statement of fact. The social order, therefore, must be maintained by man. Hesselberg continues, But a social order is not possible unless man is able to conceive what it is and what its advantages are and also conceive those norms of conduct which are necessary to its establishment and preservation, namely, respect for another's person and for his rightful possessions, which is the substance of justice. But justice is the product of reason, not the passions, and justice is the necessary support of the social order, and the social order is necessary to man's well-being and happiness. 
If this is so, the norms of justice must control and regulate the passions, and not vice versa. Hesselberg concludes that thus Hume's original primacy of the passions thesis is seen to be utterly untenable for his social and political theory, and he is compelled to reintroduce reason as a cognitive normative factor in human social relations. Indeed, in discussing justice and the importance of the rights of private property, Hume was compelled to write that reason can establish such a social ethic. Nature provides a remedy in the judgment and understanding for what is irregular and uncommodious in the affections. In short, reason can be superior to the passions. We have seen from our discussion that the doctrine of natural law, the view that an objective ethics can be established through reason, has had to face two powerful groups of enemies in the modern world both anxious to denigrate the power of man's reason to decide upon his destiny. These are the fideists who believe that ethics can only be given to man by supernatural revelation, and the skeptics who believe that man must take his ethics from arbitrary whim or emotion. We may sum up with Professor Grant's harsh but penetrating view of the strange contemporary alliance between those who doubt the capacity of human reason in the name of skepticism, probably scientific in origin, and those who denigrate its capacity in the name of revealed religion. It is only necessary to study the thought of Occam to see how ancient this strange alliance is, for in Occam can be seen how philosophic nominalism, unable to face the question of practical certainty, solves it by the arbitrary hypothesis of revelation. The will detached from the intellect, as it must be in a nominalism, can seek certainty only through such arbitrary hypotheses. The interesting fact historically is that these two anti-rationalist traditions, that of the liberal skeptic and the Protestant revelationist, should originally have come from two opposite views of man. The Protestant dependence upon revelation arose from a great pessimism about human nature. The immediately apprehended values of the liberal originate in a great optimism. Yet, after all, is not the dominating tradition in North America a Protestantism which has been transformed by pragmatic technology? and liberal aspirations? Chapter 3. Natural Law versus Positive Law If, then, the natural law is discovered by reason from the basic inclinations of human nature, absolute, immutable, and of universal validity for all times and places, it follows that the natural law provides an objective set of ethical norms by which to gauge human actions at any time or place. The natural law is, in essence, a profoundly radical ethic, for it holds the existing status quo, which might grossly violate natural law, up to the unsparing and unyielding light of reason. In the realm of politics or state action, the natural law presents man with a set of norms which may well be radically critical of existing positive law imposed by the state. At this point, we need only stress that the very existence of a natural law discoverable by reason 
is a potentially powerful threat to the status quo and a standing reproach to the reign of blindly traditional custom or the arbitrary will of the state apparatus. In fact, the legal principles of any society can be established in three alternate ways. A. By following the traditional custom of the tribe or community. B. By obeying the arbitrary ad hoc will of those who rule the state apparatus. Or C. By the use of man's reason in discovering the natural law. In short, by slavish conformity to custom, by arbitrary whim, or by use of man's reason. These are essentially the only possible ways for establishing positive law. Here we may simply affirm that the latter method is at once the most appropriate for man at his most nobly and fully human, and the most potentially revolutionary vis-à-vis any given status quo. In our century, widespread ignorance of and scorn for the very existence of the natural law has limited people's advocacy of legal structures to A or B, or some blend of the two. This even holds for those who try to hew to a policy of individual liberty. Thus, there are those libertarians who would simply and uncritically adopt the common law, despite its many anti-libertarian flaws. Others, like Henry Hazlitt, would scrap all constitutional limitations on government to rely solely on the majority will as expressed by the legislature. Neither group seems to understand the concept of a structure of rational natural law to be used as a guidepost for shaping and reshaping whatever positive law may be in existence. While natural law theory has often been used erroneously in defense of the political status quo, its radical and revolutionary implications were brilliantly understood by the great Catholic libertarian historian, Lord Acton. Acton saw clearly that the deep flaw in the ancient Greek and their later followers' conception of natural law political philosophy was to identify politics and morals, and then to place the supreme social-moral agent in the state. From Plato and Aristotle, the state's proclaimed supremacy was founded in their view that morality was undistinguished from religion and politics from morals, and in religion, morality, and politics there was only one legislator and one authority. Acton added that the Stoics developed the correct non-state principles of natural law political philosophy, which were then revived in the modern period by Grotius and his followers. From that time it became possible to make politics a matter of principle and of conscience. The reaction of the state to this theoretical development was horror. When Cumberland and Pufendorf unfolded the true significance of Grotius' doctrine, Every settled authority, every triumphant interest recoiled aghast. It was manifest that all persons who had learned that political science is an affair of conscience rather than of might and expediency might regard their adversaries as men without principle. Acton saw clearly that any set of objective moral principles rooted in the nature of man must inevitably come into conflict with custom and with positive law. 
To Acton, such an irrepressible conflict was an essential attribute of classical liberalism. Liberalism wishes for what ought to be, irrespective of what is. As Himmelfarb writes of Acton's philosophy, the past was allowed no authority except as it happened to conform to morality. To take seriously this liberal theory of history, to give precedence to what ought to be over what is, was, he admitted, virtually to install a revolution in permanence. And so for Acton, the individual, armed with natural law moral principles, is then in a firm position from which to criticize existing regimes and institutions, to hold them up to the strong and harsh light of reason. Even the far less politically oriented John Wilde has trenchantly described the inherently radical nature of natural law theory. The philosophy of natural law defends the rational dignity of the human individual, and his right and duty to criticize by word and deed any existent institution or social structure in terms of those universal moral principles which can be apprehended by the individual intellect alone. If the very idea of natural law is essentially radical and deeply critical of existing political institutions, then how has natural law become generally classified as conservative? Professor Parthamus considers natural law to be conservative because its principles are universal, fixed, and immutable, and hence are absolute principles of justice. Very true, but how does fixity of principle imply conservatism? On the contrary, the fact that natural law theorists derive from the very nature of man a fixed structure of law independent of time and place or of habit, or authority, or group norms, makes that law a mighty force for radical change. The only exception would be the surely rare case where the positive law happens to coincide in every aspect with the natural law, as discerned by human reason. Chapter 4 Natural Law and Natural Rights As we have indicated, the great failing of natural law theory from Plato and Aristotle to the Thomists and down to Leo Strauss and his followers in the present day, is to have been profoundly statist rather than individualist. This classical natural law theory placed the locus of the good and of virtuous action in the state, with individuals strictly subordinated to state action. Thus, from Aristotle's correct dictum that man is a social animal, that his nature is best fitted for social cooperation, the classicists leaped illegitimately to a virtual identification of society and the state, and thence to the state as the major locus of virtuous action. It was, in contrast, the levelers, and particularly John Locke in 17th century England, who transformed classical natural law into a theory grounded on methodological, and hence political, individualism. From the Lockean emphasis on the individual as the unit of action, as the entity who thinks, feels, chooses, and acts, stemmed his conception of natural law in politics as establishing the natural rights of each individual. 
It was the Lockean individualist tradition that profoundly influenced the later American revolutionaries, and the dominant tradition of libertarian political thought in the revolutionary new nation. It is this tradition of natural rights libertarianism upon which the present volume attempts to build. Locke's celebrated second treatise on government was certainly one of the first systematic elaborations of libertarian, individualistic, natural rights theory. Indeed, the similarity between Locke's view and the theory set forth below will become evident from the following passage. Every man has a property in his own person. This nobody has any right to but himself. The labor of his body and the work of his hands, we may say, are properly his. Whatsoever, then, he removes out of the state that nature hath provided and left it in, he hath mixed his labor with, and joined to it something that is his own, and thereby makes it his property. It being by him removed from the common state nature placed it in, it hath by this labor something annexed to it that excludes the common right of other men. For this labor being the unquestionable property of the laborer, no man but he can have a right to what that is once joined to. He that is nourished by the acorns he picked up under an oak, or the apples he gathered from the trees in the wood, has certainly appropriated them to himself. Nobody can deny, but the nourishment is his. I ask, then, when did they begin to be his? And tis plain, if the first gathering made them not his, nothing else could. That labor put a distinction between them and common. That added something to them more than nature, the common mother of all, had done, and so they become his private right. And will any one say he had no right to those acorns or apples he thus appropriated, because he had not the consent of all mankind to make them his? If such a consent as that was necessary, man had starved, notwithstanding the plenty God had given him. We see in commons, which remain so by compact, that tis the taking part of what is common, and removing it out of the state nature leaves it in, which begins the property, without which the common is of no use. It should not be surprising that Locke's natural rights theory, as historians of political thought have shown, was riddled with contradictions and inconsistencies. After all, the pioneers of any discipline, any science, are bound to suffer from inconsistencies and lacunae that will be corrected by those that come after them. Divergences from Locke in the present work are only surprising to those steeped in the unfortunate modern fashion that has virtually abolished constructive political philosophy in favor of a mere antiquarian interest in older texts. In fact, libertarian natural rights theory continued to be expanded and purified after Locke, reaching its culmination in the 19th century works of Herbert Spencer and Lysander Spooner. The myriad of post-Locke and post-Leveller natural rights theorists made clear their view that these rights stem from the nature of man and of the world around him. A few strikingly worded examples. 
19th-century German-American theorist Francis Lieber, in his earlier and more libertarian treatise, wrote, The law of nature, or natural law, is the law, the body of rights, which we deduce from the essential nature of man. And the prominent 19th-century American Unitarian minister William Ellery Channing, All men have the same rational nature and the same power of conscience, and all are equally made for indefinite improvement of these divine faculties, and for the happiness to be found in their virtuous use. And Theodore Woolsey, one of the last of the systematic natural rights theorists in nineteenth-century America, Natural rights are those which by fair deduction from the present physical, moral, social, religious characteristics of man he must be invested with in order to fulfill the ends to which his nature calls him. If, as we have seen, natural law is essentially a revolutionary theory, then so a fortiori is its individualist natural rights branch. As the 19th-century American natural rights theorist Elisha P. Hurlbert put it, the laws shall be merely declaratory of natural rights and natural wrongs, and whatever is indifferent to the laws of nature shall be left unnoticed by human legislation, and legal tyranny arises whenever there is a departure from this simple principle. A notable example of the revolutionary use of natural rights is, of course, the American Revolution, which was grounded in a radically revolutionary development of Lockean theory during the 18th century. The famous words of the Declaration of Independence, as Jefferson himself made clear, were enunciating nothing new, but were simply a brilliantly written distillation of the views held by the Americans of the day. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The more common triad at the time was life, liberty, and property. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed that whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. Particularly striking is the flaming prose of the great abolitionist William Lloyd Garrison, applying natural rights theory in a revolutionary way to the question of slavery. The right to enjoy liberty is inalienable. Every man has a right to his own body, to the products of his own labor, to the protection of law. That all these laws which are now in force, admitting the right of slavery, are therefore before God utterly null and void, and therefore they ought instantly to be abrogated. We shall be speaking throughout this work of rights in particular the rights of individuals to property in their persons and in material objects. But how do we define rights? Right has cogently and trenchantly been defined by Professor Sadowski. When we say that one has the right to do certain things, we mean this and only this, that it would be immoral for another, alone or in combination, to stop him from doing this, by the use of physical force or the threat thereof.
We do not mean that any use a man makes of his property within the limits set forth is necessarily a moral use. Sadowski's definition highlights the crucial distinction we shall make throughout this work between a man's right and the morality or immorality of his exercise of that right. We will contend that it is a man's right to do whatever he wishes with his person. It is his right not to be molested or interfered with by violence from exercising that right. But what may be the moral or immoral ways of exercising that right is a question of personal ethics rather than of political philosophy, which is concerned solely with matters of right and of the proper or improper exercise of physical violence in human relations. The importance of this crucial distinction cannot be overemphasized, or, as Elisha Hurlbert concisely put it, the exercise of a faculty by an individual is its only use. The manner of its exercise is one thing. That involves a question of morals. The right to its exercise is another thing. Chapter 5 The Task of Political Philosophy it is not the intention of this book to expound or defend at length the philosophy of natural law, or to elaborate a natural law ethic for the personal morality of man. The intention is to set forth a social ethic of liberty, that is, to elaborate that subset of the natural law that develops the concept of natural rights, and that deals with the proper sphere of politics that is, with violence and nonviolence as modes of interpersonal relations. In short, to set forth a political philosophy of liberty. In our view, the major task of political science, or better, political philosophy, is to construct the edifice of natural law pertinent to the political scene. That this task has been almost completely neglected in this century by political scientists is all too clear. Political science has either pursued a positivistic and scientistic model-building in vain imitation of the methodology and content of the physical sciences, or it has engaged in purely empirical fact-grubbing. The contemporary political scientist believes that he can avoid the necessity of moral judgments, and that he can help frame public policy without committing himself to any ethical position. And yet, as soon as anyone makes any policy suggestion, however narrow or limited, an ethical judgment, sound or unsound, has willy-nilly been made. The difference between the political scientist and the political philosopher is that the scientist's moral judgments are covert and implicit, and therefore not subject to detailed scrutiny, and hence more likely to be unsound. Moreover, the avoidance of explicit ethical judgments leads political scientists to one overriding implicit value judgment, that in favor of the political status quo as it happens to prevail in any given society. At the very least, his lack of a systematic political ethics precludes the political scientist from persuading anyone of the value of any change from the status quo. In the meanwhile, furthermore, 
present-day political philosophers generally confined themselves, also in a vertfrei manner, to antiquarian descriptions and exegeses of the views of other long-gone political philosophers. In so doing, they are evading the major task of political philosophy. In the words of Thomas Thorson, the philosophic justification of value positions relevant to politics. In order to advocate public policy, therefore, a system of social or political ethics must be constructed. In former centuries, this was the crucial task of political philosophy. But in the contemporary world, political theory, in the name of a spurious science, has cast out ethical philosophy and has itself become barren as a guide to the inquiring citizen. The same course has been taken in each of the disciplines of the social sciences and of philosophy by abandoning the procedures of natural law. Let us then cast out the hobgoblins of Wertfreiheit, of positivism, of scientism, Ignoring the imperious demands of an arbitrary status quo, let us hammer out, hackneyed cliché though it may be, a natural law and natural rights standard to which the wise and honest may repair. Specifically, let us seek to establish the political philosophy of liberty and of the proper sphere of law, property rights, and the state. Part 2 a Theory of Liberty Chapter 6 A Crusoe Social Philosophy One of the most commonly derided constructions of classical economic theory is Crusoe economics, the analysis of an isolated man face to face with nature. And yet, this seemingly unrealistic model, as I have tried to demonstrate elsewhere, has highly important and even indispensable uses. It serves to isolate man as against nature, thus gaining clarity by abstracting at the beginning from interpersonal relations. Later on, this man-nature analysis can be extended and applied to the real world. The bringing in of Friday, or of one or more other persons, after analysis of strictly Robinsonian isolation, then serves to show how the addition of other persons affects the discussion. These conclusions can then also be applied to the contemporary world. Thus the abstraction of analyzing a few persons interacting on an island enables a clear perception of the basic truths of interpersonal relations, truths which remain obscure if we insist on looking first at the contemporary world only whole and of a piece. If Crusoe economics can and does supply the indispensable groundwork for the entire structure of economics and praxeology, the broad formal analysis of human action, a similar procedure should be able to do the same thing for social philosophy, for the analysis of the fundamental truths of the nature of man vis-à-vis -vis the nature of the world into which he is born, as well as the world of other men. Specifically, it can aid greatly in solving such problems of political philosophy as the nature and role of liberty, property, and violence. Such 17th and 18th century constructs as the state of nature or the social contract were not wholly successful attempts to construct such a logical analysis. 
Such attempts were far more important than any actual historical assertions that may have been made in the course of developing these concepts. Let us consider Crusoe, who has landed on his island, and, to simplify matters, has contracted amnesia. What inescapable facts does Crusoe confront? He finds, for one thing, himself, with the primordial fact of his own consciousness and his own body. He finds, second, the natural world around him, the nature-given habitat and resources which economists sum up in the term land. This economic land, including all nature-given resources, does not necessarily mean land in the popular sense, as it may include parts of the sea, for example, fishing waters, and excludes man-made improvements on the earth. He finds also that, in seeming contrast with animals, he does not possess any innate instinctual knowledge impelling him into the proper paths for the satisfaction of his needs and desires. In fact, he begins his life in this world by knowing literally nothing. All knowledge must be learned by him. He comes to learn that he has numerous ends, purposes which he desires to achieve, many of which he must achieve to sustain his life, food, shelter, clothing, etc. After the basic needs are satisfied, he finds more advanced wants for which to aim. To satisfy any or all of these wants, which he evaluates in accordance with their respective importance to him, Crusoe must also learn how to achieve them. He must, in short, acquire technological knowledge, or recipes. Crusoe then has manifold wants which he tries to satisfy, ends that he strives to attain. Some of these ends may be attained with minimal effort on his part. If the island is so structured, he may be able to pick edible berries off nearby bushes. In such cases, his consumption of a good or service may be obtained quickly and almost instantaneously. But for almost all of his wants, Crusoe finds that the natural world about him does not satisfy them immediately and instantaneously. He is not, in short, in a Garden of Eden. To achieve his ends, he must, as quickly and productively as he can, take the nature-given resources and transform them into useful objects, shapes and places most useful to him, so that he can satisfy his wants. In short, he must a. choose his goals, b. learn how to achieve them by using nature-given resources, and then c. exert his labor energy to transform these resources into more useful shapes and places, that is, into capital goods, and finally into consumer goods that he can directly consume. Thus Crusoe may build himself, out of the given natural raw materials, an axe, capital good, with which to chop down trees, in order to construct a cabin, consumer good. Or he may build a net, capital good, with which to catch fish, consumer good. In each case he employs his learned technological knowledge to exert his labor effort in transforming land into capital goods and eventually into consumer goods. This process of transformation of land resources constitutes his production. In short, 
Crusoe must produce before he can consume, and so that he may consume. And by this process of production, of transformation, man shapes and alters his nature-given environment to his own ends, instead of, animal-like, being simply determined by that environment. And so man, not having innate, instinctive, automatically acquired knowledge of his proper ends, or of the means by which they can be achieved, must learn them, and to learn them he must exercise his powers of observation, abstraction, thought, in short, his reason. Reason is man's instrument of knowledge and of his very survival, the use and expansion of his mind, the acquisition of knowledge about what is best for him and how he can achieve it, is the uniquely human method of existence and of achievement. And this is uniquely man's nature. Man, as Aristotle pointed out, is the rational animal, or, to be more precise, the rational being. Through his reason, the individual man observes both the facts and ways of the external world, and the facts of his own consciousness, including his emotions. In short, he employs both extrospection and introspection. Crusoe, as we have said, learns about his ends and how to attain them. But what specifically does his learning faculty, his reason, do in the process of obtaining such knowledge? It learns about the way things work in the world, that is, the natures of the various specific entities and classes of entities that the man finds in existence. In short, he learns the natural laws of the way things behave in the world. He learns that an arrow shot from a bow can bring down a deer, and that a net can catch an abundance of fish. Further, he learns about his own nature, about the sort of events and actions that will make him happy or unhappy. In short, he learns about the ends he needs to achieve and those he should seek to avoid. This process, this method necessary to man's survival and prosperity upon the earth, has often been derided as unduly or exclusively materialistic, but it should be clear that what has happened in this activity proper to man's nature is a fusion of spirit and matter. Man's mind, using the ideas it has learned, directs his energy in transforming and reshaping matter into ways to sustain and advance his wants and his life. Behind every produced good, behind every man-made transformation of natural resources, is an idea directing the effort, a manifestation of man's spirit. The individual man, in introspecting the fact of his own consciousness, also discovers the primordial natural fact of his freedom, his freedom to choose, his freedom to use or not use his reason about any given subject. In short, the natural fact of his free will. He also discovers the natural fact of his mind's command over his body and its actions, that is, of his natural ownership over his self. Crusoe, then, owns his body, and his mind is free to adopt whatever ends it wishes, and to exercise his reason in order to discover what ends he should choose, and to learn the recipes for employing the means at hand to attain them.
Indeed, the very fact that the knowledge needed for man's survival and progress is not innately given to him or determined by external events, the very fact that he must use his mind to learn this knowledge demonstrates that he is by nature free to employ or not to employ that reason, that is, that he has free will. Surely there is nothing outré or mystical about the fact that men differ from stones, plants, or even animals, and that the above are crucial differences between them. The critical and unique facts about man and the ways in which he must live to survive, his consciousness, his free will and free choice, his faculty of reason, his necessity for learning the natural laws of the external world and of himself, his self-ownership, his need to produce by transforming nature-given matter into consumable forms. All these are wrapped up in what man's nature is, and how man may survive and flourish. Suppose now that Crusoe is confronted with a choice of either picking berries or picking some mushrooms for food, and he decides upon the pleasantly tasting mushrooms, when suddenly a previously shipwrecked inhabitant coming upon Crusoe shouts, Don't do that! Those mushrooms are poisonous! There is no mystery in Crusoe's subsequent shift to berries. What has happened here? Both men have operated on an assumption so strong that it remained tacit, an assumption that poison is bad, bad for the health and even for the survival of the human organism, in short, bad for the continuation and the quality of a man's life. In this implicit agreement on the value of life and health for the person, and on the evils of pain and death, the two men have clearly arrived at the basis of an ethic, grounded on reality and on the natural laws of the human organism. If Crusoe had eaten the mushrooms without learning of their poisonous effects, then his decision would have been incorrect a possibly tragic error, based on the fact that man is scarcely automatically determined to make correct decisions at all times. Hence his lack of omniscience and his liability to error. If Crusoe, on the other hand, had known of the poison and eaten the mushrooms anyway, perhaps for kicks or from a very high time preference, then his decision would have been objectively immoral an act deliberately set against his life and health. It may well be asked why life should be an objective ultimate value, why man should opt for life in duration and quality. In reply, we may note that a proposition rises to the status of an axiom when he who denies it may be shown to be using it in the very course of the supposed refutation. Now, any person participating in any sort of discussion, including one on values, is, by virtue of so participating, alive and affirming life. For if he were really opposed to life, he would have no business in such a discussion. Indeed, he would have no business continuing to be alive. Hence, the supposed opponent of life is really affirming it in the very process of his discussion, and hence the preservation and furtherance of one's life takes on the stature of an incontestable axiom. We have seen that Crusoe, as in the case of any man, has freedom of will, freedom to choose the course of his life and his actions. 
Some critics have charged that this freedom is illusory, because man is bound by natural laws. This, however, is a misrepresentation. One of the many examples of the persistent modern confusion between freedom and power. Man is free to adopt values and to choose his actions, but this does not at all mean that he may violate natural laws with impunity, that he may, for example, leap oceans at a single bound. In short, when we say that man is not free to leap the ocean, we are really discussing not his lack of freedom, but his lack of power to cross the ocean, given the laws of his nature and of the nature of the world. Crusoe's freedom to adopt ideas, to choose his ends, is inviolable and inalienable. On the other hand, man, not being omnipotent as well as not being omniscient, always finds his power limited for doing all the things that he would like to do. In short, his power is necessarily limited by natural laws, but not his freedom of will. To put the case another way, it is patently absurd to define the freedom of an entity as its power to perform an act impossible for its nature. If a man's free will to adopt ideas and values is inalienable, his freedom of action his freedom to put these ideas into effect in the world is not in such a fortunate condition. Again, we are not talking about the limitations on man's power inherent in the laws of his own nature and of the natures of other entities. What we are talking about now is interference with his sphere of action by other people. But here we are getting a bit ahead of Robinson Crusoe and our discussion. Suffice it to say now that, in the sense of social freedom, of freedom as absence of molestation by other persons, Crusoe is absolutely free, but that a world of more than one person requires our further investigation. Since in this book we are interested in social and political philosophy rather than in philosophy proper, we shall be interested in the term freedom in this social or interpersonal sense, rather than in the sense of freedom of will. Let us now return to our analysis of Crusoe's purposeful transformation of nature-given data through the understanding of natural laws. Crusoe finds virgin unused land on the island, land in short, unused and uncontrolled by anyone, and hence, unowned. By finding land resources, by learning how to use them, and, in particular, by actually transforming them into a more useful shape, Crusoe has, in the memorable phrase of John Locke, mixed his labor with the soil. In doing so, in stamping the imprint of his personality and his energy on the land, he has naturally converted the land and its fruits into his property. Hence the isolated man owns what he uses and transforms. Therefore, in his case, there is no problem of what should be A's property as against B's. Any man's property is, ipso facto, what he produces, that is, what he transforms into use by his own effort. His property in land and capital goods continues down the various stages of production until Crusoe comes to own the consumer goods which he has produced, until they finally disappear through his consumption of them.
As long as an individual remains isolated, then, there is no problem whatever about how far his property, his ownership, extends. As a rational being with free will, it extends over his own body, and it extends further over the material goods which he transforms with his labor. Suppose that Crusoe had landed not on a small island, but on a new and virgin continent, and that standing on the shore he had claimed ownership of the entire new continent by virtue of his prior discovery. This assertion would be sheer empty vainglory, so long as no one else came upon the continent. For the natural fact is that his true property— his actual control over material goods would extend only so far as his actual labor brought them into production. His true ownership could not extend beyond the power of his own reach. Later on, when other people arrived on the continent, they too, in natural fact, would own the lands which they transformed by their labor. The first man could only obtain ownership of them by the use of invasive force against their natural property, or by receiving them from the newcomers in voluntary gift or exchange. Similarly, it would be empty and meaningless for Crusoe to trumpet that he does not really own some or all of what he has produced. Perhaps this Crusoe happens to be a romantic opponent of the property concept. For, in fact, the use and, therefore, the ownership has already been his. Crusoe, in natural fact, owns his own self and the extension of his self into the material world, neither more nor less. Chapter 7 Interpersonal Relations Voluntary Exchange it is now time to bring other men into our Robinsonian idol, to extend our analysis to interpersonal relations. The problem for our analysis is not simply more people. After all, we could simply postulate a world of a million Crusoes on a million isolated islands, and our analysis would not need to be expanded by one iota. The problem is to analyze the interaction of these people. Friday, for example, might land in another part of the island and make contact with Crusoe, or he might land on a separate island and then later construct a boat that could reach the other island. Economics has revealed a great truth about the natural law of human interaction, that not only is production essential to man's prosperity and survival, but so also is exchange. In short, Crusoe, on his island or part thereof, might produce fish, while Friday, on his part, might grow wheat, instead of both trying to produce both commodities. By exchanging part of Crusoe's fish for some of Friday's wheat, the two men can greatly improve the amount of both fish and bread that both can enjoy. This great gain for both men is made possible by two primordial facts of nature natural laws, on which all of economic theory is based. a. The great variety of skills and interests among individual persons, and b. The variety of natural resources in geographic land areas. 
If all people were equally skilled and equally interested in all matters, and if all areas of land were homogeneous with all others, there would be no room for exchanges. But in the world as it is, the opportunity for specialization in the best uses for land and people enables exchanges to multiply vastly and immensely to raise the productivity and the standard of living, the satisfaction of wants, of all those participating in exchange. If anyone wishes to grasp how much we owe to the processes of exchange, let him consider what would happen in the modern world if every man were suddenly prohibited from exchanging anything with anyone else. Each person would be forced to produce all of his own goods and services himself. The utter chaos, the total starvation of the great bulk of the human race, and the reversion to primitive subsistence by the remaining handful of people, can readily be imagined. Another remarkable fact of human action is that A and B can specialize and exchange for their mutual benefit, even if one of them is superior to the other in both lines of production. Thus suppose that Crusoe is superior to Friday in fish and wheat production. It still benefits Crusoe to concentrate on what he is relatively best at. If, for example, he is a far better fisherman than Friday, but only a moderately better farmer, he can gain more of both products by concentrating on fishing, and then exchanging his produce for Friday's wheat. Or, to use an example from an advanced exchange economy, it will pay a physician to hire a secretary for typing, filing, etc., even if he is better at the latter jobs, in order to free his time for far more productive work. This insight into the advantages of exchange, discovered by David Ricardo in his Law of Comparative Advantage, means that in the free market of voluntary exchanges, the strong do not devour or crush the weak, contrary to common assumptions about the nature of the free market economy. On the contrary, it is precisely on the free market where the weak reap the advantages of productivity, because it benefits the strong to exchange with them. The process of exchange enables man to ascend from primitive isolation to civilization. It enormously widens his opportunities and the market for his wares. It enables him to invest in machines and other high-order capital goods. It forms a pattern of exchanges, the free market, which enables him to calculate economically the benefits and the costs of highly complex methods and aggregates of production. But economists too often forget, in contemplating the critical importance and the glories of the free market, what, precisely, is being exchanged. For apples are not simply being exchanged for butter or gold for horses. What is really being exchanged is not the commodities themselves, but the rights to ownership of them. When Smith exchanges a bag of apples for Jones' pound of butter, he is actually transferring his ownership rights in the apples in exchange for the ownership rights to the butter, and vice versa. Now that Smith, rather than Jones, is the absolute controller of the butter, it is Smith who may eat it or not at his will. Jones now has nothing to say in its disposition, 
and is instead absolute owner of the apples. Returning now to Crusoe and Friday, suppose that more people, C, D, E, join Crusoe and Friday on the island. Each specializes in different products. Gradually, one particular product emerges because of such qualities as high value, steady demand, ready divisibility, as a medium of exchange. For it is discovered that the use of a medium enormously expands the scope of exchanges and the wants that can be satisfied on the market. Thus a writer or an economics teacher would be hard put to exchange his teaching or writing services for loaves of bread, parts of a radio, a piece of a suit, etc. A generally acceptable medium is indispensable for any extensive network of exchange, and hence for any civilized economy. Such a generally acceptable medium of exchange is defined as a money. It has generally been found on the free market that the best commodities for use as money have been the precious metals, gold and silver. The exchange sequence now appears as follows. A. Owning his body and his labor, finds land, transforms it, produces fish, which he then owns. B. Uses his labor similarly to produce wheat, which he then owns. C. Finds land containing gold transforms it, produces the gold, which he then owns. C then exchanges the gold for other services, say A's fish. A uses the gold to exchange for B's wheat, etc. In short, the gold enters circulation, that is, its ownership is transferred from person to person as it is used as a general medium of exchange. In each case, the exchangers transfer ownership rights, and in each case, ownership rights are acquired in two ways and two ways only. A. By finding and transforming resources, producing, and B. By exchanging one's produce for someone else's product, including the medium of exchange, or money, commodity and it is clear that method B reduces logically to A, for the only way a person can obtain something in exchange is by giving up his own product. In short, there is only one route to ownership of goods, production and exchange. If Smith gives up a product in exchange for Jones's, which Jones also acquired in a previous exchange, then someone whether the person from whom Jones bought the product or someone else down the line must have been the original finder and transformer of the resource. A man, then, can acquire wealth, a stock of useful capital or consumer goods, either by producing it himself or by selling to its producer some other product in exchange. The exchange process reduces logically back to original production. Such production is a process by which a man mixes his labor with the soil, finding and transforming land resources, or, in such cases as a teacher or writer, by producing and selling one's own labor services directly. Put another way, since all production of capital goods reduces ultimately back to the original factors of land and labor, 
All production reduces back either to labor services or to finding new and virgin land and putting it into production by means of labor energy. A man may also obtain wealth voluntarily in another way, through gifts. Thus Crusoe, upon stumbling on Friday at another end of the island, may give him some sustenance. In such a case the giver receives not another alienable good or service from the other party, but the psychic satisfaction of having done something for the receiver. In the case of a gift, also, the process of acquisition reduces back to production and exchange, and again, ultimately, to production itself, since a gift must be preceded by production if not directly, as in this case, then somewhere back down the line. We have so far analyzed the exchange process for a multitude of exchanges of consumer goods. We must now complete our picture of the real world by analyzing exchanges along the structure of production. For exchanges in an advanced economy are not only horizontal, of consumer goods, but also vertical, they proceed downward from the original transformation of land, down through the various types of capital goods, and finally to the ultimate state of consumption. Let us consider a simple vertical pattern as it occurs in the exchange economy. Smith transforms land resources and constructs an axe. Instead of using the axe to make another product, Smith, as a specialist in a vast exchange economy, sells his axe for gold, money. Smith, producer of the axe, transfers his right of ownership to Jones in exchange for a certain amount of Jones's gold, the precise amount of gold being agreed upon voluntarily by the two parties. Jones now takes the axe and fells lumber, then sells the lumber to Johnson for gold. Johnson, in turn, sells the lumber to Robbins, a contractor, for gold, and Robbins, in his turn, constructs a house in exchange for the gold of his client, Benton. It should be evident that this vertical network of exchange could not take place without the use of a monetary medium for the exchanges. To complete our picture of a market economy, let us suppose that Jones has cut down his lumber, but has to ship it down river to transfer it to Johnson. Jones then sells the lumber to another intermediary, Polk, who hires the labor services of X, Y, and Z to transport the logs to Johnson. What has happened here, and why doesn't the use of X, Y, and Z's labor in transforming and transporting the logs to a more useful place give them rights to ownership of the logs? What has happened is this. Polk transfers some gold to X and to Y and to Z in return for their selling to him their labor services of transporting the logs. Polk did not sell the logs to these men for money. Instead, he sold them money in exchange for employing their labor services on his logs. In short, Polk may have bought the logs from Jones for forty gold ounces, and then paid X, Y, and Z twenty gold ounces each to transport the logs, and then sold the logs to Johnson for one hundred ten ounces of gold. Hence, Polk netted a gain of ten gold ounces on the entire transaction. 
X, Y, and Z, if they had so desired, could have purchased the logs from Jones themselves for the forty ounces, and then shipped the logs themselves, sold them to Johnson for one hundred ten, and pocketed the ten extra ounces. Why didn't they? Because A, they didn't have the capital. In short, they hadn't saved up the requisite money by reducing their previous consumption sufficiently below their income to accumulate the forty ounces. And or, B, they wanted money payment while they worked, and were not willing to wait for the number of months it took for the logs to be shipped and sold. And or, C, they were unwilling to be saddled with the risk that the logs might indeed not be saleable for a hundred ten ounces. Thus the indispensable and enormously important function of Polk, the capitalist in our example of the market economy, is to save the laborers from the necessity of restricting their consumption and thus saving up the capital themselves and from waiting for their pay until the product would, hopefully, be sold at a profit further down the chain of production. Hence the capitalist, far from somehow depriving the laborer of his rightful ownership of the product, makes possible a payment to the laborer considerably in advance of the sale of the product. Furthermore, the capitalist, in his capacity as forecaster or entrepreneur, saves the laborer from the risk that the product might not be sold at a profit, or that he might even suffer losses. The capitalist, then, is a man who has labored, saved out of his labor, that is, has restricted his consumption, and, in a series of voluntary contracts, has a. purchased ownership rights in capital goods, and b paid the laborers for their labor services in transforming those capital goods into goods nearer the final stage of being consumed. Note again that no one is preventing the laborers themselves from saving, purchasing capital goods from their owners, and then working on their own capital goods, finally selling the product and reaping the profits. In fact, the capitalists are conferring a great benefit on these laborers, making possible the entire complex vertical network of exchanges in the modern economy, for they save the money needed to buy the capital goods and to pay the laborers in advance of sale for producing them further. At each step of the way, then, a man produces by exerting his labor upon tangible goods. If this good was previously unused and unowned, then his labor automatically brings the good under his control, his ownership. If the good was already owned by someone else, then the owner may either sell this capital good to our laborer for money, after which his labor is exerted on the good, or the previous owner may purchase the labor service for money, in order to produce the good further and then sell it to the next buyer. This process, too, reduces back to the original production of unused resources and to labor, since the capitalist, the previous owner in our example, ultimately derived his own ownership from original production, voluntary exchange, and the saving of money. Thus, all ownership on the free market reduces ultimately back to a ownership by each man of his own person and his own labor, b. 
ownership by each man of land which he finds unused and transforms by his own labor, and c. the exchange of the products of this mixture of a and b with the similarly produced output of other persons on the market. The same law holds true for all ownership, on the market, of the money commodity. As we have seen, money is either one, produced by one's own labor transforming original resources, for example, mining gold, or two, obtained by selling one's own product, or selling goods previously purchased with the proceeds of one's own product, in exchange for gold owned by someone else. Again, just as C in the previous paragraph reduces logically back to A and B, production coming before exchange, so here, 2 ultimately reduces logically back to 1. In the free society we have been describing, then, all ownership reduces ultimately back to each man's naturally given ownership over himself, and of the land resources that man transforms and brings into production. The free market is a society of voluntary and consequently mutually beneficial exchanges of ownership titles between specialized producers. It has often been charged that this market economy rests on the wicked doctrine that labor is treated as a commodity. But the natural fact is that labor service is indeed a commodity, for, as in the case of tangible property, one's own labor service can be alienated and exchanged for other goods and services. A person's labor service is alienable, but his will is not. It is most fortunate, moreover, for mankind that this is so. For this alienability means, one, that a teacher or physician or whatever can sell his labor services for money, and two, that workers can sell their labor services in transforming goods to capitalists for money. If this could not be done, the structure of capital required for civilization could not be developed, and no one's vital labor services could be purchased by his fellow men. The distinction between a man's alienable labor service and his inalienable will may be further explained. A man can alienate his labor service, but he cannot sell the capitalized future value of that service. In short, he cannot in nature sell himself into slavery and have this sale enforced, for this would mean that his future will over his own person was being surrendered in advance. In short, a man can naturally expend his labor currently for someone else's benefit, but he cannot transfer himself, even if he wished, into another man's permanent capital good, for he cannot rid himself of his own will, which may change in future years and repudiate the current arrangement. The concept of voluntary slavery is indeed a contradictory one. For so long as a laborer remains totally subservient to his master's will voluntarily, he is not yet a slave, since his submission is voluntary. Whereas if he later changed his mind and the master enforced his slavery by violence, the slavery would not then be voluntary, but more of coercion later on. The society that we have been describing in this section 
the Society of Free and Voluntary Exchanges, may be called the Free Society or the Society of Pure Liberty. The bulk of this work will be devoted to spelling out the implications of such a system. The term free market, while properly signifying the critically important network of free and voluntary exchanges, is insufficient when going at all beyond the narrowly economic or praxeologic. For it is vital to realize that the free market is exchanges of titles to property, and that therefore the free market is necessarily embedded in a larger free society, with a certain pattern of property rights and ownership titles. We have been describing the free society as one where property titles are founded on the basic natural facts of man, each individual's ownership by his ego over his own person and his own labor, and his ownership over the land resources which he finds and transforms. The natural alienability of tangible property, as well as man's labor service, makes possible the network of free exchanges of ownership titles. The regime of pure liberty, the libertarian society, may be described as a society where no ownership titles are distributed, where, in short, no man's property in his person or intangibles is molested, violated, or interfered with by anyone else. But this means that absolute freedom in the social sense can be enjoyed not only by an isolated Crusoe, but by every man in any society, no matter how complex or advanced. For every man enjoys absolute freedom, pure liberty, if, like Crusoe, his naturally owned property, in his person and intangibles, is free from invasion or molestation by other men. And, of course, being in a society of voluntary exchanges, each man can enjoy absolute liberty not in Crusoe-like isolation, but in a milieu of civilization, harmony, sociability, and enormously greater productivity through exchanges of property with his fellow men. Absolute freedom, then, need not be lost as the price we must pay for the advent of civilization. Men are born free and need never be in chains. Man may achieve liberty and abundance, freedom and civilization. This truth will be obscured if we persist in confusing freedom or liberty with power. We have seen the absurdity of saying that man does not have free will because he has not the power to violate the laws of his nature, because he cannot leap oceans at a single bound. It is similarly absurd to say that a man is not truly free in the free society, because in that society no man is free to aggress against another man, or to invade his property. Here again, the critic is not really dealing with freedom, but with power. In a free society, no man would be permitted, or none would permit himself, to invade the property of another. This would mean that his power of action would be limited, as man's power is always limited by his nature. It would not mean any curtailment of his freedom. For if we define freedom, again, as the absence of invasion by another man of any man's person or property, the fatal confusion of freedom and power is at last laid to rest. 
We shall see later that this definition of freedom or liberty must be clarified to read absence of molestation of a man's just property, with justice implying once again ownership title to one's own self, to one's own transformed property, and to the fruits of voluntary exchanges built upon them. We then see clearly that a supposed freedom to steal or assault, in short, to aggress, would not be a state of freedom at all, because it would permit someone, the victim of an assault, to be deprived of his right to person and property, in short, to have his liberty violated. Each man's power, then, is always necessarily limited by the facts of the human condition, by the nature of man and his world. But it is one of the glories of man's condition that each person can be absolutely free, even in a world of complex interaction and exchange. It is still true, moreover, that any man's power to act and do and consume is enormously greater in such a world of complex interaction than it could be in a primitive or Crusoe society. A Vital Point If we are trying to set up an ethic for man, in our case, the subset of ethics dealing with violence, then to be a valid ethic, the theory must hold true for all men, whatever their location in time or place. This is one of the notable attributes of natural law, its applicability to all men, regardless of time or place. Thus, ethical natural law takes its place alongside physical or scientific natural laws. But the society of liberty is the only society that can apply the same basic rule to every man, regardless of time or place. Here is one of the ways in which reason can select one theory of natural law over a rival theory just as reason can choose between many economic or other competing theories. Thus, if someone claims that the Hohenzollern or Bourbon families have the natural right to rule everyone else, this kind of doctrine is easily refutable by simply pointing to the fact that there is here no uniform ethic for every person one's rank in the ethical order being dependent on the accident of being or not being a Hohenzollern. Similarly, if someone says that every man has a natural right to three square meals a day, it is glaringly obvious that this is a fallacious natural law or natural rights theory, for there are innumerable times and places where it is physically impossible to provide three square meals for all, or even for the majority of the population. Hence this cannot be set forth as some kind of natural right. On the other hand, consider the universal status of the ethic of liberty, and of the natural right of person and property that obtains under such an ethic. For every person, at any time or place, can be covered by the basic rules. Ownership of one's own self, ownership of the previously unused resources which one has occupied and transformed, and ownership of all titles derived from that basic ownership, either through voluntary exchanges or voluntary gifts. These rules, which we might call the rules of natural ownership, can clearly be applied and such ownership defended, regardless of the time or place, 
and regardless of the economic attainments of the society. It is impossible for any other social system to qualify as universal natural law, for if there is any coercive rule by one person or group over another, and all rule partakes of such hegemony, then it is impossible to apply the same rule for all. Only a rulerless, purely libertarian world can fulfill the qualifications of natural rights and natural law, or, more important, can fulfill the conditions of a universal ethic for all mankind. Chapter 8 Interpersonal Relations Ownership and Aggression We have so far been discussing the free society the Society of Peaceful Cooperation and Voluntary Interpersonal Relations. There is, however, another and contrasting type of interpersonal relation, the use of aggressive violence by one man against another. What such aggressive violence means is that one man invades the property of another without the victim's consent. The invasion may be against a man's property in his person, as in the case of bodily assault or against his property in tangible goods, as in robbery or trespass. In either case, the aggressor imposes his will over the natural property of another. He deprives the other man of his freedom of action and of the full exercise of his natural self-ownership. Let us set aside for a moment the corollary but more complex case of tangible property, and concentrate on the question of a man's ownership rights to his own body. Here there are two alternatives. Either we may lay down a rule that each man should be permitted, that is, have the right to, the full ownership of his own body, or we may rule that he may not have such complete ownership. If he does, then we have the libertarian natural law for a free society as treated above. But if he does not, if each man is not entitled to full and one hundred percent self-ownership, then what does this imply? It implies either one of two conditions. One, the communist one of universal and equal other ownership, or two, partial ownership of one group by another, a system of rule by one class over another. These are the only logical alternatives to a state of 100% self-ownership for all. Professor George Mavrodes of the Department of Philosophy of the University of Michigan objects that there is another logical alternative, namely that no one owns anybody, either himself or anyone else, nor any share of anybody. However, since ownership signifies range of control, this would mean that no one would be able to do anything, and the human race would quickly vanish. Let us consider alternative two. Here, one person or group of persons, G, are entitled to own not only themselves, but also the remainder of society, R. But, apart from many other problems and difficulties with this kind of system, we cannot here have a universal or natural law ethic for the human race. We can only have a partial and arbitrary ethic, similar to the view that Hohenzollerns are by nature entitled to rule over non-Hohenzollerns. 
Indeed, the ethic which states that class G is entitled to rule over class R implies that the latter, R, are subhuman beings who do not have a right to participate as full humans in the rights of self-ownership enjoyed by G. But this, of course, violates the initial assumption that we are carving out an ethic for human beings as such. What then of Alternative 1? This is the view that, considering individuals A, B, C, no man is entitled to 100% ownership of his own person. Instead, an equal part of the ownership of A's body should be vested in B, C, and the same should hold true for each of the others. This view, at least, does have the merit of being a universal rule, applying to every person in the society but it suffers from numerous other difficulties. In the first place, in practice, if there are more than a very few people in the society, this alternative must break down and reduce to alternative two, partial rule by some over others. For it is physically impossible for everyone to keep continual tabs on everyone else, and thereby to exercise his equal share of partial ownership over every other man. In practice, then, this concept of universal and equal other ownership is utopian and impossible, and supervision, and therefore ownership of others, necessarily becomes a specialized activity of a ruling class. Hence, no society which does not have full self-ownership for everyone can enjoy a universal ethic. For this reason alone, 100% self-ownership for every man is the only viable political ethic for mankind. But suppose for the sake of argument that this utopia could be sustained. What then? In the first place, it is surely absurd to hold that no man is entitled to own himself, and yet to hold that each of these very men is entitled to own a part of all other men. But more than that, would our utopia be desirable? Can we picture a world in which no man is free to take any action whatsoever without prior approval by everyone else in society? Clearly, no man would be able to do anything, and the human race would quickly perish. But if a world of zero or near-zero self-ownership spells death for the human race, then any steps in that direction also contravene the law of what is best for man and his life on earth. And, as we saw above, any ethic where one group is given full ownership of another violates the most elemental rule for any ethic that it apply to every man. No partial ethics are any better, though they may seem superficially more plausible, than the theory of all power to the Hohenzollerns. In contrast, the society of absolute self-ownership for all rests on the primordial fact of natural self-ownership by every man, and on the fact that each man may only live and prosper as he exercises his natural freedom of choice adopts values, learns how to achieve them, etc. By virtue of being a man, he must use his mind to adopt ends and means. If someone aggresses against him to change his freely selected course, this violates his nature. It violates the way he must function. 
In short, an aggressor interposes violence to thwart the natural course of a man's freely adopted ideas and values, and to thwart his actions based upon such values. We cannot fully explain the natural laws of property and of violence without expanding our discussion to cover tangible property. For men are not floating wraiths, they are beings who can only survive by grappling with and transforming material objects. Let us return to our island of Crusoe and Friday. Crusoe, isolated at first, has used his free will and self-ownership to learn about his wants and values, and how to satisfy them by transforming nature-given resources through mixing them with his labor. He has thereby produced and created property. Now suppose that Friday lands in another part of this island. He confronts two possible courses of action. He may, like Crusoe, become a producer, transform unused soil by his labor, and most likely exchange his product for that of the other man. In short, he may engage in production and exchange, in also creating property. Or he may decide upon another course. He may spare himself the effort of production and exchange, and go over and seize by violence the fruits of Crusoe's labor. He may aggress against the producer. If Friday chooses the course of labor and production, then he, in natural fact, as in the case of Crusoe, will own the land area which he clears and uses, as well as the fruits of its product. But, as we have noted above, suppose that Crusoe decides to claim more than his natural degree of ownership and asserts that, by virtue of merely landing first on the island, he really owns the entire island, even though he had made no previous use of it. If he does so, then he is, in our view, illegitimately pressing his property claim beyond its homesteading natural law boundaries, and if he uses that claim to try to eject Friday by force, then he is illegitimately aggressing against the person and property of the second homesteader. Some theorists have maintained, in what we might call the Columbus Complex, that the first discoverer of a new unowned island or continent can rightfully own the entire area by simply asserting his claim. In that case, Columbus, if in fact he had actually landed on the American continent, and if there had been no Indians living there, could have rightfully asserted his private ownership of the entire continent. In natural fact, however, since Columbus would only have been able actually to use, to mix his labor with, a small part of the continent, the rest then properly continues to be unowned until the next homesteaders arrive and carve out their rightful property in parts of the continent. A modified variant of this Columbus complex holds that the first discoverer of a new island or continent could properly lay claim to the entire continent by himself walking around it or hiring others to do so, and thereby laying out a boundary for the area. In our view, however, their claim would still be no more than to the boundary itself and not to any of the land within it, for only the boundary will have been transformed and used by man. 
Let us turn from Crusoe and Friday and consider the question of a sculptor who has just created a work of sculpture by transforming clay and other materials, and let us for the moment waive the question of property rights in the clay and the tools. The question now becomes, who should properly own this work of art as it emerges from the fashioning of the sculptor? Once again, as in the case of the ownership of people's bodies, there are only three logical positions. One, that the sculptor, the creator of the work of art, should have the property right in his creation. Two, that another man or group of men have the right in that creation, that is, to expropriate it by force without the sculptor's consent. Or three, the communist solution that every individual in the world has an equal, quotal right to share in the ownership of the sculpture. Put this starkly, there are very few people who would deny the monstrous injustice in either a group or the world community seizing ownership of the sculpture. For the sculptor has, in fact, created this work of art. Not, of course, in the sense that he has created matter, but that he has produced it by transforming nature-given matter, the clay, into another form in accordance with his own ideas and his own labor and energy. Surely, if every man has the right to own his own body, and if he must use and transform material natural objects in order to survive, then he has the right to own the product that he has made by his energy and effort into a veritable extension of his own personality. Such is the case of the sculptor, who has placed the stamp of his own person on the raw material by mixing his labor with the clay. But if the sculptor has done so, then so has every producer who has homesteaded or mixed his labor with the objects of nature. Any group of people who expropriated the work of the sculptor would be clearly aggressive and parasitical, benefiting at the expense of the expropriated. As most people would agree, they would be clearly violating the right of the sculptor to his product, to the extension of his personality. And this would be true whether a group or the world commune did the expropriation. Except that, as in the case of communal ownership of persons, in practice this expropriation would have to be performed by a group of men in the name of the world community. But, as we have indicated, if the sculptor has the right to his own product, or transformed materials of nature, then so have the other producers. So have the men who extracted the clay from the ground and sold it to the sculptor or the men who produced the tools with which he worked on the clay. For these men, too, were producers. They, too, mixed their ideas and their technological know-how with the nature-given soil to emerge with a valued product. They, too, have mixed their labor and energies with the soil, and so they, too, are entitled to the ownership of the goods they produced. If every man has the right to own his own person, and therefore his own labor, and if by extension he owns whatever property he has created or gathered out of the previously unused, unowned state of nature, then who has the right to own or control the earth itself? In short, if the gatherer has the right to own the acorns or berries he picks, or the farmer his crop of wheat, 
Who has the right to own the land on which these activities have taken place? Again, the justification for the ownership of ground land is the same for that of any other property. For no man actually ever creates matter. What he does is to take nature-given matter and transform it by means of his ideas and labor energy. But this is precisely what the pioneer, the homesteader, does when he clears and uses previously unused virgin land and brings it into his private ownership. The homesteader, just as the sculptor or miner, has transformed the nature-given soil by his labor and his personality. The homesteader is just as much a producer as the others, and therefore just as legitimately the owner of his property. As in the case of the sculptor, it is difficult to see the morality of some other group expropriating the product and labor of the homesteader. And, as in the other cases, the world communist solution boils down in practice to a ruling group. Furthermore, the land communalists, who claim that the entire world population really owns the land in common, run up against the natural fact that before the homesteader no one really used and controlled, and hence owned, the land. The pioneer or homesteader is the man who first brings the valueless, unused natural objects into production and use. And so there are only two paths for man to acquire property and wealth, production or coercive expropriation. Or, as the great German sociologist Franz Oppenheimer perceptively put it, there are only two means to the acquisition of wealth. One is the method of production, generally followed by voluntary exchange of such products. This is what Oppenheimer called the economic means. The other method is the unilateral seizure of the products of another, the expropriation of another man's property by violence. This predatory method of getting wealth Oppenheimer aptly termed the political means. Now the man who seizes another's property is living in basic contradiction to his own nature as a man. For we have seen that man can only live and prosper by his own production and exchange of products. The aggressor, on the other hand, is not a producer at all, but a predator. He lives parasitically off the labor and product of others. Hence, instead of living in accordance with the nature of man, the aggressor is a parasite who feeds unilaterally by exploiting the labor and energy of other men. Here is clearly a complete violation of any kind of universal ethic, for man clearly cannot live as a parasite. Parasites must have non-parasites, producers, to feed upon. The parasite not only fails to add to the social total of goods and services, he depends completely on the production of the host body, and yet, any increase in coercive parasitism decreases ipso facto the quantity and the output of the producers, until finally, if the producers die out, the parasites will quickly follow suit. Thus, parasitism cannot be a universal ethic, and in fact, the growth of parasitism attacks and diminishes the production by which both host and parasite survive. 
coercive exploitation or parasitism injure the processes of production for everyone in the society. Any way that it may be considered, parasitic predation and robbery violate not only the nature of the victim whose self and product are violated, but also the nature of the aggressor himself, who abandons the natural way of production, of using his mind to transform nature and exchange with other producers, for the way of parasitic expropriation of the work and product of others. In the deepest sense, the aggressor injures himself as well as his unfortunate victim. This is fully as true for the complex modern society as it is for Crusoe and Friday on their island. Chapter 9 Property and Criminality We may define anyone who aggresses against the person or other produced property of another as a criminal. A criminal is anyone who initiates violence against another man and his property, anyone who uses the coercive political means for the acquisition of goods and services. Now, however, critical problems arise. We are now indeed at the very heart of the entire problem of liberty, property, and violence in society. A crucial question and one which has unfortunately been almost totally neglected by libertarian theorists, may be illustrated by the following examples. Suppose we are walking down the street and we see a man, A, seizing B by the wrist and grabbing B's wristwatch. There is no question that A is here violating both the person and the property of B. Can we then simply infer from this scene that A is a criminal aggressor and B his innocent victim? Certainly not, for we don't know simply from our observation whether A is indeed a thief or whether A is merely repossessing his own watch from B who had previously stolen it from him. In short, while the watch had undoubtedly been B's property until the moment of A's attack, we don't know whether or not A had been the legitimate owner at some earlier time and had been robbed by B. Therefore, we do not yet know which one of the two men is the legitimate or just property owner. We can only find the answer through investigating the concrete data of the particular case that is, through historical inquiry. Thus we cannot simply say that the great axiomatic moral rule of the libertarian society is the protection of property rights, period. For the criminal has no natural right whatever to the retention of property that he has stolen. The aggressor has no right to claim any property that he has acquired by aggression. Therefore, we must modify or rather clarify the basic rule of the libertarian society to say that no one has the right to aggress against the legitimate or just property of another. In short, we cannot simply talk of defense of property rights or of private property per se. For if we do so, we are in grave danger of defending the property right of a criminal aggressor. In fact, we logically must do so. We may, therefore, only speak of just property or legitimate property, or perhaps natural property. 
and this means that in concrete cases we must decide whether any single given act of violence is aggressive or defensive. For example, whether it is a case of a criminal robbing a victim or of a victim trying to repossess his property. Another vital implication of this way of looking at the world is to invalidate totally the utilitarian way of looking at property rights, and therefore of looking at the free market. For the utilitarian, who has no conception, let alone theory, of justice, must fall back on the pragmatic ad hoc view that all titles to private property currently existing at any time or place must be treated as valid and accepted as worthy of defense against violation. This, in fact, is the way utilitarian free market economists invariably treat the question of property rights. Note, however, that the utilitarian has managed to smuggle into his discussion an unexamined ethic, that all goods now, the time and place at which the discussion occurs, considered private property, must be accepted and defended as such. In practice, this means that all private property titles designated by any existing government which as everywhere sees the monopoly of defining titles to property, must be accepted as such. This is an ethic that is blind to all considerations of justice, and, pushed to its logical conclusion, must also defend every criminal in the property that he has managed to expropriate. We conclude that the utilitarian simply praising a free market based upon all existing property titles is invalid, and ethically nihilistic. I am convinced, however, that the real motor for social and political change in our time has been a moral indignation arising from the fallacious theory of surplus value, that the capitalists have stolen the rightful property of the workers, and therefore that existing titles to accumulated capital are unjust. Given this hypothesis, the remainder of the impetus for both Marxism and anarcho-syndicalism follow quite logically. From an apprehension of what appears to be monstrous injustice flows the call for expropriation of the expropriators, and, in both cases, for some form of reversion of the ownership and the control of the property to the workers. In this sense, the only proper carrying out of the Marxian ideal has partially occurred in Yugoslavia, where the communist regime has turned the socialized sphere of production over to the control, and hence de facto ownership, of the workers in each particular plant. Their arguments cannot be successfully countered by the maxims of utilitarian economics or philosophy but only by dealing forthrightly with the moral problem, with the problem of the justice or injustice of various claims to property. Neither can Marxist views be rebutted by utilitarian peons to the virtues of social peace. Social peace is all very well, but true peace is essentially the quiet, unmolested enjoyment of one's legitimate property and if a social system is founded upon monstrously unjust property titles, not molesting them is not peace, but rather the enshrinement and entrenchment of permanent aggression. Neither can the Marxists be rebutted by pointing the finger at their use of violent methods of overthrow. 
It is, to be sure, a consistent creed, though one that I do not share, that no violence should ever be used by anyone against anyone else, even by a victim against a criminal. But this Tolstoyan-Gandhian moral position is really irrelevant here, for the point at question is whether or not the victim has a moral right to employ violence in defending his person or property against criminal attack, or in repossessing property from the criminal. The Tolstoyan may concede that the victim has such a right, but may try to persuade him not to exercise that right in the name of a higher morality. But this takes us afield from our discussion into broader reaches of ethical philosophy. I would only add here that any such total objector to violence must then be consistent and advocate that no criminal ever be punished by the use of violent means. And this implies, let us note, not only abstaining from capital punishment, but from all punishment whatsoever, and indeed from all methods of violent defense that might conceivably injure an aggressor. In short, to employ that horrid cliché to which we shall have occasion to return, the Tolstoyan may not use force to prevent someone from raping his sister. The point here is that only Tolstoyans are entitled to object to the violent overthrow of an entrenched criminal group, for everyone who is not a Tolstoyan favors the use of force and violence to defend against and punish criminal aggression. He must, therefore, favor the morality, if not the wisdom, of using force to overthrow entrenched criminality. If so, then we are pushed immediately back to the really important question, who is the criminal, and therefore, who is the aggressor? Or, in other words, against whom is it legitimate to use violence? And if we concede that capitalist property is morally illegitimate, then we cannot deny the right of the workers to employ whatever violence may be necessary to seize the property, just as A, in our above example, would have been within his rights in forcibly repossessing his watch if B had stolen it previously. The only genuine refutation of the Marxian case for revolution, then, is that capitalists' property is just rather than unjust, and that therefore its seizure by workers or by anyone else would in itself be unjust and criminal. But this means that we must enter into the question of the justice of property claims, and it means further that we cannot get away with the easy luxury of trying to refute revolutionary claims by arbitrarily placing the mantle of justice upon any and all existing property titles. Such an act will scarcely convince people who believe that they or others are being grievously oppressed and permanently aggressed against. But this also means that we must be prepared to discover cases in the world where violent expropriation of existing property titles will be morally justified, because these titles are themselves unjust and criminal. Let us again use an example to make our thesis clear. To use Ludwig von Mises' excellent device for abstracting from emotionalism, let us take a hypothetical country, Ruritania. 
Let us say that Ruritania is ruled by a king who has grievously invaded the rights of persons and the legitimate property of individuals, and has regulated and finally seized their property. A libertarian movement develops in Ruritania and comes to persuade the bulk of the populace that this criminal system should be replaced by a truly libertarian society where the rights of each man to his person and his found and created property are fully respected. The king, seeing the revolt to be imminently successful, now employs a cunning stratagem. He proclaims his government to be dissolved, but just before doing so he arbitrarily parcels out the entire land area of his kingdom to the ownership of himself and his relatives. He then goes to the libertarian rebels and says, all right, I have granted your wish, and have dissolved my rule. There is now no more violent intervention in private property. However, myself and my eleven relatives now each own one-twelfth of Ruritania, and if you disturb us in this ownership in any way, you shall be infringing upon the sanctity of the very fundamental principle that you profess, the inviolability of private property. Therefore, while we shall no longer be imposing taxes, you must grant each of us the right to impose any rents that we may wish upon our tenants, or to regulate the lives of all the people who presume to live on our property as we see fit. In this way, taxes shall be fully replaced by private rents. Now, what should be the reply of the libertarian rebels to this pert challenge? If they are consistent utilitarians, they must bow to this subterfuge, and resign themselves to living under a regime no less despotic than the one they had been battling for so long. Perhaps, indeed, more despotic, for now the king and his relatives can claim for themselves the libertarians' very principle of the absolute right of private property, an absoluteness which they might not have dared to claim before. It should be clear that for the libertarians to refute this stratagem, they must take their stand on a theory of just versus unjust property. They cannot remain utilitarians. They would then say to the king, We are sorry, but we only recognize private property claims that are just, that emanate from an individual's fundamental natural right to own himself and the property which he has either transformed by his energy or which has been voluntarily given or bequeathed to him by such transformers. We do not, in short, recognize anyone's right to any given piece of property purely on his or anyone else's arbitrary say-so that it is his own. There can be no natural moral right derivable from a man's arbitrary claim that any property is his. Therefore, we claim the right to expropriate the private property of you and your relations, and to return that property to the individual owners against whom you aggressed by imposing your illegitimate claim. One corollary that flows from this discussion is of vital importance for a theory of liberty. This is that, in the deepest sense, all property is private for all property belongs to, is controlled by, some individual persons or groups of persons. If B stole a watch from A, then the watch was B's private property, was under his control and de facto ownership, 
so long as he was allowed to possess and use it. Therefore, whether the watch was in the hands of A or B, it was in private hands, in some cases legitimate private, in others criminal private, but private just the same. As we shall see further below, the same holds for individuals forming themselves into any sort of group. Thus, when they formed the government, the king and his relatives controlled, and therefore at least partially owned, the property of the persons against whom they were aggressing. When they parceled out the land into the private property of each, they again shared in owning the country, though in formally different ways. The form of private property differed in the two cases, but not the essence. Thus the crucial question in society is not, as so many believe, whether property should be private or governmental, but rather whether the necessarily private owners are legitimate owners or criminals. For ultimately there is no entity called government. There are only people forming themselves into groups called governments, and acting in a governmental manner. All property is therefore always private. The only and critical question is whether it should reside in the hands of criminals or of the proper and legitimate owners. There is really only one reason for libertarians to oppose the formation of governmental property or to call for its divestment, the realization that the rulers of government are unjust and criminal owners of such property. In short, the laissez-faire utilitarian cannot simply oppose government ownership and defend private, for the trouble with governmental property is not so much that it is governmental, for what of private criminals like our watch-stealer, but that it is illegitimate, unjust, and criminal, as in the case of our Ruritanian king. And since private criminals are also reprehensible, we see that the social question of property cannot ultimately be treated in utilitarian terms as either private or governmental. It must be treated in terms of justice or injustice, of legitimate property owners versus illegitimate, criminal invaders of such property, whether these invaders are called private or public. The libertarian may now be getting rather worried. He may say, Granted that you are right in principle, that property titles must be validated by justice, and that neither the criminal may be allowed to keep the stolen watch, nor the king and his relatives their country, how can your principle be applied in practice? Wouldn't this involve a chaotic inquiry into everyone's property title? And furthermore, what criterion can you establish for the justice of these titles? The answer is that the criterion holds as we have explained above. The right of every individual to own his person and the property that he has found and transformed, and therefore created, and the property which he has acquired either as gifts from or in voluntary exchange with other such transformers or producers. It is true that existing property titles must be scrutinized, but the resolution of the problem is much simpler than the question assumes. For remember always the basic principle, that all resources, all goods, in a state of no ownership, belong properly to the first person who finds and transforms them into a useful good, the homestead principle.
We have seen this above in the case of unused land and natural resources. The first to find and mix his labor with them, to possess and use them, produces them, and becomes their legitimate property owner. Now suppose that Mr. Jones has a watch. If we cannot clearly show that Jones or his ancestors to the property title in the watch were criminals, then we must say that since Mr. Jones has been possessing and using it, that he is truly the legitimate and just property owner. Or, to put the case another way, if we do not know if Jones' title to any given property is criminally derived, then we may assume that this property was, at least momentarily, in a state of no ownership, since we are not sure about the original title, and therefore that the proper title of ownership reverted instantaneously to Jones as its first, that is, current, possessor and user. In short, where we are not sure about a title, but it cannot be clearly identified as criminally derived, then the title properly and legitimately reverts to its current possessor. But now suppose that a title to property is clearly identifiable as criminal. Does this necessarily mean that the current possessor must give it up? No, not necessarily, for that depends on two considerations. A. Whether the victim, the property owner originally aggressed against, or his heirs are clearly identifiable and can now be found. Or, B. Whether or not the current possessor is himself the criminal who stole the property. Suppose, for example, that Jones possesses a watch, and that we can clearly show that Jones' title is originally criminal, either because, one, his ancestor stole it, or, two, because he or his ancestor purchased it from a thief, whether wittingly or unwittingly is immaterial here. Now, if we can identify and find the victim or his heir, then it is clear that Jones' title to the watch is totally invalid, and that it must promptly revert to its true and legitimate owner. Thus, if Jones inherited or purchased the watch from a man who stole it from Smith, and if Smith or the heir to his estate can be found, then the title to the watch properly reverts immediately back to Smith or his descendants, without compensation to the existing possessor of the criminally derived title. Or it may revert to any other of Smith's assignees. Thus, Smith might have sold his claim or right to the watch to someone else, and then, if this purchaser or his heirs can be found, the legitimate property title reverts to him. Thus, if a current title to property is criminal in origin, and the victim or his heir can be found, then the title should immediately revert to the latter. Suppose, however, that condition A is not fulfilled. In short, that we know that Jones' title is criminal, but that we cannot now find the victim or his current heir. Who now is the legitimate and moral property owner? The answer to this question now depends on whether or not Jones himself is the criminal, whether Jones is the man who stole the watch. If Jones was the thief, then it is quite clear that he cannot be allowed to keep it, for the criminal cannot be allowed to keep the reward of his crime, and he loses the watch and probably suffers other punishments besides. 
In that case, who gets the watch? Applying our libertarian theory of property, the watch is now, after Jones has been apprehended, in a state of no ownership, and it must therefore become the legitimate property of the first person to homestead it, to take it and use it, and therefore to have converted it from an unused no-ownership state to a useful owned state. The first person who does so then becomes its legitimate, moral, and just owner. But suppose that Jones is not the criminal, not the man who stole the watch, but that he had inherited or had innocently purchased it from the thief. And suppose, of course, that neither the victim nor his heirs can be found. In that case, the disappearance of the victim means that the stolen property comes properly into a state of no ownership. But we have seen that any good in a state of no ownership with no legitimate owner of its title, reverts as legitimate property to the first person to come along and use it, to appropriate this now unowned resource for human use. But this first person is clearly Jones, who has been using it all along. Therefore, we conclude that even though the property was originally stolen, that if the victim or his heirs cannot be found, and if the current possessor was not the actual criminal who stole the property, then title to that property belongs properly, justly, and ethically to its current possessor. To sum up, for any property currently claimed and used, a. If we know clearly that there was no criminal origin to its current title, then obviously the current title is legitimate, just, and valid. B. If we don't know whether the current title had any criminal origins, but can't find out either way, then the hypothetically unowned property reverts instantaneously and justly to its current possessor. C. If we do know that the title is originally criminal, but can't find the victim or his heirs, then C. 1. If the current title holder was not the criminal aggressor against the property, then it reverts to him justly as the first owner of a hypothetically unowned property. But, see too, if the current title holder is himself the criminal, or one of the criminals who stole the property, then clearly he is properly to be deprived of it and it then reverts to the first man who takes it out of its unowned state and appropriates it for his use. And finally, d. If the current title is the result of crime, and the victim or his heirs can be found, then the title properly reverts immediately to the latter, without compensation to the criminal or to the other holders of the unjust title. It might be objected that the holder or holders of the unjust title, in the cases where they are not themselves the criminal aggressors, should be entitled to the property which they added on to the property which was not justly theirs, or, at the very least, to be compensated for such additions. In reply, the criterion should be whether or not the addition is separable from the original property in question. Suppose, for example, that Brown steals a car from Black, and that Brown sells the car to Robinson. In our view, then, the car must be returned immediately to the true owner, Black, without compensation to Robinson. 
Being a victim of a theft should not impose obligations on Black to recompense someone else. Of course, Robinson has a legitimate complaint against the car thief Brown and should be able to sue Brown for repayment or damages on the basis of the fraudulent contract that Brown had foisted upon him, pretending that the car was really Brown's property to sell. But suppose that Robinson, in the course of his possession of the car, had added a new car radio. Since the radio is separable from the car, he should be able to extract the radio as legitimately his own, before returning the car to Black. On the other hand, if the addition is not separable, but an integral part of the property, for example a repaired engine, then Robinson should not be able to demand any payment or property from Black, although perhaps he may be able to do so by suing Brown. Similarly, if Brown had stolen a parcel of land from Black and sold it to Robinson, the criterion should again be the separability of any additions Robinson had made to the property. If, for example, Robinson had built some buildings on the property, then he should be able to move the buildings or demolish them before turning the land over to the original landowner, Black. Our example of the stolen car enables us to see immediately the injustice of the current legal concept of the negotiable instrument. In current law, the stolen car would indeed revert to the original owner with no obligation on the owner's part to compensate the current holder of the unjust title. But the state has designated certain goods as negotiable instruments, for example, dollar bills, which the non-criminal recipient or buyer is now deemed to own, and who cannot be forced to return them to the victim. Special legislation has also made pawnbrokers into a similarly privileged class, so that if Brown steals a typewriter from Black and then pawns it with Robinson, the pawnbroker may not be forced to return the typewriter to its just property owner, Black. To some readers, our doctrine may seem harsh on good-faith recipients of goods which later turn out to be stolen and unjustly possessed. But we should remember that, in the case of land purchase, title searches are a common practice, as well as title insurance against such problems. In the libertarian society, presumably the business of title search and title insurance will become more extensive, to apply to the wider areas of the protection of the rights of just and private property. We see, then, that properly developed libertarian theory neither joins the utilitarians in placing an arbitrary and indiscriminate ethical blessing upon every current property title, nor does it open the morality of existing titles to total uncertainty and chaos. On the contrary, from the fundamental axiom of the natural right of every man to property in his self, and in the unowned resources which he finds and transforms into use, libertarian theory deduces the absolute morality and justice of all current titles to property, except where the origin of the current titles is criminal, and, one, the victim or his heirs can be identified and found, or, two, the victim cannot be found, but the current title holder is the criminal in question.
In the former case, the property reverts in common justice to the victim or his heirs. In the latter, it becomes the property of the first appropriator to alter its unowned state. We thus have a theory of the rights of property, that every man has an absolute right to the control and ownership of his own body and to unused land resources that he finds and transforms. He also has the right to give away such tangible property, though he cannot alienate control over his own person and will, and to exchange it for the similarly derived properties of others. Hence all legitimate property right derives from every man's property in his own person, as well as the homesteading principle of unowned property rightly belonging to the first possessor. We also have a theory of criminality. A criminal is someone who aggresses against such property. Any criminal titles to property should be invalidated and turned over to the victim or his heirs. If no such victims can be found, and if the current possessor is not himself the criminal, then the property justly reverts to the current possessor on our basic homesteading principle. Let us now see how this theory of property may be applied to different categories of property. The simplest case, of course, is property in persons. The fundamental axiom of libertarian theory is that each person must be a self-owner, and that no one has the right to interfere with such self-ownership. From this there follows immediately the total impermissibility of property in another person. One prominent example of this sort of property is the institution of slavery. Before 1865, for example, slavery was a private property title to many persons in the United States. The fact of such private title did not make it legitimate. On the contrary, it constituted a continuing aggression, a continuing criminality of the masters and of those who helped enforce their titles against their slaves. For here the victims were immediately and clearly identifiable, and the master was every day committing aggression against his slaves. We should also point out that, as in our hypothetical case of the king of Ruritania, Utilitarianism provides no firm basis for vacating the property right of a master in his slaves. When slavery was a common practice, much discussion raged as to whether or how much the master should be monetarily compensated for the loss of his slaves if slavery were to be abolished. This discussion was palpably absurd. For what do we do when we have apprehended a thief and recovered a stolen watch? Do we compensate the thief for the loss of the watch, or do we punish him? Surely the enslavement of a man's very person and being is a far more heinous crime than the theft of his watch, and should be dealt with accordingly. As the English classical liberal Benjamin Pearson commented acidly, the proposal had been made to compensate the slave owners, and he had thought it was the slaves who should have been compensated. And clearly, such compensation could only justly have come from the slaveholders themselves, and not from the ordinary taxpayers. 
It should be emphasized that on the question of slavery, whether or not it should have been abolished immediately is irrelevant to problems of social disruption, of the sudden impoverishing of slave masters, or of the flowering of southern culture, let alone the question, interesting, of course, on other grounds, whether slavery was good for the soil and for the economic growth of the South, or would have disappeared in one or two generations. For the libertarian, for the person who believes in justice, the sole consideration was the monstrous injustice and continuing aggression of slavery, and therefore the necessity of abolishing the institution as soon as it could be accomplished. Chapter 10. The Problem of Land Theft A particularly important application of our theory of property titles is the case of landed property. For one thing, land is a fixed quotal portion of the earth, and therefore the ground land endures virtually permanently. Historical investigation of land titles, therefore, would have to go back much further than for other more perishable goods. However, this is by no means a critical problem, for, as we have seen, where the victims are lost in antiquity, the land properly belongs to any non-criminals who are in current possession. Suppose, for example, that Henry Jones first stole a piece of land from its legitimate owner, James Smith. What is the current status of the title of current possessor, Henry Jones Tenth? or of the man who might be the current possessor by purchasing the land from Henry Jones X. If Smith and his descendants are lost to antiquity, then title to the land properly and legitimately belongs to the current Jones, or the man who has purchased it from him, in direct application of our theory of property titles. A second problem, and one that sharply differentiates land from other property, is that the very existence of capital goods, consumers' goods, or the monetary commodity, is at least a prima facie demonstration that these goods had been used and transformed, that human labor had been mixed with natural resources to produce them. For capital goods, consumer goods, and money do not exist by themselves in nature. They must be created by human labor's alteration of the given conditions of nature. But any area of land, which is given by nature, might never have been used and transformed, and therefore any existing property title to never used land would have to be considered invalid for we have seen that title to an unowned resource, such as land, comes properly only from the expenditure of labor to transform that resource into use. Therefore, if any land has never been so transformed, no one can legitimately claim its ownership. Suppose, for example, that Mr. Green legally owns a certain acreage of land, of which the northwest portion has never been transformed from its natural state by Green or by anyone else. Libertarian theory will morally validate his claim for the rest of the land, provided, as the theory requires, that there is no identifiable victim, or that Green had not himself stolen the land. But libertarian theory must invalidate his claim to ownership of the northwest portion. 
Now, so long as no settler appears who will initially transform the northwest portion, there is no real difficulty. Brown's claim may be invalid, but it is also mere meaningless verbiage. He is not yet a criminal aggressor against anyone else. But should another man appear who does transform the land, and should Green oust him by force from the property, or employ others to do so, then Green becomes at that point a criminal aggressor against land justly owned by another. The same would be true if Green should use violence to prevent another settler from entering upon this never-used land and transforming it into use. Thus, to return to our Crusoe model, Crusoe, landing upon a large island, may grandiosely trumpet to the winds his ownership of the entire island, but in natural fact he owns only the part that he settles and transforms into use. Or, as noted above, Crusoe might be a solitary Columbus landing upon a newly discovered continent. But so long as no other person appears on the scene, Crusoe's claim is so much empty verbiage and fantasy, with no foundation in natural fact. But should a newcomer, a Friday, appear on the scene and begin to transform unused land, then any enforcement of Crusoe's invalid claim would constitute criminal aggression against the newcomer and invasion of the latter's property rights. Note that we are not saying that in order for property and land to be valid, it must be continually in use. The only requirement is that the land be once put into use, and thus become the property of the one who has mixed his labor with, who imprinted the stamp of his personal energy upon the land. After that use, there is no more reason to disallow the land's remaining idle than there is to disown someone for storing his watch in a desk drawer. One form of invalid land title, then, is any claim to land that has never been put into use. The enforcement of such a claim against a first user then becomes an act of aggression against a legitimate property right. In practice, it must be noted, it is not at all difficult to distinguish land in its natural virgin state from land that has at some time been transformed by man for his use. The hand of man will in some way be evident. One problem, however, that sometimes arises in the validity of land titles is the question of adverse possession. Let us suppose that a man, green, comes upon a section of land not obviously owned by someone. There is no fence, perhaps, and no one on the premises. Green assumes that the land is unowned. He proceeds to work the land, uses it for a length of time, and then the original owner of the land appears on the scene and orders Green's eviction. Who is right? The common law of adverse possession arbitrarily sets a time span of twenty years, after which the intruder, despite his aggression against the property of another, retains absolute ownership of the land. But our libertarian theory holds that land needs only to be transformed once by man to pass into private ownership. Therefore, if green comes upon land that in any way bears the mark of a former human use, 
it is his responsibility to assume that the land is owned by someone. Any intrusion upon his land, without further inquiry, must be done at the risk of the newcomer being an aggressor. It is, of course, possible that the previously owned land has been abandoned, but the newcomer must not assume blithely that land which has obviously been transformed by man is no longer owned by anyone. He must take steps to find out if his new title to the land is clear, as we have seen is in fact done in the title search business. Of course, everyone should have the right to abandon any property he wishes. In a libertarian society, no one can be forced to own property which he wishes to abandon. On the other hand, if green comes upon land that has obviously never been transformed by anyone, he can move on to it at once and with impunity, for in the libertarian society no one can have a valid title to land that has never been transformed. In the present world, when most land areas have been pressed into service, the invalidating of land titles from never being used would not be very extensive. More important nowadays would be invalidating a land title because of a continuing seizure of landed property by aggressors. We have already discussed the case of Jones's ancestors having seized a parcel of land from the Smith family, while Jones uses and owns the land in the present day. But suppose that centuries ago Smith was tilling the soil, and therefore legitimately owning the land and then that Jones came along and settled down near Smith, claiming by use of coercion the title to Smith's land, and extracting payment or rent from Smith for the privilege of continuing to till the soil. Suppose that now, centuries later, Smith's descendants, or for that matter other unrelated families, are now tilling the soil while Jones's descendants, or those who purchase their claims, still continue to exact tribute from the modern tillers. Where is the true property right in such a case? It should be clear that here, just as in the case of slavery, we have a case of continuing aggression against the true owners, the true possessors of the land, the tillers, or peasants, by the illegitimate owner the man whose original and continuing claim to the land and its fruits has come from coercion and violence. Just as the original Jones was a continuing aggressor against the original Smith, so the modern peasants are being aggressed against by the modern holder of the Jones-derived land title. In this case of what we might call feudalism or land monopoly, the feudal or monopolist landlords have no legitimate claim to the property. The current tenants, or peasants, should be the absolute owners of their property. And, as in the case of slavery, the land titles should be transferred to the peasants without compensation to the monopoly landlords. Note that feudalism, as we have defined it, is not restricted to the case where the peasant is also coerced by violence to remain on the Lord's land to keep cultivating it, roughly the institution of serfdom. Nor is it restricted to cases where additional measures of violence are used to bolster and maintain feudal land holdings, 
such as the state's prevention by violence of any landlord's sale or bequest of his land into smaller subdivisions. Such measures include entail, forcibly preventing the landowner from selling his land, and primogeniture, coercively preventing him from bequeathing his land except intact to his eldest son. All that feudalism in our sense requires is the seizure by violence of landed property from its true owners, the transformers of land, and the continuation of that kind of relationship over the years. Feudal land rent, then, is the precise equivalent of paying a continuing annual tribute by producers to their predatory conquerors. Feudal land rent is therefore a form of permanent tribute. Note also that the peasants in question need not be the descendants of the original victims. For since the aggression is continuing so long as this relation of feudal aggression remains in force, the current peasants are the contemporary victims and the currently legitimate property owners. In short, in the case of feudal land or land monopoly, both of our conditions obtain for invalidating current property titles. For not only the original, but also the current land title is criminal, and the current victims can very easily be identified. Our above hypothetical case of the king of Ruritania and his relatives is one example of a means by which feudalism can get started in a land area. After the king's action, he and his relatives become feudal landlords of their quotal portions of Ruritania, each one extracting coercive tribute in the form of feudal rent from the inhabitants. We do not, of course, mean to imply that all land rent is illegitimate and a form of continuing tribute. On the contrary, there is no reason in a libertarian society why a person transforming land may not then rent it out or sell it to someone else. Indeed, that is precisely what will occur. How then can we distinguish between feudal rent and legitimate rent? between feudal tenancies and legitimate tenancies. Again, we apply our rules for deciding upon the validity of property titles. We look to see if the origin of the land title is criminal, and in the current case, whether the aggression upon the producers of the land, the peasants, is still continuing. If we know that these conditions hold, then there is no problem for the identification of both aggressor and victim is remarkably clear-cut. But if we don't know whether these conditions obtain, then, applying our rule, lacking a clear identifiability of the criminal, we conclude that the land title and the charge of rent is just and legitimate, and not feudal. In practice, since in a feudal situation criminality is both old and continuing, and the peasant victims are readily identifiable, feudalism is one of the easiest forms of invalid title to detect. Chapter 11. Land Monopoly, Past and Present Thus there are two types of ethically invalid land titles. Feudalism, in which there is continuing aggression by title holders of land, against peasants engaged in transforming the soil, and land engrossing, 
where arbitrary claims to virgin land are used to keep first transformers out of that land. We may call both of these aggressions land monopoly, not in the sense that some one person or group owns all the land in society, but in the sense that arbitrary privileges to land ownership are asserted in both cases, clashing with the libertarian rule of non-ownership of land except by actual transformers, their heirs, and their assigns. Land monopoly is far more widespread in the modern world than most people, especially most Americans, believe. In the undeveloped world, especially in Asia, the Middle East, and Latin America, feudal landholding is a crucial social and economic problem, with or without quasi-serf impositions on the persons of the peasantry. Indeed, of the countries of the world, the United States is one of the very few virtually free from feudalism, due to a happy accident of its historical development. Largely escaping feudalism itself, it is difficult for Americans to take the entire problem seriously. This is particularly true of American laissez-faire economists, who tend to confine their recommendations for the backward countries to preachments about the virtues of the free market. But these preachments naturally fall on deaf ears, because free market, for American conservatives, obviously does not encompass an end to feudalism and land monopoly, and the transfer of title to these lands without compensation to the peasantry. And yet, since agriculture is always the overwhelmingly most important industry in the undeveloped countries, a truly free market, a truly libertarian society devoted to justice and property rights, can only be established there by ending unjust feudal claims to property. But utilitarian economists, grounded on no ethical theory of property rights, can only fall back on defending whatever status quo may happen to exist. In this case, unfortunately, the status quo of feudal suppression of justice and of any genuinely free market in land or agriculture. This ignoring of the land problem means that Americans and citizens of undeveloped countries talk in two different languages and that neither can begin to understand the other's position. American conservatives in particular exhort the backward countries on the virtues and the importance of private foreign investment from the advanced countries, and of allowing a favorable climate for this investment, free from governmental harassment. This is all very true, but is again often unreal to the undeveloped peoples because the conservatives persistently fail to distinguish between legitimate, free-market foreign investment as against investment based upon monopoly concessions and vast land grants by the undeveloped states. To the extent that foreign investments are based on land monopoly and aggression against the peasantry, to that extent do foreign capitalists take on the aspects of feudal landlords and must be dealt with in the same way. A moving expression of these truths was delivered in the form of a message to the American people by the prominent left-wing Mexican intellectual Carlos Fuentes. You have had four centuries of uninterrupted development within the capitalistic structure. We have had four centuries of underdevelopment within a feudal structure. 
You had your own origin in the capitalistic revolution. You started from zero, a virgin society, totally equal to modern times, without any feudal ballast. On the contrary, we were founded as an appendix of the falling feudal order of the Middle Ages. We inherited its obsolete structures, absorbed its vices, and converted them into institutions on the outer rim of the revolution in the modern world. We come from slavery to latifundio, enormous expanses of land under a single landlord, denial of political, economic, or cultural rights for the masses, a customs house closed to modern ideas. You must understand that the Latin American drama stems from the persistence of those feudal structures over four centuries of misery and stagnation, while you were in the midst of the Industrial Revolution and were exercising a liberal democracy. We need not search far for examples of land aggression and monopoly in the modern world. They are indeed legion. We might cite one example not so very far removed from our hypothetical king of Ruritania. The Shah owns more than half of all arable land in Iran, land originally taken over by his father. He owns close to 10,000 villages. So far, this great reformer has sold two of his villages. A typical example of foreign investment combined with land aggression is a North American mining company in Peru, the Cerro de Pasco Corporation. Cerro de Pasco, having legitimately purchased its land from a religious convent a half-century ago, began in 1959 to encroach upon and seize the lands of neighboring Indian peasants. Indians of Rancas, refusing to leave their land, were massacred by peasants in the pay of the company. Indians of Yeros Yakan tried to contest the company's action in the courts, while company men burned pastures and destroyed peasant huts. When the Indians retook their land through mass nonviolent action, the Peruvian government, at the behest of the Cerro de Pasco and the regional Latifundia owners, sent troops to eject, assault, and even murder the unarmed Indians. What, then, is to be our view toward investment in oil lands, one of the major forms of foreign investment in underdeveloped countries in today's world? The major error of most analyses is to issue either a blanket approval or a blanket condemnation, for the answer depends on the justice of the property title established in each specific case. Where, for example, an oil company, foreign or domestic, lays claim to the oil field which it discovers and drills, then this is its just, homesteaded private property and it is unjust for the undeveloped government to tax or regulate the company. Where the government insists on claiming ownership of the land itself and only leases the oil to the company, then, as we will see further below in discussing the role of government, the government's claim is illegitimate and invalid, and the company, in the role of homesteader, is properly the owner and not merely the renter of the oil land. On the other hand, there are cases where the oil company uses the government of the undeveloped country to grant it, in advance of drilling, a monopoly concession to all the oil in a vast land area, 
thereby agreeing to the use of force to squeeze out all competing oil producers who might search for and drill oil in that area. In that case, as in the case above of Crusoe's arbitrarily using force to squeeze out Friday, the first oil company is illegitimately using the government to become a land and oil monopolist. Ethically, any new company that enters the scene to discover and drill oil is the proper owner of its homesteaded oil area. A fortiori, of course, our oil concessionaire who also uses the state to eject peasants from their land by force, as was done, for example, by the Creole Oil Company in Venezuela, is a collaborator with the government in the latter's aggression against the property rights of the peasantry. We are now able to see the grave fallacy in the current programs for land reform in the undeveloped countries. These programs generally involve minor transfers of the least fertile land from landlords to peasants, along with full compensation to the landlords, often financed by the peasants themselves via state aid. If the landlord's title is just, then any land reform applied to such land is an unjust and criminal confiscation of his property. But, on the other hand, if his title is unjust, then the reform is picayune and fails to reach the heart of the question. For then, the only proper solution is an immediate vacating of the title and its transfer to the peasants, with certainly no compensation to the aggressors who had wrongly seized control of the land. Thus the land problem in the undeveloped countries can only be solved by applying the rules of justice that we have set forth, and such application requires detailed and wholesale empirical inquiry into present titles to land. In recent years the doctrine has gained ground among American conservatives that feudalism, instead of being oppressive and exploitative, was in fact a bulwark of liberty. It is true that feudalism, as these conservatives point out, was not as evil a system as oriental despotism, but that is roughly equivalent to saying that imprisonment is not as severe a penalty as execution. The difference between feudalism and oriental despotism was really of degree rather than kind. Arbitrary power over land and over persons on that land was, in the one case, broken up into geographical segments. In the latter case, land tended to concentrate into the hands of one imperial overlord over the land area of the entire country, aided by his bureaucratic retinue. The systems of power and repression are similar in type. The Oriental despot is a single feudal overlord with the consequent power accruing into his hands. Each system is a variant of the other, neither is in any sense libertarian and there is no reason to suppose that society must choose between one and the other, that these are the only alternatives. Historical thinking on this entire matter was shunted onto a very wrong road by the statist German historians of the late 19th century, by men such as Schmoller, Bücher, Ehrenberg, and Zombart. These historians postulated a sharp dichotomy and inherent conflict between feudalism on the one hand and absolute monarchy or the strong state on the other. 
They postulated that capitalist development required absolute monarchy and the strong state to smash local feudal and guild-type restrictions. In upholding this dichotomy of capitalism plus the strong central state versus feudalism, they were joined from their own special viewpoint by the Marxists who made no particular distinction between bourgeoisie who made use of the state and bourgeoisie who acted on the free market. Now some modern conservatives have taken this old dichotomy and turned it on its head. Feudalism and the strong central state are still considered the critical polar opposites, except that feudalism is, on this view, considered the good alternative. The error here is in the dichotomy itself. Actually, the strong state and feudalism were not antithetical. The former was a logical outgrowth of the latter, with the absolute monarch ruling as the super-feudal overlord. The strong state, when it developed in Western Europe, did not set about to smash feudal restrictions on trade. On the contrary, it superimposed its own central restrictions and heavy taxes on top of the feudal structure. The French Revolution, directed against the living embodiment of the strong state in Europe, was aimed at destroying both feudalism with its local restrictions and the restrictions and high taxes imposed by the central government. The true dichotomy was liberty on the one side versus the feudal lords and the absolute monarch on the other. Furthermore, the free market and capitalism flourished earliest and most strongly in those very countries where both feudalism and central government power were at their relative weakest, the Italian city-states and 17th century Holland and England. North America's relative escape from the blight of feudal land and land monopoly was not for lack of trying. Many of the English colonies made strong attempts to establish feudal rule, especially where the colonies were chartered companies or proprietorships, as in New York, Maryland, and the Carolinas. The attempt failed because the New World was a vast and virgin land area, and therefore the numerous receivers of monopoly and feudal land grants, many of them enormous in size, could only gain profits from them by inducing settlers to come to the new world and settle on their property. Here were not, as in the old world, previously existing settlers on relatively crowded land who could easily be exploited. Instead, the landlords, forced to encourage settlement and anxious for a quick return, invariably subdivided and sold their lands to the settlers. It was unfortunate, of course, that by means of arbitrary claims and governmental grants, land titles were engrossed ahead of settlement. The settlers were, consequently, forced to pay a price for what should have been free land. But once the land was purchased by the settler, the injustice disappeared, and the land title accrued to its proper holder, the settler. In this way, the vast supply of virgin land, along with the desire of the land grantees for quick profits, led everywhere to the happy dissolution of feudalism and land monopoly, and the establishment in North America of a truly libertarian land system. Some of the colonial proprietors tried to keep collecting quit-rents from the settlers, the last vestige of feudal exactions, 
but the settlers widely refused to pay or to treat the land as anything but their own. In every case, the colonial proprietors gave up trying to collect their quit-rents, even before the charters were confiscated by the British crown. In only one minor case did feudal land tenure persist, apart from the vital case of slavery and the large southern plantations in the English colonies. In the Hudson Valley counties in New York, where the large grantees persisted in not selling the lands to settlers, but in renting them out. As a result, continuing resistance and even open warfare were waged by the farmers, who were even known as peasants, against their feudal landlords. This resistance culminated in the anti-rent wars of the 1840s, when the quit-rent exactions were finally ended by the state legislature and the last vestige of feudalism outside the South finally disappeared. The important exception to this agrarian idol, of course, was the flourishing of the slave system in the southern states. It was only the coercion of slave labor that enabled the large plantation system in staple crops to flourish in the South. Without the ability to own and coerce the labor of others, the large plantations, and perhaps much of the tobacco and later the cotton culture, would not have pervaded the South. We have indicated above that there was only one possible moral solution for the slave question, immediate and unconditional abolition, with no compensation to the slave masters. Indeed, any compensation should have been the other way, to repay the oppressed slaves for their lifetime of slavery. A vital part of such necessary compensation would have been to grant the plantation lands not to the slave master, who scarcely had valid title to any property, but to the slaves themselves, whose labor, on our homesteading principle, was mixed with the soil to develop the plantations. In short, at the very least, elementary libertarian justice required not only the immediate freeing of the slaves, but also the immediate turning over to the slaves, again without compensation to the masters, of the plantation lands on which they had worked and sweated. As it was, the victorious North made the same mistake, though mistake is far too charitable a word for an act that preserved the essence of an unjust and oppressive social system as had Tsar Alexander when he freed the Russian serfs in 1861. The bodies of the oppressed were freed, but the property which they had worked and eminently deserved to own remained in the hands of their former oppressors. With the economic power thus remaining in their hands, the former lords soon found themselves virtual masters once more of what were now free tenants or farm laborers. The serfs and the slaves had tasted freedom, but had been cruelly deprived of its fruits. Chapter 12. Self-Defense If every man has the absolute right to his justly held property, it then follows that he has the right to keep that property, to defend it by violence against violent invasion. Absolute pacifists who also assert their belief in property rights, such as Mr. Robert Lefebvre, are caught in an inescapable inner contradiction. For if a man owns property and yet is denied the right to defend it against attack, then it is clear that a very important aspect of that ownership is being denied to him. 
To say that someone has the absolute right to a certain property, but lacks the right to defend it against attack or invasion, is also to say that he does not have total right to that property. Furthermore, if every man has the right to defend his person and property against attack, then he must also have the right to hire or accept the aid of other people to do such defending. He may employ or accept defenders, just as he may employ or accept the volunteer services of gardeners on his lawn. How extensive is a man's right of self-defense of person and property? The basic answer must be, up to the point at which he begins to infringe on the property rights of someone else. For in that case, his defense would in itself constitute a criminal invasion of the just property of some other man, which the latter could properly defend himself against. It follows that defensive violence may only be used against an actual or directly threatened invasion of a person's property and may not be used against any non-violent harm that may befall a person's income or property value. Thus suppose that A, B, C, D, etc., decide, for whatever reason, to boycott the sales of goods from Smith's factory or store. They picket, distribute leaflets, and make speeches, all in a non-invasive manner, calling on everyone to boycott Smith. Smith may lose considerable income, and they may well be doing this for trivial or even immoral reasons. But the fact remains that organizing such a boycott is perfectly within their rights, and if Smith tried to use violence to break up such boycott activities, he would be a criminal invader of their property. Defensive violence, therefore, must be confined to resisting invasive acts against person or property. But such invasion may include two corollaries to actual physical aggression, intimidation, or a direct threat of physical violence, and fraud, which involves the appropriation of someone else's property without his consent and is therefore implicit theft. Thus, suppose someone approaches you on the street, whips out a gun, and demands your wallet. He might not have molested you physically during this encounter, but he has extracted money from you on the basis of a direct, overt threat that he would shoot you if you disobeyed his commands. He has used the threat of invasion to obtain your obedience to his commands, and this is equivalent to the invasion itself. It is important to insist, however, that the threat of aggression be palpable, immediate, and direct. In short, that it be embodied in the initiation of an overt act. Any remote or indirect criterion, any risk or threat, is simply an excuse for invasive action by the supposed defender against the alleged threat. One of the major arguments, for example, for the prohibition of alcohol in the 1920s was that the imbibing of alcohol increased the likelihood of unspecified people committing various crimes. Therefore, prohibition was held to be a defensive act in defense of person and property. In fact, of course, it was brutally invasive of the rights of person and property, of the right to buy, sell, and use alcoholic beverages.
In the same way, it could be held that a. the failure to ingest vitamins makes people more irritable, that b. the failure is therefore likely to increase crime, and that therefore c. everyone should be forced to take the proper amount of vitamins daily. Once we bring in threats to person and property that are vague and future, that is, are not overt and immediate, then all manner of tyranny becomes excusable. The only way to guard against such despotism is to keep the criterion of perceived invasion clear and immediate and overt. For in the inevitable case of fuzzy or unclear actions, we must bend over backwards to require the threat of invasion to be direct and immediate, and therefore to allow people to do whatever they may be doing. In short, the burden of proof that the aggression has really begun must be on the person who employs the defensive violence. Fraud as implicit theft stems from the right of free contract, derived in turn from the rights of private property. Thus, suppose that Smith and Jones agree on a contractual exchange of property titles. Smith will pay $1,000 in return for Jones's car. If Smith appropriates the car and then refuses to turn over $1,000 to Jones, then Smith has, in effect, stolen the $1,000. Smith is an aggressor against $1,000 now properly belonging to Jones. Thus, failure to keep a contract of this type is tantamount to theft, and therefore to a physical appropriation of another's property fully as violent as trespass or simple burglary without armed assault. Fraudulent adulteration is equally implicit theft. If Smith pays $1,000 and receives from Jones not a specified make of car, but an older and poorer car, this too is implicit theft. Once again, someone's property has been appropriated in a contract without the other person's property being turned over to him as agreed. But we must not be led into the trap of holding that all contracts, whatever their nature, must be enforceable, that is, that violence may properly be used in their enforcement. The only reason the above contracts are enforceable is that breaking such contracts involves an implicit theft of property. Those contracts which do not involve implicit theft should not be enforceable in a libertarian society. Suppose, for example, that A and B make an agreement, a contract, to get married in six months or that A promises that, in six months' time, A will give B a certain sum of money. If A breaks these agreements, he may perhaps be morally reprehensible, but he has not implicitly stolen the other person's property, and therefore such a contract cannot be enforced. To use violence in order to force A to carry out such contracts would be just as much a criminal invasion of A's rights as it would be if Smith decided to use violence against the men who boycotted his store. Simple promises, therefore, are not properly enforceable contracts, because breaking them does not involve invasion of property or implicit theft. 
debt contracts are properly enforceable, not because a promise is involved, but because the creditor's property is appropriated without his consent, that is, stolen, if the debt is not paid. Thus, if Brown lends Green a thousand dollars this year, in return for the delivery of eleven hundred dollars next year, and Green fails to pay the eleven hundred dollars, the proper conclusion is that Green has appropriated eleven hundred dollars of Smith's property, which Green refuses to turn over, in effect, has stolen. This legal way of treating a debt, of holding that the creditor has a property in the debt, should be applied to all debt contracts. Thus it is not the business of law, properly the rules and instrumentalities by which person and property are violently defended, to make people moral by use of legal violence. It is not the proper business of law to make people be truthful or to keep their promises. It is the business of legal violence to defend persons and their property from violent attack from molestation or appropriation of their property without their consent. To say more, to say, for example, that mere promises are properly enforceable, is to make an unwarranted fetish of contracts while forgetting why some of them are enforceable, in defense of the just rights of property. Violent defense, then, must be confined to violent invasion either actually, implicitly, or by direct and overt threat. But given this principle, how far does the right of violent defense go? For one thing, it would clearly be grotesque and criminally invasive to shoot a man across the street because his angry look seemed to you to portend an invasion. The danger must be immediate and overt, we might say, clear and present a criterion that properly applies not to restrictions on freedom of speech, never permissible if we regard such freedom as a subset of the rights of person and property, but to the right to take coercive action against a supposedly imminent invader. Secondly, we may ask, must we go along with those libertarians who claim that a storekeeper has the right to kill a lad as punishment for snatching a piece of his bubblegum? What we might call the maximalist position goes as follows. By stealing the bubble gum, the urchin puts himself outside the law. He demonstrates by his action that he does not hold or respect the correct theory of property rights. Therefore, he loses all of his rights, and the storekeeper is within his rights to kill the lad in retaliation. I propose that this position suffers from a grotesque lack of proportion. By concentrating on the storekeeper's right to his bubblegum, it totally ignores another highly precious property right, every man's, including the urchin's, right of self-ownership. On what basis must we hold that a minuscule invasion of another's property lays one forfeit to the total loss of one's own? I propose another fundamental rule regarding crime. The criminal or invader loses his own right to the extent that he has deprived another man of his. If a man deprives another man of some of his self-ownership or its extension in physical property, to that extent does he lose his own rights. From this principle immediately derives the proportionality theory of punishment, 
best summed up in the old adage, let the punishment fit the crime. We conclude that the shopkeeper's shooting of the erring lad went beyond this proportionate loss of rights to wounding or killing the criminal. This going beyond is in itself an invasion of the property right in his own person of the bubblegum thief. In fact, the storekeeper has become a far greater criminal than the thief, for he has killed or wounded his victim, a far graver invasion of another's rights than the original shoplifting. Should it be illegal, we may next inquire, to incite to riot? Suppose that Green exhorts a crowd, go, burn, loot, kill, and the mob proceeds to do just that with Green having nothing further to do with these criminal activities. Since every man is free to adopt or not adopt any course of action he wishes, we cannot say that in some way Green determined the members of the mob to their criminal activities. We cannot make him, because of his exhortation, at all responsible for their crimes. Inciting to riot, therefore, is a pure exercise of a man's right to speak, without being thereby implicated in crime. On the other hand, it is obvious that if Green happened to be involved in a plan or conspiracy with others to commit various crimes, and that then Green told them to proceed, he would then be just as implicated in the crimes as are the others, more so if he were the mastermind who headed the criminal gang. This is a seemingly subtle distinction which, in practice, is clear-cut. There is a world of difference between the head of a criminal gang and a soapbox orator during a riot. The former is not properly to be charged simply with incitement. It should further be clear from our discussion of defense that every man has the absolute right to bear arms, whether for self-defense or any other licit purpose. The crime comes not from bearing arms, but from using them for purposes of threatened or actual invasion. It is curious, by the way, that the laws have especially banned concealed weapons, when it is precisely the open and unconcealed weapons which might be used for intimidation. In every crime, in every invasion of rights, from the most negligible breach of contract up to murder, there are always two parties, or sets of parties, involved, the victim, the plaintiff, and the alleged criminal, the defendant. The purpose of every judicial proceeding is to find, as best we can, who the criminal is or is not in any given case. Generally, these judicial rules make for the most widely acceptable means of finding out who the criminals may be. But the libertarian has one overriding caveat on these procedures. No force may be used against non-criminals. For any physical force used against a non-criminal is an invasion of that innocent person's rights, and is therefore itself criminal and impermissible. Take, for example, the police practice of beating and torturing suspects, or at least of tapping their wires. People who object to these practices are invariably accused by conservatives of coddling criminals. But the whole point is that we don't know if these are criminals or not, and until convicted they must be presumed not to be criminals and to enjoy all the rights of the innocent. 
In the words of the famous phrase, they are innocent until proven guilty. The only exception would be a victim exerting self-defense on the spot against an aggressor, for he knows that the criminal is invading his home. Coddling criminals then becomes, in actuality, making sure that police do not criminally invade the rights of self-ownership of presumptive innocents whom they suspect of crime. In that case, the coddler and the restrainer of the police proves to be far more of a genuine defender of property rights than is the conservative. We may qualify this discussion in one important sense. Police may use such coercive methods provided that the suspect turns out to be guilty and provided that the police are treated as themselves criminal if the suspect is not proven guilty. For in that case, the rule of no force against non-criminals would still apply. Suppose, for example, that police beat and torture a suspected murderer to find information, not to wring a confession, since obviously a coerced confession could never be considered valid. If the suspect turns out to be guilty, then the police should be exonerated, for then they have only ladled out to the murderer a parcel of what he deserves in return. His rights had already been forfeited by more than that extent. But, if the suspect is not convicted, then that means that the police have beaten and tortured an innocent man, and that they in turn must be put into the dock for criminal assault. In short, in all cases, police must be treated in precisely the same way as anyone else. In a libertarian world, every man has equal liberty, equal rights under the libertarian law. There can be no special immunities, special licenses to commit crime. That means that police in a libertarian society must take their chances like anyone else. If they commit an act of invasion against someone, that someone had better turn out to deserve it. Otherwise, they are the criminals. As a corollary, police can never be allowed to commit an invasion that is worse than, or that is more than proportionate to, the crime under investigation. Thus, the police can never be allowed to beat and torture someone charged with petty theft, since the beating is far more proportionate a violation of a man's rights than the theft, even if the man is indeed the thief. It should be clear that no man, in an attempt to exercise his right of self-defense, may coerce anyone else into defending him, for that would mean that the defender himself would be a criminal invader of the rights of others. Thus, if A is aggressing against B, B may not use force to compel C to join in defending him, for then B would be just as much a criminal aggressor against C. This immediately rules out conscription for defense, for conscription enslaves a man and forces him to fight on someone else's behalf. It also rules out such a deeply embedded part of our legal system as compulsory witnesses. No man should have the right to force anyone else to speak on any subject. The familiar prohibition against coerced self-incrimination is all very well, but it should be extended to preserving the right not to incriminate anyone else, or indeed to say nothing at all. 
The freedom to speak is meaningless without the corollary freedom to keep silent. If no force may be used against a non-criminal, then the current system of compulsory jury duty must also be abolished. Just as conscription is a form of slavery, so too is compulsory jury duty. Precisely because being a juror is so important a service, the service must not be filled by resentful serfs. And how can any society call itself libertarian that rests on a foundation of jury slavery? In the current system, the courts enslave jurors because they pay a daily wage so far below the market price that the inevitable shortage of jury labor has to be supplied by coercion. The problem is very much the same as the military draft, where the army pays far below the market wage for privates, cannot obtain the number of men they want at that wage, and then turns to conscription to supply the gap. Let the courts pay the market wage for jurors, and sufficient supply will be forthcoming. If there can be no compulsion against jurors or witnesses, then a libertarian legal order will have to eliminate the entire concept of the subpoena power. Witnesses, of course, may be requested to appear, but this voluntarism must also apply to the defendants, since they have not yet been convicted of crime. In a libertarian society, the plaintiff would notify the defendant that the latter is being charged with a crime, and that a trial of the defendant will be underway. The defendant would be simply invited to appear. There would be no compulsion on him to appear. If he chose not to defend himself, then the trial would proceed in absentia, which of course would mean that the defendant's chances would be by that much diminished. Compulsion could only be used against the defendant after his final conviction. In the same way, a defendant could not be kept in jail before his conviction, unless, as in the case of police coercion, the jailer is prepared to face a kidnapping conviction if the defendant turns out to be innocent. This prohibition against coercing an unconvicted person would eliminate the blatant evils of the bail system where the judge arbitrarily sets the amount of bail, and where, regardless of the amount, poorer defendants are clearly discriminated against. Chapter 13. Punishment and Proportionality Few aspects of libertarian political theory are in a less satisfactory state than the theory of punishment. It must be noted, however, that all legal systems, whether libertarian or not, must work out some theory of punishment, and that existing systems are in at least as unsatisfactory a state as punishment in libertarian theory. Usually libertarians have been content to assert or develop the axiom that no one may aggress against the person or property of another. What sanctions may be taken against such an invader has been scarcely treated at all. We have advanced the view that the criminal loses his rights to the extent that he deprives another of his rights, the theory of proportionality. We must now elaborate further on what such a theory of proportional punishment may imply. In the first place, it should be clear that the proportionate principle is a maximum, rather than a mandatory, punishment for the criminal. 
In the libertarian society there are, as we have said, only two parties to a dispute or action at law, the victim or plaintiff and the alleged criminal or defendant. It is the plaintiff that presses charges in the courts against the wrongdoer. In a libertarian world there would be no crimes against an ill-defined society, and therefore no such person as a district attorney who decides on a charge and then presses those charges against an alleged criminal. The proportionality rule tells us how much punishment a plaintiff may exact from a convicted wrongdoer, and no more. It imposes the maximum limit on punishment that may be inflicted before the punisher himself becomes a criminal aggressor. Thus it should be quite clear that under libertarian law, capital punishment would have to be confined strictly to the crime of murder. For a criminal would only lose his right to life if he had first deprived some victim of that same right. It would not be permissible, then, for a merchant whose bubblegum had been stolen to execute the convicted bubblegum thief. If he did so, then he, the merchant, would be an unjustifiable murderer, who could be brought to the bar of justice by the heirs or assigns of the bubblegum thief. But in libertarian law there would be no compulsion on the plaintiff, or his heirs, to exact this maximum penalty. If the plaintiff or his heir, for example, did not believe in capital punishment for whatever reason, he could voluntarily forgive the victim of part or all of his penalty. If he were a Tolstoyan and was opposed to punishment altogether, he could simply forgive the criminal, and that would be that. Or, and this has a long and honorable tradition in older Western law, the victim or his heir could allow the criminal to buy his way out of part or all of his punishment. Thus, if proportionality allowed the victim to send the criminal to jail for ten years, the criminal could, if the victim wished, pay the victim to reduce or eliminate this sentence. The proportionality theory only supplies the upper bound to punishment, since it tells us how much punishment a victim may rightfully impose. A problem might arise in the case of murder, since a victim's heirs might prove less than diligent in pursuing the murderer, or be unduly inclined to let the murderer buy his way out of punishment. This problem could be taken care of simply by people stating in their wills what punishment they should like to inflict on their possible murderers. The believer in strict retribution, as well as the Tolstoyan opponent of all punishment, could then have their wishes precisely carried out. The deceased, indeed, could provide in his will for, say, a crime insurance company to which he subscribes to be the prosecutor of his possible murderer. If, then, proportionality sets the upper bound to punishment, how may we establish proportionality itself? The first point is that the emphasis in punishment must be not on paying one's debt to society, whatever that may mean, but in paying one's debt to the victim. Certainly the initial part of that debt is restitution. This works clearly in cases of theft. If A has stolen $15,000 from B, then the first or initial part of A's punishment must be to restore that $15,000 to the hands of B, 
plus damages, judicial and police costs, and interest foregone. Suppose that, as in most cases, the thief has already spent the money. In that case, the first step of proper libertarian punishment is to force the thief to work and to allocate the ensuing income to the victim until the victim has been repaid. The ideal situation, then, puts the criminal frankly into a state of enslavement to his victim, the criminal continuing in that condition of just slavery until he has redressed the grievance of the man he has wronged. Significantly, the only exception to the prohibition of involuntary servitude in the Thirteenth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution is the enslavement of criminals. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for crime, whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. We must note that the emphasis of restitution punishment is diametrically opposite to the current practice of punishment. What happens nowadays is the following absurdity. A steals $15,000 from B. The government tracks down, tries, and convicts A, all at the expense of B, as one of the numerous taxpayers victimized in this process. Then, the government, instead of forcing A to repay B, or to work at forced labor until that debt is paid, forces B, the victim, to pay taxes to support the criminal in prison for ten or twenty years' time. Where in the world is the justice here? The victim not only loses his money, but pays more money besides for the dubious thrill of catching, convicting, and then supporting the criminal and the criminal is still enslaved, but not to the good purpose of recompensing his victim. The idea of primacy for restitution to the victim has great precedent in law. Indeed, it is an ancient principle of law, which has been allowed to wither away as the state has aggrandized and monopolized the institutions of justice. In medieval Ireland, for example, a king was not the head of state, but rather a crime insurer. If someone committed a crime, the first thing that happened was that the king paid the insurance benefit to the victim, and then proceeded to force the criminal to pay the king in turn, restitution to the victim's insurance company being completely derived from the idea of restitution to the victim. In many parts of colonial America, which were too poor to afford the dubious luxury of prisons, the thief was indentured out by the courts to his victim, there to be forced to work for his victim until his debt was paid. This does not necessarily mean that prisons would disappear in the libertarian society, but they would undoubtedly change drastically, since their major goal would be to force the criminals to provide restitution to their victims. In fact, in the Middle Ages generally, restitution to the victim was the dominant concept of punishment. Only as the state grew more powerful did the governmental authorities encroach ever more into the repayment process, increasingly confiscating a greater proportion of the criminal's property for themselves, and leaving less and less to the unfortunate victim. Indeed, as the emphasis shifted from restitution to the victim, from compensation by the criminal to his victim, to punishment for alleged crimes committed against the state, 
the punishments exacted by the state became more and more severe. As the early twentieth-century criminologist William Tallack wrote, it was chiefly owing to the violent greed of feudal barons and medieval ecclesiastical powers that the rights of the injured party were gradually infringed upon, and finally, to a large extent, appropriated by these authorities, who exacted a double vengeance, indeed, upon the offender, by forfeiting his property to themselves instead of to his victim, and then punishing him by the dungeon, the torture, the stake, or the gibbet. But the original victim of wrong was practically ignored. Or, as Professor Schaefer has summed up, as the state monopolized the institution of punishment, so the rights of the injured were slowly separated from penal law. But restitution, while the first consideration in punishment, can hardly serve as the complete and sufficient criterion. For one thing, if one man assaults another, and there is no theft of property, there is obviously no way for the criminal to make restitution. In ancient forms of law there were often set schedules for monetary recompense that the criminal would have to pay the victim, so much money for an assault, so much more for mutilation, etc. But such schedules are clearly wholly arbitrary, and bear no relation to the nature of the crime itself. We must therefore fall back upon the view that the criterion must be loss of rights by the criminal to the same extent as he has taken away. But how are we to gauge the nature of the extent? Let us return to the theft of the $15,000. Even here, simple restitution of the $15,000 is scarcely sufficient to cover the crime, even if we add damages, costs, interest, etc. For one thing, mere loss of the money stolen obviously fails to function in any sense as a deterrent to future such crime, although we will see below that deterrence itself is a faulty criterion for gauging punishment. If, then, we are to say that the criminal loses rights to the extent that he deprives the victim, then we must say that the criminal should not only have to return the $15,000, but that he must be forced to pay the victim another $15,000, so that he in turn loses those rights to $15,000 worth of property which he had taken from the victim. In the case of theft, then, we may say that the criminal must pay double the extent of theft, once for restitution of the amount stolen, and once again for loss of what he had deprived another. This principle of libertarian double punishment has been pithily described by Professor Walter Block as the principle of two teeth for a tooth. But we are still not finished with elaborating the extent of deprivation of rights involved in a crime, for A had not simply stolen $15,000 from B, which can be restored and an equivalent penalty imposed. He had also put B into a state of fear and uncertainty, of uncertainty as to the extent that B's deprivation would go. But the penalty levied on A is fixed and certain in advance, thus putting A in far better shape than was his original victim. 
so that for proportionate punishment to be levied, we would also have to add more than double, so as to compensate the victim in some way for the uncertain and fearful aspects of his particular ordeal. I am indebted to Professor Robert Nozick of Harvard University for pointing out this problem to me. What this extra compensation should be, it is impossible to say exactly, but that does not absolve any rational system of punishment, including the one that would apply in the libertarian society, from the problem of working it out as best one can. In the question of bodily assault, where restitution does not even apply, we can again employ our criterion of proportionate punishment so that if A has beaten up B in a certain way, then B has the right to beat up A, or have him beaten up by judicial employees, to rather more than the same extent. Here allowing the criminal to buy his way out of this punishment could indeed enter in, but only as a voluntary contract with the plaintiff. For example, suppose that A has severely beaten B. B now has the right to beat up A as severely or a bit more, or to hire someone or some organization to do the beating for him, who in a libertarian society could be marshals hired by privately competitive courts. But A, of course, is free to buy his way out, to pay B for waiving his right to have his aggressor beaten up. The victim, then, has the right to exact punishment up to the proportional amount as determined by the extent of the crime, but he is also free either to allow the aggressor to buy his way out of punishment, or to forgive the aggressor partially or altogether. The proportionate level of punishment sets the right of the victim, the permissible upper bound of punishment, but how much or whether the victim decides to exercise that right is up to him. As Professor Armstrong puts it, there should be a proportion between the severity of the crime and the severity of the punishment. It sets an upper limit to the punishment, suggests what is due. Justice gives the appropriate authority, in our view, the victim, the right to punish offenders up to some limit, but one is not necessarily and invariably obliged to punish to the limit of justice. Similarly, if I lend a man money, I have a right in justice to have it returned. But if I choose not to take it back, I have not done anything unjust. I cannot claim more than is owed to me, but I am free to claim less, or even to claim nothing. Or, as Professor McCloskey states, we do not act unjustly if, moved by benevolence, we impose less than is demanded by justice but there is a grave injustice if the deserved punishment is exceeded. Many people, when confronted with the libertarian legal system, are concerned with this problem. Would somebody be allowed to take the law into his own hands? Would the victim or a friend of the victim be allowed to exact justice personally on the criminal? The answer is, of course, yes since all rights of punishment derive from the victim's right of self-defense. In the libertarian, purely free-market society, however, the victim will generally find it more convenient to entrust the task to the police and court agencies. Suppose, for example, that Hatfield I murders McCoy I, 
McCoy II then decides to seek out and execute Hatfield I himself. This is fine, except that, just as in the case of the police coercion discussed in the previous section, McCoy II may have to face the prospect of being charged with murder in the private courts by Hatfield II. The point is that if the courts find that Hatfield I was indeed the murderer, then nothing happens to McCoy II, in our schema, except public approbation for executing justice. But if it turns out that there was not enough evidence to convict Hatfield I for the original murder, or if indeed some other Hatfield or some stranger committed the crime, then McCoy, too, as in the case of the police invaders mentioned above, cannot plead any sort of immunity. He then becomes a murderer, liable to be executed by the courts at the behest of the irate Hatfield heirs. Hence, just as in the libertarian society the police will be mighty careful to avoid invasion of the rights of any suspect unless they are absolutely convinced of his guilt and willing to put their bodies on the line for this belief, so also few people will take the law into their own hands unless they are similarly convinced. Furthermore, if Hatfield I merely beat up McCoy I, and then McCoy kills him in return, this too would put McCoy up for punishment as a murderer. Thus the almost universal inclination would be to leave the execution of justice to the courts, whose decisions based on rules of evidence, trial procedure, etc., similar to what may apply now, would be accepted by society as honest and as the best that could be achieved. All this is reminiscent of the brilliant and witty system of punishment for government bureaucrats devised by the great libertarian H. L. Mencken. In A Mencken Crestomathy, he proposed that any citizen, having looked into the acts of a job-holder and found him delinquent, may punish him instantly and on the spot, and in any manner that seems appropriate and convenient and that in case this punishment involves physical damage to the job-holder, the ensuing inquiry by the grand jury or coroner shall confine itself strictly to the question whether the job-holder deserved what he got. In other words, I propose that it shall be no longer malum in se for a citizen to pummel, cowhide, kick, gouge, cut, wound, bruise, maim, burn, club, bastinado, flay, or even lynch a job-holder, and that it shall be malum prohibitum only to the extent that the punishment exceeds the job-holder's deserts. The amount of this excess, if any, may be determined very conveniently by a pettit jury, as other questions of guilt are now determined. The flogged judge or congressman or other job-holder, on being discharged from the hospital, or his chief heir in case he has perished, goes before a grand jury and makes complaint, and if a true bill is found, a pettit jury is impaneled and all the evidence is put before it. If it decides that the job-holder deserves the punishment inflicted upon him, the citizen who inflicted it is acquitted with honor. If, on the contrary, it decides that this punishment was excessive, then the citizen is adjudged guilty of assault, mayhem, murder, or whatever it is, in a degree apportioned to the difference between what the job-holder deserved and what he got, and punishment for that excess follows in the usual course.
It should be evident that our theory of proportional punishment, that people may be punished by losing their rights to the extent that they have invaded the rights of others, is frankly a retributive theory of punishment, a tooth or two teeth for a tooth theory. Retribution is in bad repute among philosophers, who generally dismiss the concept quickly as primitive or barbaric, and then race on to a discussion of the two other major theories of punishment, deterrence and rehabilitation. But simply to dismiss a concept as barbaric can hardly suffice. After all, it is possible that in this case the barbarians hit on a concept that was superior to the more modern creeds. Professor H. L. A. Hart describes the crudest form of proportionality, such as we have advocated here, the lex talionis, as the notion that what the criminal has done should be done to him, and wherever thinking about punishment is primitive, as it often is, this crude idea reasserts itself. The killer should be killed, the violent assailant should be flogged. But primitive is scarcely a valid criticism and Hart himself admits that this crude form presents fewer difficulties than the more refined versions of the proportionality retributivist thesis. His only reasoned criticism, which he seems to think dismisses the issue, is a quote from Blackstone. There are very many crimes that will in no shape admit of these penalties without manifest absurdity and wickedness, Theft cannot be punished by theft, defamation by defamation, forgery by forgery, adultery by adultery. But these are scarcely cogent criticisms. Theft and forgery constitute robbery, and the robber can certainly be made to provide restitution and proportional damages to the victim. There is no conceptual problem there. Adultery, in the libertarian view, is not a crime at all and neither, as will be seen below, is defamation. Let us then turn to the two major modern theories and see if they provide a criterion for punishment which truly meets our conceptions of justice, as retribution surely does. Deterrence was the principle put forth by utilitarianism as part of its aggressive dismissal of principles of justice and natural law, and the replacement of these allegedly metaphysical principles by hard practicality. The practical goal of punishments was then supposed to be to deter further crime, either by the criminal himself or by other members of society. But this criterion of deterrence implies schemas of punishment which almost everyone would consider grossly unjust. For example, if there were no punishment for crime at all, a great number of people would commit petty theft, such as stealing fruit from a fruit stand. On the other hand, most people have a far greater built-in inner objection to themselves committing murder than they have to petty shoplifting, and would be far less apt to commit the grosser crime. Therefore, if the object of punishment is to deter from crime, then a far greater punishment would be required for preventing shoplifting than for preventing murder, a system that goes against most people's ethical standards. As a result, with deterrence as the criterion, there would have to be stringent capital punishment for petty thievery, for the theft of bubblegum, while murderers might only incur the penalty of a few months in jail. 
Similarly, a classic critique of the deterrence principle is that, if deterrence were our sole criterion, it would be perfectly proper for the police or courts to execute publicly for a crime someone whom they know to be innocent, but whom they had convinced the public was guilty. The knowing execution of an innocent man, provided, of course, that the knowledge can be kept secret, would exert a deterrence effect just as fully as the execution of the guilty. And yet, of course, such a policy, too, goes violently against almost everyone's standards of justice. The fact that nearly everyone would consider such schemes of punishments grotesque, despite their fulfillment of the deterrence criterion, shows that people are interested in something more important than deterrence. What this may be is indicated by the overriding objection that these deterrent scales of punishment, or the killing of an innocent man, clearly invert our usual view of justice. Instead of the punishment fitting the crime, it is now graded in inverse proportion to its severity, or is meted out to the innocent rather than the guilty. In short, the deterrence principle implies a gross violation of the intuitive sense that justice connotes some form of fitting and proportionate punishment to the guilty party, and to him alone. The most recent supposedly highly humanitarian criterion for punishment is to rehabilitate the criminal. Old-fashioned justice, the argument goes, concentrated on punishing the criminal, either in retribution or to deter future crime. The new criterion humanely attempts to reform and rehabilitate the criminal. But on further consideration, the humanitarian rehabilitation principle not only leads to arbitrary and gross injustice, it also places enormous and arbitrary power to decide men's fates in the hands of the dispensers of punishment. Thus, suppose that Smith is a mass murderer, while Jones stole some fruit from a stand. Instead of being sentenced in proportion to their crimes, their sentences are now indeterminate, with confinement ending upon their supposedly successful rehabilitation. But this gives the power to determine the prisoners' lives into the hands of an arbitrary group of supposed rehabilitators. It would mean that instead of equality under the law, an elementary criterion of justice, with equal crimes being punished equally, one man may go to prison for a few weeks if he is quickly rehabilitated, while another may remain in prison indefinitely. Thus, in our case of Smith and Jones, suppose that the mass murderer Smith is, according to our board of experts, rapidly rehabilitated. He is released in three weeks, to the plaudits of the supposedly successful reformers. In the meanwhile, Jones, the fruit-stealer, persists in being incorrigible and clearly unrehabilitated, at least in the eyes of the expert board. According to the logic of the principle, he must stay incarcerated indefinitely, perhaps for the rest of his life, for while the crime was negligible, he continued to remain outside the influence of his humanitarian mentors. Thus Professor K. G. Armstrong writes of the reform principle, The logical pattern of penalties will be for each criminal to be given reformatory treatment until he is sufficiently changed for the experts to certify him as reformed. On this theory, every sentence ought to be indeterminate, 
to be determined at the psychologist's pleasure, perhaps, for there is no longer any basis for the principle of a definite limit to punishment. You stole a loaf of bread? Well, we'll have to reform you, even if it takes the rest of your life. From the moment he is guilty, the criminal loses his rights as a human being. This is not a form of humanitarianism I care for. Never has the tyranny and gross injustice of the humanitarian theory of punishment as reform been revealed in more scintillating fashion than by C.S. Lewis. Noting that the reformers call their proposed actions healing or therapy rather than punishment, Lewis adds, But do not let us be deceived by a name. To be taken without consent from my home and friends, to lose my liberty, to undergo all those assaults on my personality which modern psychotherapy knows how to deliver, to know that this process will never end until either my captors have succeeded or I grown wise enough to cheat them with apparent success. Who cares whether this is called punishment or not? That it includes most of the elements for which any punishment is feared, shame, exile, bondage, and years eaten by the locust, is obvious. Only enormous ill-desert could justify it, but ill-desert is the very conception which the humanitarian theory has thrown overboard. Lewis goes on to demonstrate the particularly harsh tyranny that is likely to be levied by humanitarians out to inflict their reforms and cures on the populace. Of all tyrannies, a tyranny exercised for the good of its victims may be the most oppressive. It may be better to live under robber barons than under omnipotent moral busybodies. The robber baron's cruelty may sometimes sleep, his cupidity may at some point be satiated. But those who torment us for our own good will torment us without end, for they do so with the approval of their own conscience. They may be more likely to go to heaven, yet at the same time likelier to make a hell of earth. This very kindness stings with intolerable insult. To be cured against one's will, and cured of states which we may not regard as disease, is to be put on a level of those who have not yet reached the age of reason, or those who never will, to be classed with infants, imbeciles, and domestic animals. But to be punished, however severely, because we have deserved it, because we ought to have known better, is to be treated as a human person made in God's image. Furthermore, Lewis points out, the rulers can use the concept of disease as a means for terming any actions that they dislike as crimes, and then to inflict a totalitarian rule in the name of therapy. For if crime and disease are to be regarded as the same thing, it follows that any state of mind which our masters choose to call disease can be treated as crime, and compulsorily cured. It will be vain to plead that states of mind which displease government need not always involve moral turpitude, and do not therefore always deserve forfeiture of liberty. For our masters will not be using concepts of desert and punishment, but those of disease and cure. It will not be persecution. Even if the treatment is painful, even if it is lifelong, even if it is fatal, that will be only a regrettable accident. The intention was purely therapeutic. 
Even in ordinary medicine there were painful operations and fatal operations, so in this. But because they are treatment, not punishment, they can be criticized only by fellow experts and on technical grounds, never by men as men and on grounds of justice. Thus we see that the fashionable reform approach to punishment can be at least as grotesque and far more uncertain and arbitrary than the deterrence principle. Retribution remains as our only just and viable theory of punishment, and equal treatment for equal crime is fundamental to such retributive punishment. The barbaric turns out to be the just, while the modern and the humanitarian turn out to be grotesque parodies of justice. Chapter 14 Children and Rights We have now established each man's property right in his own person, and in the virgin land that he finds and transforms by his labor, and we have shown that from these two principles we can deduce the entire structure of property rights in all types of goods. These include the goods which he acquires in exchange, or as a result of a voluntary gift or bequest. There remains, however, the difficult case of children. The right of self-ownership by each man has been established for adults, for natural self-owners who must use their minds to select and pursue their ends. On the other hand, it is clear that a newborn babe is in no natural sense an existing self-owner but rather a potential self-owner. John Locke, in his Two Treatises on Government, puts it this way, Children, I confess, are not born in this full state of equality, of right to their natural freedom, though they are born to it. Their parents have a sort of rule and jurisdiction over them when they come into the world, and for some time after. But tis but a temporary one. The bonds of this subjection are like the swaddling clothes they are wrapped up in and supported by in the weakness of their infancy. Age and reason, as they grow up, loosen them, till at length they drop quite off and leave a man at his own free disposal. But this poses a difficult problem. For when, or in what way, does a growing child acquire his natural right to liberty and self-ownership? Gradually, or all at once? At what age? And what criteria do we set forth for this shift or transition? First, let us begin with the prenatal child. What is the parent's, or rather the mother's, property right in the fetus? In the first place, we must note that the conservative Catholic position has generally been dismissed too brusquely. This position holds that the fetus is a living person, and hence that abortion is an act of murder, and must therefore be outlawed as in the case of any murder. The usual reply is simply to demarcate birth as the beginning of a live human being possessing natural rights, including the right not to be murdered. Before birth, the counterargument runs, the child cannot be considered a living person. But the Catholic reply that the fetus is alive and is an eminently potential person then comes disquietingly close to the general view that a newborn baby cannot be aggressed against because it is a potential adult. While birth is indeed the proper line of demarcation, the usual formulation makes birth an arbitrary dividing line, 
and lacks sufficient rational groundwork in the theory of self-ownership. The proper groundwork for analysis of abortion is in every man's absolute right of self-ownership. This implies immediately that every woman has the absolute right to her own body, that she has absolute dominion over her body and everything within it. This includes the fetus. Most fetuses are in the mother's womb because the mother consents to this situation. But the fetus is there by the mother's freely granted consent. But should the mother decide that she does not want the fetus there any longer, then the fetus becomes a parasitic invader of her person, and the mother has the perfect right to expel this invader from her domain. Abortion should be looked upon not as murder of a living person, but as the expulsion of an unwanted invader from the mother's body. What we are trying to establish here is not the morality of abortion, which may or may not be moral on other grounds, but its legality, that is, the absolute right of the mother to have an abortion. What we are concerned with in this book is people's rights to do or not to do various things, not whether they should or should not exercise such rights. Thus, we would argue that every person has the right to purchase and consume Coca-Cola from a willing seller, not that any person should or should not actually make such a purchase. Any laws restricting or prohibiting abortion are therefore invasions of the rights of mothers. It has been objected that since the mother originally consented to the conception, the mother has therefore contracted its status with the fetus, and may not violate that contract by having an abortion. There are many problems with this doctrine, however. In the first place, as we shall see further below, a mere promise is not an enforceable contract. Contracts are only properly enforceable if their violation involves implicit theft, and clearly no such consideration can apply here. Secondly, there is obviously no contract here, since the fetus, fertilized ovum, can hardly be considered a voluntarily and consciously contracting entity. And thirdly, as we have seen above, a crucial point in libertarian theory is the inalienability of the will, and therefore the impermissibility of enforcing voluntary slave contracts. Even if this had been a contract then, it could not be enforced, because a mother's will is inalienable, and she cannot legitimately be enslaved into carrying and having a baby against her will. Another argument of the anti-abortionists is that the fetus is a living human being, and is therefore entitled to all of the rights of human beings. Very good. Let us concede for purposes of the discussion that fetuses are human beings, or more broadly, potential human beings, and are therefore entitled to full human rights. But what humans, we may ask, have the right to be coercive parasites within the body of an unwilling human host? Clearly no born humans have such a right, and therefore, a fortiori, the fetus can have no such right either. The anti-abortionists generally couch the preceding argument in terms of the fetuses as well as the born humans' right to life. We have not used this concept in this volume because of its ambiguity, 
and because any proper rights implied by its advocates are included in the concept of the right to self-ownership, the right to have one's person free from aggression. Even Professor Judith Thompson, who in her discussion of the abortion question attempts inconsistently to retain the concept of right to life, along with the right to own one's own body, lucidly demonstrates the pitfalls and errors of the right-to-life doctrine. In some views, having a right to life includes having a right to be given at least the bare minimum one needs for continued life. But suppose that what in fact is the bare minimum a man needs for continued life is something he has no right at all to be given. If I am sick unto death, and the only thing that will save my life is the touch of Henry Fonda's cool hand on my fevered brow, then all the same, I have no right to be given the touch of Henry Fonda's cool hand on my fevered brow. It would be frightfully nice of him to fly in from the West Coast to provide it, but I have no right at all against anybody that he should do this for me. In short, it is impermissible to interpret the term right to life to give one an enforceable claim to the action of someone else to sustain that life. In our terminology, such a claim would be an impermissible violation of the other person's right of self-ownership. Or, as Professor Thompson cogently puts it, Having a right to life does not guarantee having either a right to be given the use of, or a right to be allowed continued use of, another person's body, even if one needs it for life itself. Suppose now that the baby has been born. Then what? First, we may say that the parents, or rather the mother, who is the only certain and visible parent, as the creators of the baby, become its owners. A newborn baby cannot be an existent self-owner in any sense. Therefore, either the mother or some other party or parties may be the baby's owner. But to assert that a third party can claim his ownership over the baby would give that person the right to seize the baby by force from its natural or homesteading owner, its mother. The mother, then, is the natural and rightful owner of the baby and any attempt to seize the baby by force is an invasion of her property right. But surely the mother or parents may not receive the ownership of the child in absolute fee simple, because that would imply the bizarre state of affairs that a fifty-year-old adult would be subject to the absolute and unquestioned jurisdiction of his seventy-year-old parent. So the parental property right must be limited in time but it also must be limited in kind, for it surely would be grotesque for a libertarian who believes in the right of self-ownership to advocate the right of a parent to murder or torture his or her children. We must therefore state that even from birth the parental ownership is not absolute, but of a trustee or guardianship kind. In short, Every baby, as soon as it is born, and is therefore no longer contained within his mother's body, possesses the right of self-ownership by virtue of being a separate entity and a potential adult. It must, therefore, be illegal and a violation of the child's rights for a parent to aggress against his person by mutilating, torturing, murdering him, etc., on the other hand, the very concept of rights is a negative one, 
demarcating the areas of a person's action that no man may properly interfere with. No man can therefore have a right to compel someone to do a positive act, for in that case the compulsion violates the right of person or property of the individual being coerced. Thus we may say that a man has a right to his property, that is, a right not to have his property invaded, but we cannot say that anyone has a right to a living wage, for that would mean that someone would be coerced into providing him with such a wage, and that would violate the property rights of the people being coerced. As a corollary, this means that in the free society no man may be saddled with the legal obligation to do anything for another, since that would invade the former's rights. The only legal obligation one man has to another is to respect the other man's rights. Applying our theory to parents and children, this means that a parent does not have the right to aggress against his children, but also that the parent should not have a legal obligation to feed, clothe, or educate his children, since such obligations would entail positive acts coerced upon the parent and depriving the parent of his rights. The parent, therefore, may not murder or mutilate his child, and the law properly outlaws a parent from doing so. But the parent should have the legal right not to feed the child, that is, to allow it to die. The law, therefore, may not properly compel the parent to feed a child or keep it alive. Again, whether or not a parent has a moral rather than a legally enforceable obligation to keep his child alive is a completely separate question. This rule allows us to solve such vexing questions as, should a parent have the right to allow a deformed baby to die? for example, by not feeding it? The answer is, of course, yes, following a fortiori from the larger right to allow any baby, whether deformed or not, to die. Though, as we shall see below, in a libertarian society the existence of a free baby market will bring such neglect down to a minimum. Our theory also enables us to examine the question of Dr. Kenneth Edelin of Boston City Hospital, who was convicted in 1975 of manslaughter for allowing a fetus to die, at the wish, of course, of the mother, after performing an abortion. If parents have the legal right to allow a baby to die, then, a fortiori, they have the same right for extrauterine fetuses. Similarly, in a future world where babies may be born in extrauterine devices, test tubes, Again, the parents would have the legal right to pull the plug on the fetuses, or rather to refuse to pay to continue the plug in place. Let us examine the implications of the doctrine that parents should have a legally enforceable obligation to keep their children alive. The argument for this obligation contains two components, that the parents created the child by a freely chosen purposive act and that the child is temporarily helpless and not a self-owner. If we consider first the argument from helplessness, then first we may make the general point that it is a philosophical fallacy to maintain that A's needs properly impose coercive obligations on B to satisfy these needs.
For one thing, B's rights are then violated. Secondly, if a helpless child may be said to impose legal obligations on someone else, why specifically on its parents and not on other people? What do the parents have to do with it? The answer, of course, is that they are the creators of the child. But this brings us to the second argument, the argument from creation. Considering, then, the creation argument, this immediately rules out any obligation of a mother to keep a child alive who was the result of an act of rape, since this was not a freely undertaken act. It also rules out any such obligation by a step-parent, foster-parent, or guardian who didn't participate at all in creating the child. Furthermore, if creation engenders an obligation to maintain the child, why should it stop when the child becomes an adult? As Evers states, the parents are still the creators of the child. Why aren't they obliged to support the child forever? It is true that the child is no longer helpless, but helplessness, as pointed out above, is not in and of itself a cause of binding obligation. If the condition of being the creator of another is the source of the obligation, and this condition persists, why doesn't the obligation? And what of the case, in some future decade, when a scientist becomes able to create human life in the laboratory? The scientist is then the creator. Must he also have a legal obligation to keep the child alive? And suppose the child is deformed and ill, scarcely human. Does he still have a binding legal obligation to maintain the child? And if so, how much of his resources, his time, energy, money, capital equipment, should he be legally required to invest to keep the child alive? Where does his obligation stop, and by what criterion? This question of resources is also directly relevant to the case of natural parents. As Evers points out, let us consider the case of poor parents who have a child who gets sick. The sickness is grave enough that the parents, in order to obtain the medical care to keep the baby alive, would have to starve themselves. Do the parents have an obligation to lessen the quality of their own lives even to the point of self-extinction to aid the child? And if not, we might add, at what point does the parent's legal obligation properly cease? And by what criterion? Evers goes on, One might want to argue that parents owe only the average minimal care, heat, shelter, nutrition, necessary to keep a child alive. But if one is going to take the obligation position, it seems illogical, in view of the wide variety of human qualities and characteristics, to tie obligation to the procrustean bed of the human average. A common argument holds that the voluntary act of the parents has created a contract by which the parents are obligated to maintain the child. But, A, this would also entail the alleged contract with the fetus that would prohibit abortion, and, B, this falls into all the difficulties with the contract theory as analyzed above. Finally, as Evers points out, suppose that we consider the case of a person who voluntarily rescues a child from a flaming wreck that kills the child's parents. In a very real sense, the rescuer has brought life to the child. Does the rescuer, then, have a binding legal obligation to keep the child alive from then on? 
Wouldn't this be a monstrous involuntary servitude that is being foisted upon a rescuer? And if for the rescuer, why not also for the natural parent? The mother, then, becomes at the birth of her child its trustee owner, legally obliged only not to aggress against the child's person, since the child possesses the potential for self-ownership. Apart from that, so long as the child lives at home, it must necessarily come under the jurisdiction of its parents, since it is living on property owned by those parents. Certainly the parents have the right to set down rules for the use of their home and property for all persons, whether children or not, living in that home. But when are we to say that this parental trustee jurisdiction over children shall come to an end? Surely any particular age, twenty-one, eighteen, or whatever, can only be completely arbitrary. The clue to the solution of this thorny question lies in the parental property rights in their home. For the child has his full rights of self-ownership when he demonstrates that he has them in nature. In short, when he leaves or runs away from home. Regardless of his age, we must grant to every child the absolute right to run away and to find new foster parents who will voluntarily adopt him, or to try to exist on his own. Parents may try to persuade the runaway child to return, but it is totally impermissible enslavement and an aggression upon his right of self-ownership for them to use force to compel him to return. The absolute right to run away is the child's ultimate expression of his right of self-ownership, regardless of age. Now, if a parent may own his child within the framework of non-aggression and runaway freedom, then he may also transfer that ownership to someone else. He may give the child out for adoption, or he may sell the rights to the child in a voluntary contract. In short, we must face the fact that the purely free society will have a flourishing free market in children. Superficially, this sounds monstrous and inhuman, but closer thought will reveal the superior humanism of such a market. For we must realize that there is a market for children now, but that since the government prohibits sale of children at a price, the parents may now only give their children away to a licensed adoption agency free of charge. This means that we now indeed have a child market, but that the government enforces a maximum price control of zero and restricts the market to a few privileged and therefore monopolistic agencies. The result has been a typical market where the price of the commodity is held by government far below the free market price, an enormous shortage of the good. The demand for babies and children is usually far greater than the supply, and hence we see daily tragedies of adults denied the joys of adopting children by prying and tyrannical adoption agencies. In fact, we find a large unsatisfied demand by adults and couples for children, along with a large number of surplus and unwanted babies neglected or maltreated by their parents. Allowing a free market in children would eliminate this imbalance and would allow for an allocation of babies and children away from parents who dislike or do not care for their children and toward foster parents who deeply desire such children.
Everyone involved, the natural parents, the children, and the foster parents purchasing the children, would be better off in this sort of society. Some years ago, the New York City authorities proudly announced that they had broken up an illegal baby ring. Babies were being imported for a price from Greece by enterprising merchants and then sold to eager parents in New York. No one seemed to realize that everyone involved in this supposedly barbaric transaction benefited. The poverty-stricken Greek parents gained money, as well as the satisfaction of knowing that their babies would be brought up in far more affluent homes. The new parents gained their heart's desire of having babies, and the babies were transferred to a far happier environment, and the merchants earned their profits as middlemen. Everyone gained. Who lost? In the libertarian society, then, the mother would have the absolute right to her own body, and therefore to perform an abortion, and would have the trustee ownership of her children, an ownership limited only by the illegality of aggressing against their persons, and by their absolute right to run away or to leave home at any time. Parents would be able to sell their trustee rights and children to anyone who wished to buy them at any mutually agreed price. The present state of juvenile law in the United States, it might be pointed out, is in many ways nearly the reverse of our desired libertarian model. In the current situation, both the rights of parents and children are systematically violated by the state. First, the rights of the parents. In present law, children may be seized from their parents by outside adults, almost always the state, for a variety of reasons. Two reasons, physical abuse by the parent and voluntary abandonment, are plausible, since in the former case the parent aggressed against the child, and in the latter the parent voluntarily abandoned custody. Two points, however, should be mentioned a. that until recent years the parents were rendered immune by court decisions from ordinary tort liability in physically aggressing against their children. Fortunately, this is now being remedied. And b. despite the publicity being given to the battered child syndrome, it has been estimated that only 5% of child abuse cases involve physical aggression by the parents. On the other hand, the two other grounds for seizing children from their parents, both coming under the broad rubric of child neglect, clearly violate parental rights. These are failure to provide children with the proper food, shelter, medical care, or education, and failure to provide children with a fit environment. It should be clear that both categories, and especially the latter, are vague enough to provide an excuse for the state to seize almost any children, since it is up to the state to define what is proper and fit. Equally vague are other corollary standards allowing the state to seize children whose optimal development is not being promoted by the parents, or where the best interests of the child, again, all defined by the state, are promoted thereby. A few recent cases will serve as examples of how broadly the seizure power has been exercised. In the 1950 case of Henry Watson, the state found a mother to have neglected three children by virtue of the fact that she was incapable by reason of her emotional status, 
her mental condition, and her allegedly deeply religious feelings amounting to fanaticism. In its decision, fraught with totalitarian implications, the court stressed the alleged obligation of parents to bring up children respecting and adjusting to the conventions and the mores of the community in which they are to live. In 1954, in the case of Hunter v. Powers, the court again violated religious freedom, as well as parental rights, by seizing a child on the ground that the parent was too intensely devoted to a nonconformist religion, and that the child should properly have been studying or playing, rather than passing out religious literature. A year later, in the case of Henry Black, a Utah court seized eight children from their parents because the parents had failed to teach the children that polygamy was immoral. Not only religion, but also personal morality has been dictated by the government. In 1962, five children were seized from their mother by a court on the ground that the mother frequently entertained male companions in the apartment. In other cases, courts have held parents to have neglected the child, and thereupon seized the child, because parental quarreling or a child's sense of insecurity allegedly endangered the child's best interests. In a recent decision, Justice Woodside of the Pennsylvania Superior Court trenchantly warned of the massive coercive potential of the best interest criterion. A court should not take the custody of a child from their parents solely on the ground that the state or its agencies can find a better home for them. If the better home test were the only test, public welfare officials could take children from half the parents in the state, whose homes are considered to be the less desirable, and place them in the homes of the other half of the population, considered to have the more desirable homes. Extending this principle further, we would find that the family believed to have the best home would have the choice of any of our children. Even more bizarre and totalitarian in its implications is the often proposed concept of a child's right to be wanted. Apart from the impossibility of using violence to enforce an emotion on someone else, such a criterion would arm outside parties, in practice the state, with the power to determine when wanting exists, and to seize children from parents who don't meet that scarcely definable criterion. Thus Hillary Rodham of the Children's Defense Fund has challenged this criterion. How should a right to be wanted be defined and enforced? The necessarily broad and vague enforcement guidelines could recreate the hazard of current laws, again requiring the state to make broad discretionary judgments about the quality of a child's life. The rights of children, even more than those of parents, have been systematically invaded by the state. Compulsory school attendance laws, endemic in the United States since the turn of this century, force children either into public schools or into private schools officially approved by the state. Supposedly humanitarian child labor laws have systematically forcibly prevented children from entering the labor force, thereby privileging their adult competitors. Forcibly prevented from working and earning a living, and forced into schools which they often dislike or are not suited for, children often become truants, 
a charge used by the state to corral them into penal institutions in the name of reform schools, where children are in effect imprisoned for actions or non-actions that would never be considered crimes if committed by adults. It has indeed been estimated that from one-quarter to one-half of juvenile delinquents currently incarcerated by the state did not commit acts that would be considered crimes if committed by adults, that is, aggression against person and property. The crimes of these children were in exercising their freedom in ways disliked by the minions of the state, truancy, incorrigibility, running away. Between the sexes, it is particularly girl children who are jailed in this way for immoral rather than truly criminal actions. The percentage of girls jailed for immorality, waywardness, sexual relations, rather than for genuine crimes, ranges from 50 to over 80 percent. Since the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in the 1967 case of Inri Galt, Juvenile defendants, at least in theory, have been accorded the elementary procedural rights of adults, the right to notice of specific charges, the right to counsel, the right to cross-examine witnesses. But these have only been granted in cases where they have actually been accused of being criminals. As Beatrice Levado writes, the Galt and similar decisions do not apply to any adjudicatory hearings except those in which the offense charged to the juvenile would be violation of the criminal laws if committed by an adult. Therefore, the safeguards of Kent, Galt, and Winship do not protect the due process rights of juveniles who are dependent, neglected, in need of supervision, truant, runaway, or accused of other offenses of which only juveniles can be guilty, such as smoking, drinking, staying out late, etc. As a result, juveniles are habitually deprived of such elemental procedural rights accorded to adult defendants as the right to bail, the right to a transcript, the right to appeal, the right to a jury trial, the burden of proof to be on the prosecution, and the inadmissibility of hearsay evidence. As Roscoe Pound has written, the powers of the Star Chamber were a trifle in comparison with those of our juvenile courts. Once in a while a dissenting judge has leveled a trenchant critique of this system. Thus Judge Michael Musmano stated in a 1954 Pennsylvania case, Certain constitutional and legal guarantees, such as immunity against self-incrimination, prohibition of hearsay, interdiction of ex parte and secret reports, all so jealously upheld in decisions from Alabama to Wyoming, are to be jettisoned in Pennsylvania when the person at the bar of justice is a tender-aged boy or girl. Furthermore, the state juvenile codes are studded with vague language that permits almost unlimited trial and incarceration for various forms of immorality, habitual truancy, habitual disobedience, incorrigibility, ungovernability, moral depravity, in danger of becoming morally depraved, immoral conduct, and even associating with persons of immoral character. Moreover, the tyranny of indeterminate sentencing, see our chapter above on punishment, has been wielded against juveniles, with juveniles often receiving a longer sentence than an adult would have suffered for the same offense. 
Indeed, the rule in contemporary juvenile justice has been to impose a sentence that may leave a juvenile in jail until he reaches the age of majority. Furthermore, in some states in recent years, this evil has been compounded by separating juvenile offenders into two categories, genuine criminals, who are called delinquents, and other immoral children, who are called persons in need of supervision, or PINs, P-I-N-S, after which the PINs offenders receive longer sentences than the actual juvenile criminals. Thus, in a recent study, Paul Lehrman writes, The range of institutional stay was 2 to 28 months for delinquents and 4 to 48 months for PINs boys. The median was 9 months for delinquents and 13 months for PINs, and the average length of stay was 10.7 months for delinquents and 16.3 months for PINs. The results of length of stay do not include the detention period, the stage of correctional processing prior to placement in an institution. Analyses of recent detention figures for all five boroughs of New York City revealed the following patterns. 1. PINs boys and girls are more likely to be detained than delinquents, 54 to 31 percent. And, two, once PIN's youth are detained, they are twice as likely to be detained for more than 30 days than are regular delinquents, 50 to 25 percent. Again, it is mainly female juveniles that are punished for immoral offenses. A recent study of Hawaii, for example, found that girls charged merely with running away normally spend two weeks in pretrial detention, whereas boys charged with actual crimes are held for only a few days, and that nearly 70% of the imprisoned girls in a state training school were incarcerated for immorality offenses, whereas the same was true of only 13% for the imprisoned boys. The current judicial view, which regards the child as having virtually no rights, was trenchantly analyzed by Supreme Court Justice Abe Fortas in his decision in the Galt case. The idea of crime and punishment was to be abandoned. The child was to be treated and rehabilitated, and the procedures from apprehension through institutionalization were to be clinical rather than punitive. These results were to be achieved, without coming to conceptual and constitutional grief, by insisting that the proceedings were not adversary, but that the state was proceeding as parens patriae, the state as parent. The Latin phrase proved to be a great help to those who sought to rationalize the exclusion of juveniles from the constitutional scheme, but its meaning is murky, and its historical credentials are of dubious relevance. The right of the state as parents patriae to deny the child procedural rights available to his elders was elaborated by the assertion that a child, unlike an adult, has a right not to liberty but to custody. If his parents default in effectively performing their custodial functions, that is, if the child is delinquent, the state may interfere. In doing so, it does not deprive the child of any rights because he has none. It merely provides the custody to which the child is entitled. 
On this basis, proceedings involving juveniles were described as civil, not criminal, and therefore not subject to the requirements which restrict the state when it seeks to deprive a person of his liberty. It may be added that calling an action civil or custody does not make incarceration any more pleasant, or any less incarceration, for the victim of the treatment or the rehabilitation. Criminologist Frederick Howlett has trenchantly criticized the juvenile court system and placed it in a wider libertarian context. He writes of the denial of certain basic rights of individuals, the right to associate with those of their choice and to engage voluntarily in acts that harm no one but themselves. The drunk who clogs our courts should have the right to get drunk. The prostitute and her client should not have to answer to the law for an act that is their personal decision. The misbehaving child likewise has a fundamental right to be a child, and if he has committed no act that would be considered criminal were he an adult, why seek recourse through the courts? Before rushing to treat or help a person outside the justice system, should not the community first consider the alternative of doing nothing? Should it not recognize the child's right as a person to non-treatment and non-interference by an outside authority? A particularly eloquent judicial defense of the rights of children occurred in an 1870 Illinois decision, years earlier than the modern assertion of state despotism in the juvenile court system, beginning with the turn of the century progressive period. In his decision in People X. Rel. O'Connell v. Turner, Justice Thornton declared, The principle of the absorption of the child in and its complete subjection to the despotism of the state is wholly inadmissible in the modern civilized world. These laws provide for the safe keeping of the child. They direct his commitment and only a ticket of leave of the uncontrolled discretion of a board of guardians will permit the imprisoned boy to breathe the pure air of heaven outside his prison walls, and to feel the instincts of manhood by contact with the busy world. The confinement may be from one to fifteen years, according to the age of the child. Executive clemency cannot open the prison doors, for no offense has been committed. The writ of habeas corpus, a writ for the security of liberty, can afford no relief, for the sovereign power of the state, as parents patriae, has determined the imprisonment beyond recall. Such a restraint upon natural liberty is tyranny and oppression. If without crime, without the conviction of any offense, the children of the state are thus to be confined for the good of society, then society had better be reduced to its original elements, and free government acknowledged a failure. The disability of minors does not make slaves or criminals of them. Can we hold children responsible for crime, liable for their torts, impose onerous burdens upon them, and yet deprive them of their liberty without charge or conviction of crime? The Illinois Bill of Rights, following upon the Virginia Declaration of Rights and the Declaration of Independence, declares that all men are by nature free and independent, and have certain inherent and inalienable rights, among these life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. This language is not restrictive, it is broad and comprehensive, and declares a grand truth, that all men, 
all people everywhere have the inherent and inalienable right to liberty. Shall we say to the children of the state, You shall not enjoy this right, a right independent of all human laws and regulations? Even criminals cannot be convicted and imprisoned without due process of law. Chapter 15 Human Rights as Property Rights Liberals generally wish to preserve the concept of rights for such human rights as freedom of speech, while denying the concept to private property. A particularly stark and self-contradictory example is Professor Peter Singer, who explicitly calls for preserving the concept of rights for personal liberty, while shifting over to utilitarianism in economic affairs and in the realm of property. And yet, on the contrary, the concept of rights only makes sense as property rights. For not only are there no human rights which are not also property rights, but the former rights lose their absoluteness and clarity and become fuzzy and vulnerable when property rights are not used as the standard. In the first place, there are two senses in which property rights are identical with human rights. One, that property can only accrue to humans, so that their rights to property are rights that belong to human beings. And two, that the person's right to his own body, his personal liberty, is a property right in his own person, as well as a human right. But more importantly for our discussion, human rights, when not put in terms of property rights, turn out to be vague and contradictory, causing liberals to weaken those rights on behalf of public policy or the public good. As I wrote in another work, take for example the human right of free speech. Freedom of speech is supposed to mean the right of everyone to say whatever he likes. But the neglected question is, where? Where does a man have this right? He certainly does not have it on property on which he is trespassing. In short, he has this right only either on his own property or on the property of someone who has agreed, as a gift or in a rental contract, to allow him on the premises. In fact, then, there is no such thing as a separate right to free speech. There is only a man's property right, the right to do as he wills with his own or to make voluntary agreements with other property owners. In short, a person does not have a right to freedom of speech. What he does have is the right to hire a hall and address the people who enter the premises. He does not have a right to freedom of the press. What he does have is the right to write or publish a pamphlet, and to sell that pamphlet to those who are willing to buy it, or to give it away to those who are willing to accept it. Thus, what he has in each of these cases is property rights, including the right of free contract and transfer which form a part of such rights of ownership. There is no extra right of free speech or free press beyond the property rights that a person may have in any given case. Furthermore, couching the analysis in terms of a right to free speech instead of property rights leads to confusion and the weakening of the very concept of rights. The most famous example is Justice Holmes' contention that no one has the right to shout fire falsely in a crowded theater, 
and therefore that the right to freedom of speech cannot be absolute, but must be weakened and tempered by considerations of public policy. And yet, if we analyze the problem in terms of property rights, we will see that no weakening of the absoluteness of rights is necessary. Furthermore, the view that the shout of fire causes a panic is deterministic, and is another version of the incitement to riot fallacy discussed above. It is up to the people in the theater to assess information coming to them. If this were not so, why wouldn't correctly warning people of an actual fire in a theater be a crime, since it, too, might incite a panic? The disruption involved in falsely yelling fire is actionable only as a violation of property rights in the manner explained in the text below. I am indebted to Dr. David Gordon for this point. For logically, the shouter is either a patron or the theater owner. If he is the theater owner, he is violating the property rights of the patrons in quiet enjoyment of the performance for which he took their money in the first place. If he is another patron, then he is violating both the property right of the patrons to watching the performance and the property right of the owner, for he is violating the terms of his being there. For those terms surely include not violating the owner's property by disrupting the performance he is putting on. In either case, he may be prosecuted as a violator of property rights. Therefore, when we concentrate on the property rights involved, we see that the Holmes case implies no need for the law to weaken the absolute nature of rights. Indeed, Justice Hugo Black, a well-known absolutist on behalf of freedom of speech, made it clear in a trenchant critique of the Holmes shouting fire in a crowded theater argument that Black's advocacy of freedom of speech was grounded in the rights of private property. Thus Black stated, I went to a theater last night with you. I have an idea if you and I had gotten up and marched around that theater, whether we said anything or not, we would have been arrested. Nobody has ever said that the First Amendment gives people a right to go anywhere in the world they want to go, or say anything in the world they want to say. Buying the theater tickets did not buy the opportunity to make a speech there. We have a system of property in this country, which is also protected by the Constitution. We have a system of property, which means that a man does not have a right to do anything he wants anywhere he wants to do it. For instance, I would feel a little badly if somebody were to try to come into my house and tell me that he had a constitutional right to come in there because he wanted to make a speech against the Supreme Court. I realize the freedom of people to make a speech against the Supreme Court, but I do not want him to make it in my house. That is a wonderful aphorism about shouting fire in a crowded theater, but you do not have to shout fire to get arrested. If a person creates a disorder in a theater, they would get him there, not because of what he hollered, but because he hollered. They would get him not because of any views he had, but because they thought he did not have any views that they wanted to hear there. That is the way I would answer, not because of what he shouted, but because he shouted. Some years ago, the French political theorist Bertrand de Juvenel 
similarly called for the weakening of free speech and assembly rights in what he called the chairman's problem, the problem of allocating time or space in an assembly hall or newspaper or in front of a microphone, where the writers or speakers believe that they have a right of free speech to the use of the resource. What de Juvenel overlooked was our solution to the chairman's problem, recasting the concept of rights in terms of private property rather than in terms of freedom of speech or assembly. In the first place, we may notice that in each of de Juvenel's examples, a man attending an assembly, a person writing to a letters to the editor column, and a man applying for discussion time on the radio, the scarce time or space being offered is free in the sense of costless. We are in the midst of what economics calls the rationing problem. A valuable, scarce resource has to be allocated, whether it be time at the podium, time in front of the microphone, or space in a newspaper. But since the use of the resource is free, costless, the demand for obtaining this time or space is bound greatly to exceed the supply, and hence a perceived shortage of the resource is bound to develop. As in all cases of shortages and of queuing up caused by low or non-existent prices, the unsatisfied demanders are left with a feeling of frustration and resentment at not obtaining the use of the resource they believe they deserve. A scarce resource, if not allocated by prices, must be allocated in some other way by its owner. It should be noted that the de Juvenel cases could all be allocated by a price system, if the owner so desired. The chairman of an assembly could ask for price bids for scarce places at the podium, and then award the places to the highest bidders. The radio producer could do the same with discussants on his program. In effect, this is what producers do when they sell time to individual sponsors. There would then be no shortages and no feelings of resentment at a promise, equal access of the public to the column, podium, or microphone, reneged. But beyond the question of prices, there is a deeper matter involved. For whether by prices or by some other criterion, the resource must, in all cases, be allocated by its owner. The owner of the radio station or the program or his agent rents or donates radio time in a way that he decides. The owner of the newspaper or his editor agent allocates space for letters in any way that he chooses. The owner of the assembly and his designated agent, the chairman, allocates the space at the podium in any way he decides. The fact that ownership is the ultimate allocator gives us the clue to the property solution of de Juvenel's chairman's problem. For the fellow who writes a letter to a newspaper is not the owner of the paper. He therefore has no right to, but only a request for, newspaper space, a request which it is the absolute right of the owner to grant or to deny. The man who asks to speak at an assembly has no right to speak, but only a request that the owner or his representative, the chairman, must decide upon. The solution is to recast the meaning of the right to freedom of speech or assembly 
instead of using the vague, and, as de Juvenel demonstrates, unworkable concept of some sort of equal right to space or time, we should focus on the right of private property. Only when the right to free speech is treated simply as a subdivision of property right does it become valid, workable, and absolute. This can be seen in de Juvenel's proposed right to buttonhole. De Juvenel says that there is a sense in which the right of speech can be exercised by each and every one. It is the right to buttonhole, to talk and to try to convince the people one meets, and then to collect these people in a hall, and thus to constitute a congregation of one's own. Here de Juvenel approaches the proper solution without firmly attaining it, for what he is really saying is that the right to free speech is only valid and workable when used in the sense of the right to talk to people, to try to convince them, to hire a hall to address people who wish to attend, etc. But this sense of the right to free speech is in fact part of a person's general right to his property. Provided, of course, we remember the right of another person not to be buttonholed if he doesn't want to, that is, his right not to listen. For property right includes the right to one's property and to make mutually agreed-upon contracts and exchanges with the owners of other properties. De Juvenel's buttonholer, who hires a hall and addresses his congregation, is exercising not a vague right of free speech, but a part of his general right of property. De Juvenel almost recognizes this when he considers the case of two men, Primus and Secundus. Primus has collected through toil and trouble a congregation of his own doing. An outsider, Secundus, comes in and claims the right to address this congregation on grounds of the right of free speech. Is Primus bound to give him the floor? I doubt it. He can reply to Secundus, I have made up this congregation. Go thou and do likewise. Precisely. In short, Primus owns the meeting. He has hired the hall, has called the meeting, and has laid down its conditions, and those who don't like these conditions are free not to attend or to leave. Primus has a property right in the meeting that permits him to speak at will. Secundus has no property right whatever, and therefore no right to speak at the meeting. In general, those problems where rights seem to require weakening are ones where the locus of ownership is not precisely defined, in short, where property rights are muddled. Many problems of freedom of speech, for example, occur in the government-owned streets. For example, should a government permit a political meeting which it claims will disrupt traffic or litter streets with handbills? But all of such problems, which seemingly require freedom of speech to be less than absolute, are actually problems due to the failure to define property rights. For the streets are generally owned by government. The government in these cases is the chairman. And then government, like any other property owner, is faced with the problem of how to allocate its scarce resources. A political meeting on the streets will, let us say, block traffic. 
Therefore, the decision of government involves not so much a right to freedom of speech as it involves the allocation of street space by its owner. The whole problem would not arise, it should be noted, if the streets were owned by private individuals and firms, as they all would be in a libertarian society. For then, the streets, like all other private property, could be rented by or donated to other private individuals or groups for the purpose of assembly. One would, in a fully libertarian society, have no more right to use someone else's street than he would have the right to preempt someone else's assembly hall. In both cases, the only right would be the property right to use one's money to rent the resource, if the landlord is willing. Of course, so long as the streets continue to be government-owned, the problem and the conflict remain insoluble. For government ownership of the streets means that all of one's other property rights, including speech, assembly, distribution of leaflets, etc., will be hampered and restricted by the ever-present necessity to traverse and use government-owned streets, which government may decide to block or restrict in any way. If the government allows the street meeting, it will restrict traffic. If it blocks the meeting in behalf of the flow of traffic, it will block the freedom of access to the government streets. In either case, and whichever way it chooses, the rights of some taxpayers will have to be curtailed. The other place where the rights and locus of ownership are ill-defined, and hence where conflicts are insoluble, is the case of government assemblies and their chairmen. For, as we have pointed out, where one man or group hires a hall and appoints a chairman, the locus of ownership is clear, and Primus has his way. But what of government assemblies? Who owns them? No one really knows, and therefore there is no satisfactory or non-arbitrary way to resolve who shall speak and who shall not, what shall be decided and what shall not. True, the government assembly forms itself under its own rules, but then what if these rules are not agreeable to a large body of the citizenry? There is no satisfactory way to resolve this question because there is no clear locus of property right involved. To put it another way, in the case of the newspaper or radio program, it is clear that the letter writer or would-be discussant is the petitioner and the publisher or producer, the owner, who makes the decision. But in the case of the governmental assembly, we do not know who the owner may be. The man who demands to be heard at a town meeting claims to be a part owner, and yet he has not established any sort of property right through purchase, inheritance, or discovery, as have property owners in all other areas. To return to the streets, there are other vexed problems which would be quickly cleared up in a libertarian society where all property is private and clearly owned. In the current society, for example, there is continuing conflict between the right of taxpayers to have access to government-owned streets, as against the desire of residents of a neighborhood to be free of people whom they consider undesirable gathering in the streets. In New York City, for example, there are now hysterical pressures by residents of various neighborhoods to prevent McDonald's food stores from opening in their area, 
and in many cases they have been able to use the power of local government to prevent the stores from moving in. These, of course, are clear violations of the right of McDonald's to the property which they have purchased. But the residents do have a point. The litter and the attraction of undesirable elements who would be attracted to McDonald's and gather in front of it, on the streets. In short, what the residents are really complaining about is not so much the property right of McDonald's as what they consider the bad use of the government streets. They are, in brief, complaining about the human right of certain people to walk at will on the government streets. But as taxpayers and citizens, these undesirables surely have the right to walk on the streets, and of course they could gather on the spot, if they so desired, without the attraction of McDonald's. In the libertarian society, however, where the streets would all be privately owned, the entire conflict could be resolved without violating anyone's property rights for then the owners of the streets would have the right to decide who shall have access to those streets, and they could then keep out undesirables, if they so wished. Of course, those street owners who decided to keep out undesirables would have to pay the price, both the actual costs of policing as well as the loss of business to the merchants on their street and the diminished flow of visitors to their homes. Undoubtedly, in the free society, there would result a diverse pattern of access, with some streets, and therefore neighborhoods, open to all, and others with varying degrees of restricted access. Similarly, the private ownership of all streets would resolve the problem of the human right to freedom of immigration. There is no question about the fact that current immigration barriers restrict not so much a human right to immigrate, but the right of property owners to rent or sell property to immigrants. There can be no human right to immigrate, for on whose property does someone else have the right to trample? In short, if Primus wishes to migrate now from some other country to the United States, we cannot say that he has the absolute right to immigrate to this land area, for what of those property owners who don't want him on their property? On the other hand, there may be, and undoubtedly are, other property owners who would jump at the chance to rent or sell property to Primus, and the current laws now invade their property rights by preventing them from doing so. The libertarian society would resolve the entire immigration question within the matrix of absolute property rights for people only have the right to move to those properties and lands where the owners desire to rent or sell to them. In the free society, they would, in first instance, have the right to travel only on those streets whose owners agree to have them there, and then to rent or buy housing from willing owners. Again, just as in the case of daily movement on streets, a diverse and varying pattern of access of migration, would undoubtedly arise.